Greetings ladies and mentalgens and welcome to today's Reddit series video from the subreddit HFY called Retreat Hell Chapter 1 Written by Lithy Dragon What kind of freaking crap show is this? Michael stepped out into the humpy before it had completely stopped. He ripped the silver oak leaf off of his helmet before shoving it onto his head, annoyed that he had neglected to remove it earlier. He glanced at his watch. 0922 Freck, we're really eight hours into the day. The convoy behind the Humvee dispersed around what was supposed to be a Ganlon Field headquarters. It looked like we rolled into a Freck show, sir. His driver commented, heavy on the Bronx accent. What? It looks like it's a three-ring circus being looted by a stampeding herd of horned foxcat things. Michael's growled, slamming the door behind him. Recon reported the Ganlin were in trouble, but it didn't sound this bad. Sergeant Major Barakas said, walking up on his own Humvee with an unforgivable chipper spring at his step. Something must have changed. Let's go see what it is then, Michael said, turning to march into the chaos of the disintegrating field of command. The retinue of his immediate command staff, aides and fire team escorts falling in behind him. Isn't this supposed to be a bulk in the Granlin army? Major Winters asked. His new exo had only just relieved Verdi a week before. She struck him as competent, but he still hadn't had time to probably get to know her. At least she just transferred from a frontline deployment, Michaels thought. This isn't the Middle East, but we'll need her combat experience. The Ganlin Royal Host is the most of their standing army, yes, Barakas answered, still too cheerfully. Michaels had noticed that more things went to crap, the happier the sergeant major got. He swore he could almost see the 46-year-old marine absorbing happiness from the panic and mayhem around him. Wait, are they Granlin or Cashman? First Lieutenant Sims asked. Sims was the HQ company's XO, an acting CO while Captain Niles was on a convalescent leave. The species is Cashman, Barakas corrected. Their nation is the kingdom of Ganlin. How do you keep it all straight, Sergeant Major? Winters asked. Aedetic memory, ma'am. Winters gave him a sidelong glance before her attention was drawn by the scene ahead of them. Michael stopped as two kinsmen drag a chest across this path. Their steel helmets askew with half the plate and chainmail missing. They screeched at him in chirping language that he didn't understand. Tell me why we're here, Michael said as he watched the two kinsmen struggle to hold the chest away. Some kind of portal opened less than 45 minutes from San Diego, Barakas answered. Uh-huh. Fuzzy aliens with magic on the other side. Yep. Losing a war with a pair of natural owls and even more magic. Mm-hmm. Frontline of war on both armies a half a day's march from the portal. Yeah. Oh, and the elves are bent on exterminating anything that isn't an elf and sent the diplomatic party we sent to open communications with them back to us in very small pieces, backed in very fancy boxes. Right, Michael said, moving forward again. Just needed a reminder. They couldn't make these guys any more of a comic book villain, could they? Winters asked. Probably not, ma'am. Further, the conversation was put on hold as the arrival of what appeared to be a main command pavilion. A three-peaked pavilion, with three out of four sides rolled up for air. The red and blue canvas showed only minor soiling from the field use. The inside, however, was in a state of utter disarray. 
Cashmen in fancy clothing and armor screeched at each other as the table strewn with maps, markers, and a couple swords and knives, and a dozen more items Michael couldn't identify. As the marines entered the pavilion, the Cashmen twitched and looked up, almost in unison, their ears swiveling to catch more sound, but not towards the humans. Over the chaos of the camp, Michaels heard the familiar thump and rumble of the not-so-distant explosions. Chaos descended again, this time with a feverish pace, until one of the Kishmen with fancier armor barked over the din, pointing about his shouted orders. He managed to restore some semblance of order before turning to the humans as they approached. You in charge here? Michaels asked. The well-dressed Kinchman yipped in response, Catching himself mid-sentence with a growl, he turned and barked in a harried-looking assistant. After rummaging through and over the turned chest, the young man rushed over with a softly glowing crystal thing, wrapped in thin bands of gold or silver. The assistant yipped in question, and then the Grandland commander impatiently waved a hand at him. With a wavering breath, the younger Kishman steeled himself, then his eyes lit up with bright silver as he snapped the crystal in two. The crystal shattered into specks of energy, concussive pulse burst across the camp. Michaels felt something tingle in his head. The young Kishman promptly collapsed, floating on his tail with a yip. Oof! I am Lord General Kiwan Rune Yangri, the older kinsman said. Michaels snapped his gaze from the assistant, who seemed to be merely stunned, to the Lord General. He could understand him. Not as if the kinsman was speaking English, but as if Michaels was fluent in whatever language he was speaking. High Commander of the Royal Host and Supreme Commander of the Armies of the Kingdom of Ganlan. That mana crystal was worth two chests of gold, and could have powered a heavy artillery piece for a week. But I feel it is worth far more for both of our forces to be able to understand each other. He held out a right hand and familiar gesture. He's left casually resting on the hilt of his sword on his hip. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Michaels, Michaels replied, extending his own arm to shake the hands only to have the Lord General clasp his forearm instead. They quickly adapted. 2nd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division. What's the state of things here? Disaster, Biangri replied, gesturing towards the encroaching sounds of battle. The bastard elves have managed to force the march nearly twice the forces into battle than we expected, and sent the heaviest concentration of their majors and jam-blade regiments right down the middle. We did our best to hold, but what artillery we have left barely a flicker in the shields, and they decimated our pike formations before they even closed to melee. Beside... We're fighting the rear guard as we fall back, but the whole line is collapsing. The elves are pouring through, not half a mile away, and the royal host is in a total rout. We have no choice but to retreat. Michaels took it all in, nodding as the Lord General spoke. It was a dire situation, and with Gandon's army in shambles, nothing would stand between the portal and earth. But he had also read the reports initial recon had made on the capabilities of both forces, limited as they were with barely more than three days since the portal first opened. He allowed himself an internal chuckle at the opportunity the universe had seen fit to give him. Retreat, he said. He forced his own expression to stay stone-cold neutral, 
but he felt the determination of Marines behind him pardon. Hell, we just got you. He turned, leaving the Lord General looking nonplussed. Sergeant Major, get those trucks unloaded. Anything that is in combat gear gets dropped on the deck. Everything and everyone who is issued rifle heads to the front. Aye, aye, sir. Barakas snapped to attention, then did an about-face and marched out the pavilion, barking orders. Lieutenant, take two squads and keep them behind to set up a command post. Radio is your first priority. Run away, sir, Sams replied, turning on his heel and racing off to give his own orders. Major, get on the horn with the boys in FOB Tolkien, and we need them to send everybody they've got. No holding back. I'm on it, sir, she said, turning away to follow after Sims. Yangri did a double take as Michaels turned back to him. Was that a woman? he asked, pointing at Winters. Michaels ignored the comment. What forces do you have that are still under command, Lord General, and where are they positioned? Corporal Jamie Bradford was having a very interesting day, and she was beginning to think that it was not a good kind of interesting, after all. Her squad was a rifle squad, but she and most of her platoon had been loaded up with the headquarters company and sent to help out the forward base at the Granlin Army Camp. Shaking her head in a tingle thread between her ears and shot down her spine, she thought back to the chaos of the last three days. There was a rush to stand up and secure Earth's side of the freaking portal to another world when it first appeared, then a rush to set up the FOP on the other side of the portal which some arshat had managed to get named Tolkien, and then the rush to link up with the new medieval alien allies, and now they were maybe three hours into a war that Congress just declared against the genocidal fricking elves from another world. She chuckled, as crazy and mixed up as the last couple days have been. I'm surprised I'm still even with the right unit. What are you laughing at, Bradford? Just wondering how much more shuffling around it would take for us to get dumped with an Air Force unit, Sergeant. Ain't no five-star hotels with in-house spas around here, Jabs, Sergeant Ramirez said. Nah, but a girl can dream, Sergeant. Nah, well, save your dreams for later. Looks like Sergeant Major's putting us to work. A communal groan sounded throughout the truck where it had been crammed into. All right, everybody out, and somebody wake up Hicks. Bradford thunked her first down on the Corporal Hicks's helmet twice, startling him awake. Wake up, Freckface, she said before jumping out of the truck and the rest of her fire team. And Freck you, followed her out of the truck. Once out of the truck, Bradford's mood began to darken. Away from the rumble of the engine, she could make out the sound of explosions in the distance. They hadn't been given much intel into the magic weaponry used by the elves and the kinsmen. But from what she did know, they must have been closer to the line of battle of the intel thought. Shouldn't really be surprised at that. A more immediate threat presented itself as Sergeant Major moved down at the dispersed line of Humvees, trucks, and MATVs, doling out orders and work with an angry glee possessed only by the senior enlisted. With an internal groan, Branford slug her rifle over her shoulder and corralled her fire team into a working party. She hated work as much as the next Marine, but she was a career-driven female in one of the Corps' first integrated combat units. With three generations of Marines behind her, slacking off was just not an option for her, and she had to keep her natural competitiveness always on. 
Radford and her fire team were soon hauling gear out of the trucks and back at the Humvees and stacking it on the ground with little ceremony or order. Some of the marines stopped to gawk at the locals, who looked like they were scrambling to pack up or haul away whatever they could carry. A few of the locals stopped to gawk at them, and as Bradford passed some of them, she was amazed to find that she could understand their yips and barks. Put your gawking, Private, Gunnery Sergeant Wilkins snapped. The Humvee's not gonna unload itself. Gunny, they're freaking horns. And I'll shove them up your arse if you don't get into gear, Marine. Get back to work. Even a few locals who stopped to gawk at them quickly made themselves scarce. Radford considered that to be a wise move on their part. The HQ Company XO came through the snagged a couple squads, directing them to start breaking out and setting up equipment rather than just stacking it. Radford found herself hoarding some equipment over to where they were setting up, next to the gaudy-looking pavilion. She had been listening to the intermittent explosions getting closer in just the ten minutes that they had spent unloading. And the combined with the general disarray of the Eddian camp, she knew things were going well. Shouts could be heard not far away, and as she and a private she didn't recognize set the crates down, she heard the new exo talking with the radio operator. Ma'am, Tolkien reports most 2nd Battery from 3rd Battalion is on site, but they just started unpacking. 4th Battalion reports that they are still bringing the second half of Alpha Company through the portal, and Delta Company has only showed up in the Earth side and the elements of the 1st Battalion. The radio operator paused. They're scrambling, but most of our assets are still unpacking. Then we get half of Alpha Company. Tell them that anything that's not already on its way needs to start rolling yet now. We need whatever they can send us, ASAP. Do they have an ETA on the Flyboys yet? A squadron of Cobras is en route from Pendleton, ETA 15 Mikes. Air Force has two flights of 810s en route Davies Mountain, ETA 20 Mikes. Beating a gut-sinking butt-puckering of the trouble, instincts kicking in. Bradford stopped her turn back to the trucks and looked across the camp. Crap. Streaming through the tents was a mass of people, kinchmen, all soldiers. A trickle at first, but she could see growing throng of further ahead. Some of them were carrying pikes or strange glowing staves. Others had abandoned their weapons. Some were wounded. Bradford recognized a rout when she saw one. Two five! Colonel... Michaels bellowed, stepping out of the pavilion. Lock and load, we're moving out. Radford unslung her rifle and moved to join the rest of her squad. Retreat! Hell! Radford shouted back with the rest of the marines. Two five! Retreat, hell! Move out! First platoon on me! Lieutenant Ledowitz shouted, waving his platoon forward through the camp. Radford fell in with the rest of his squad and a platoon leader. Vehicles gotta go around the camp. We're pushing through on foot to plug the hole. Double time, Marines. Bradford surged forward, past the trampled tents and the fleeing Kishman, towards the sound of battle. Smoke and dust started to fill the air. Some of the fire she could smell burning, others from the weapons fire. The rate of thumps and explosions was not what she was used to hearing, but as she drew closer to the fight, she could hear electric zaps and crackles. More shouts and cries, and the clash of metal. Moving through the haze of battle, Bradford passed more wounded. Some had collapsed of their own injuries and lay keening on the ground. Some were dead, some still walking, their wounds fresh. 
As the marines moved against the current of fleeing troops, the Gandan soldiers shied away from them. Bradford didn't know if it was because Abdi appeared alien or because they bore more than a passing resemblance to the owls the Kishmen were fighting. More shouting and flashes and crackles ahead, and Bradford was in the fight. A figure loomed out of the haze, tall and lithe. Squared off against the Kishman soldiers, shorter, stockier, but still thinner than the humans Bradford was used to seeing. The Kishman held a pike before him. His ears splat against his skull as he backed away from the elf. Two or more Kishmen lay dead in the dirt, their armor and body split open. The elf raised a glowing blade, and Bradford didn't hesitate. Brunayat stared death in the face, fiercely gripping the haft, and managed to keep his pike pointed at the gem-blade soldier and unwavering as he carefully stepped back. The elf casually stepped over the dismembered bodies of Rin's comrades. Rin spared the bodies a glance. He and Ket had managed to stick together since they had been assigned to the same unit at the start of the campaign. The other Kishmen had only known for the last three hours since they had been thrust into the pike formation. Ears flat against his skull, he snarled defiance at the elf. Rin had lost his helmet at some point. He couldn't remember how, and he had never been issued a full Holbrook. He was a pulsar survivor, not a frontline pikesman. But the mana crystal and his tape had run dry three days before, and there hadn't been enough replacements to go around. Every soldier of the host was a pikesman, however, and he knew enough on how to use one to be useful. Not that it made much difference. They might have held, despite the reinforcements the elves had been able to summon from the air, if they had artificers reinforcing their armor and weapons and shielding against the elven mages. If they had more artillery to punch through the elven shields, more archers and crossbows to wear the elven formations down at range. He had felt a surge and a tingling effect of the mass translation spell cast back at the camp, and cursed the lack of artillery that holding such a powerful crystal in reserve had cost them. The elf absently drugged his crimson blade through Kek's corpse and swaggered towards Rin. The manor charged edge burning its way through the flesh as much as it sliced. For a moment, he saw the tattered remains of his mother and his sisters, the smoldering ruin and home that he'd joined the host to defend, the level town that he'd grown up in, destroyed despite their success in driving the elves back. Rin's senses snapped back to present, the collapse of the rout had the host around him, the total defeat of what remained to defend Ganlin and all of her people. He locked eyes with the elf who regarded him with a contemptuous smirk, utterly confident in his superiority. No pikeman had ever stood against the gem blade alone and won. No day is a good day to die, he thought, but today is as good a day as any. Seating himself, he braced his back foot and lunged towards death. Three deafening bangs behind him snapped him out of his reverie. He blinked in shock as three holes appeared in the gem blade in rapid succession, the third punching through the owl's face right below his right eye and blowing his brains and shattered bone out of the back of his helmet. Rin stumbled back, tripping over the pike and dropping it as he landed on his tail. The blade's crimson glow flickered out, and the elf fell over dead. Contact! someone shouted, and a rapid staccato of defending cracks and bangs erupted around him, a form sprinting past him. 
wearing unfamiliar armor and clothing, carrying weapons that spit fire and thunder at the elves. He gaped as the elves dropped left and right. One of the weapons boomed just above him, flashes of gold flying through the air caught his eye. Before he could turn back to see who these new allies were, someone grabbed the back of his gambeson and his few jerked around as he was physically drugged across the battlefield. Yipping in surprise, he fumbled for his dropped pike, but failed to grab it before he was left behind. The cackle of spellfire and mana pulses zipped around him as the Lilvan mages returned fire, and the weapon of whomever had his collar barked three more times before Rin was hauled into cover behind a half-demolished stone wall. Acrid smoke filled the nostrils with the unfamiliar tang. His collar released, Rin scrambled to turn around and found himself face to face with the stocky elf. He grinned at him, showing him muted canines that no elf ever had. Before they both reflexively ducked as a silver of fire-shod spells slammed into the piece of wall. Kowalski! The stocky elf shouted over the shoulder. Give me suppressive fire on the right. Aye, corporal, someone shouted in reply, followed by a rapid burst of thunder. Rin had never heard anything like it so fast. The corporal next to him was already popping out out of cover, lining up an elven mage to their right. The weapon barked once, and he saw the major's shield flare hard despite the hot piece of metal that bounced off his face. Recording from the noise and impact, he caught a glimpse of some mechanism moving and a terrifying weapon barked again, spitting out another golden tube of metal. To his surprise, the major's shield barely flickered as it collapsed in and the mage fell to the ground. The wizards are shielded, the corporal shouted. Double tap the wizards. The weapon barked twice more, but with the last shot something caught the mechanism inside and it didn't return forward. Fearing the savior's weapon was broken, Rin peeked around their cover and blanched under his black fur. A formation of legionnaires was sprinting at them. While, though gem blades, they were still highly trained and seasoned soldiers, and every one of them was equipped with enchanted swords and armor, and they were almost right on top of them. Fire in the hole, the corporal shouted, almost in his ear, and the larger tube under the main tube emitted a flash of light in the swamp. Something popped out of the end and was moving just as slow enough to see. The corporal grabbed his collar again and yanked him back under cover, just as the object struck the ground in the middle of the album formation. He felt the concussive thump through the ground, and the explosion briefly deafened him. Ears ringing, he lay on top of the corporal for a moment before the stocky elf shoved him off. He saw him move and talk to his work to his weapon, dropping a box out of it and slapping a new one in, but he couldn't make out what he was saying over the constant bell in his head. Cautiously, he poked his head out of cover to see what had happened to the elves, only to stare at the dismembered corpses and shattered before him. He heard some muffled noises beside him, but paid no mind and when he got more insistent, until a gloved hand clamped down onto his shoulder. Startled, he turned to find the stocky elf looking at him with a strange expression. Are you okay? he shouted, and Rin realized that the expression of concern. So alien and bizarre to see an elvish face. Yeah, Rin shouted, louder than he needed as to his hearing came rushing back. Grimacing, he repeated himself with a less intense shout. Yeah. He flinched down as another salvo of shod spells hit struck cover. Who are you? 
Corporal Bradford, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, United States Marine Corps. The stocky elf shouted back, holding out a hand with a smile. Rin stared at it for a moment before extending his own hand. 2nd Artificer Rin Ayat, 3rd Line, 5th Regiment, Royal Host of the Kingdom of Ganlin. He almost yipped in surprise as Bradford took his hand instead of grabbing his forearm, but managed to maintain his composure. As Bradford gave him hand a firm squeeze and a shake, a piece that all started to fall together for Rin. The rumors of the last-ditch effort, the shortage of mana crystals, the hard surge of magic three days ago, the renewed oven offensive, the rumors of a new ally, a mass transportation spell. It's impossible, mere speculation. They couldn't have. A burst of raw mana slammed into the piece of wall, fracturing off a small chunks of stone. Ren reached for his staff on instinct, only to be reminded that he had nothing more than a knife in his belt. Looks like the pointy-eared bastards are pushing back, Bradford said, leaning out to spit more thunder at the fiery owls. The battle continued to rage around them, and Ren saw more of the stocky owls streaming in from behind, while his own people fled approaching elven legions. Not all of the Ganon soldiers were fleeing, Many kept on going once they passed to the growing line of their own new allies, but some rallied and began digging in, and forming into new lines. Bradford ducked back with another burst of spellfire, and as the snap and crackle of fire flying through the air increased in intensity, Rin feared that the new allies were only delaying the inevitable a few minutes. Then a horseless carriage roared up beside them, made entirely of metal, with a weapon on top that was enclosed in heavy armor. Spells zipped and crackled by, many slamming into the carriage with pricks and clanks and bursts of fire, all to no effect. The weapon on the top was the death in return, harrying out with a booming roar. Rin peeked around his cover and saw ranks of elves knocked flat by this weapon, and several others that joined it as more of the horseless carriages joined their line. Dozens more of the marines came up with them, Following behind with them was a cover. Three more marines slid into cover on the other side of Bradford, each bulkier than the last, and nearly shoved Rin out of the cover on his side. Making friends with the locals, Corporal. At least I've got friends, Kowalski, Bradford snarked back. Where did you jerks lose yourselves at? Had to deal with a group of those lightsaber frecks. Then Gomez got himself shot in the chest with one of them magic missiles before we could get to cover. Because... Somebody wanted to rambo his saw like a freaking dumbass. We're fighting an army of magical owls straight from Lord of the Rings convention. Who wouldn't want to rambo a saw? Shut the freck up, Kowalski, Bradford shouted. Gomez, you good? Yeah, I'm good, Corporal. Cracked my plate and knocked me on my ass. I'm fine. Who's your friend, Corporal? The third marine at the end asked, peeking around the side of the wall before ducking back from another spell burst. Guys, this is second artificer Ayat. Second artificer, these are my fire team. Lance Corporal Kowalski, Private First Class Miller, and Private Gomez. Nice to see the corporal's got a new boyfriend, Kowalski grinned at him. Kowalski, I'll shove that SAW so far up your arse, you'll be cycling the bolt with your goddamn teeth if you don't shut the freck up. Oh, don't tempt me with a good time. Jesus, Kowalski, go freaking kill something. Now you're talking my language. Kowalski heaved himself up and stood behind the wall. 
He braced his weapon up on top of the wall with a whooping yell, sprayed a long burst of fire towards the enemy. Rokia, get some! Crazy bastard, Miller shouted at him while taking shots from around the corner. Rin stared at them. You're all insane. Ha! <laughs> Bradford laughed. We're marines. As if that explained it. Just when Rin thought that things couldn't get any crazier, Gomez piped up. Hey, cavalry's here. The ground began to rumble under Rin's tail. The monstrous behemoth roared up to rise the piece of wall that they were built on. Larger than any carriage that he'd ever heard of being made, it was covered in impossibly thick plates of armor and rolled on giant metal links. A terrifying weapon was mounted on the top and it swung from side to side like a predator looking for its next meal. What in the name of all the gods is that? M1 Abrams, Bradford grinned as the beast rolled to a stop alongside the wall. Fourth battalions finally arrived. Ah, crap, they're going to fire, Miller said. Cover your ears. What? Rin said, clamping his hands over his ears as loud as these marines' weapons were. If they were concerned about the noise, he wasn't going to wait for an answer. Then the hammer of the guards thumped next to him. The weapon was so powerful the monster next to him jerked back in recoil, and the concussion kicked the dust out of the very soul. Rin screamed. That, Bradford shouted back. Another hammer thumped, booming roar further down the line. A door to the carriage to the left opened, and a stocky elf whose bare skin was almost as dark as Rin's fur poked its head out. On your feet, marines, hair supports inbound. Orders are prepared to advance. You heard the man, Bradford shouted, standing up and offering the hand to Rin. He took it, and she hauled him up beside her. Over the ringing in his ears, he heard a distant womp, 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 and wondered what new destructive terror these marines of the United States were about to unveil. Offensive magic still crackled and zapped through the air around them, but little was directed at them. Bigger targets had taken the elves' attention. Rin looked out of the battlefield before him. The field had spent the last day being pushed back across the elven legion arrayed before them. He thought that he had seen devastation wrought by the two armies as they had pummeled each other across the field. What he saw now was a hellscape. Bodies and pieces of bodies littered the craters around them. Smoke and dust filled the air, and he coughed as the wind blew the acrid odor into his snout. The distant womp 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 turned into a roar as several somethings thundered overhead. He looked up as several thin, boxy, angry-looking machines fly by, spitting smoke, fire, death as they went. Kowalski whooped as their trails of fire met the elven shields and shoved them aside like they weren't even there. Cobras, Bradford said. What? Run looked back at the corporal. Their AH-1 Viper Cobras attack helicopters. As if that explained everything. The attack helicopter split to the other side of the Alban army, continuing to spit fire and destruction as they tore into the flanks. Then Rin heard a distinctive sound unlike anything he had ever heard before. Brrrrt. A rapid series of lights blinked and flashed across the Alban legion, followed by a delayed sound of a crackling staccato of explosions. Whoa! Gowalski crooned. Frick yeah, bring the bird, baby! The great beast to the right growled forward and thumped its god hammer once more. The carriage to the left surged ahead as well, its own weapon hammering away. 
Rin struggled to hear anything over the deafening ringing in his ears. He felt Bradford slap his back, and he nearly stumbled. An, Ayat, let's give these bastards some payback. Ha, look at that, Bradford, already beating up your new boyfriend. Rin started to roll his own eyes at Kowalski, then stopped and did a double-take at Bradford. Wait, what? Her? Get your fat rear moving, Kowalski, Bradford snapped. Move on, Marines. Two, five. Retreat. Hell. End of chapter. Retreat Hell, chapter two. Where in the five hells did you come from? Run had been corralled and following Bradford and her fire team as they advanced behind the Humvee with a collection of other marines. Along the way, he had found some weird stick thing with arcane inlays and a couple crystals from a fallen Keshman. He seemed much more secure carrying it. And what are you? Meridians, brah, one of the marines said. Run looked at him like he wasn't sure if he was meaty putting on an effect of an idiot, or actually one. We're humans, Bradford replied, ignoring Stevens. She knew that he was an idiot. We came through the portal. Portal? What? He was interrupted by the thumping boom of the nearby Abrams' main gun. The 120mm cannon was deafening, and the Kishman winced in pain. His mobile tufted ears pricking erratically. One of the other marines took pity on him and popped a set of Mickey Mouse earmuffs on his head. They were not designed for his shape at all, and combined with the startled twitch and the head tilt of a sudden appearance, Bradford had to struggle not to laugh at him. Don't ask us, she continued as she adjusted the earmuffs and sighed in relief when the Humvee's Marduce fired a long burst. It just popped up three days ago. We have no idea where it came from. But the conversation was halted by a massive spellburst that struck the front of the Abrams to their right and exploded. The low concussive thump shook the earth and nearly threw Rin and the marines to the ground as it heaved the front of the tank up, sending dirt and rocks flying into the air. What the frick was that? Sergeant Gutierrez said, struggling to stand up as several more concussive thumps tore into the ground ahead of them. That was a channeled shard blast, Ren replied, as dirt and debris rained down around him. I've seen those wipe out a whole pike formations, even with an artificer's support. He readjusted his Mickey Mouses and stood up. He was almost startled off his feet when the Abrams main gun fired. It's not dead. Those things can take a punch, Miller said, as the tank jerked forward, shuddering at first. It slowly powered into and out of the crater formed by the shard blast, then quickly returned to its previous speed. Bits of metal and armor and other debris were around the ground, but it remained functional. The Humvees were not so well armored, however. Another salvo rippled across the field, mostly hitting dirt, but not all. A Humvee opposite the Abrams took a direct hit, immediately crumpling in the front and before the vehicle exploded into a ball of fire and shrapnel. Jesus freaking crap balls, Kowalski shouted. Where in the frack did those things come from? The Archmajors at the center of the formations, Run replied, pointing at the spindly towers of gold and crystal scattered throughout the consolidating elven forces. Even as he spoke, pulses of light flickered across the towers. Incoming! Someone shouted, and Bradford's world heaved. 
a branch struck the ground just underneath the Humvees that were following. An explosion heaved the Humvee up, flipping it onto its side, while shards of energy ripped through the undercarriage. A marine in the front of her legs had ripped off at the knee by a low-angled shard. Though it rained around Bradford as she stared up at the sky, struggling to regain her breath. She had a brief flash of boot camp, trying to stamp her to the bottom of the rope climb. The D.I. screaming at her, Do you think you have time for a nap, Marine? Did you think that this was a freaking day spa? Are you just going to lie there and let your unit down, Marine? Or are you going to get the frick up? Bradford heaved himself up over the clouds of dirt and bounced off her helmet. Coughing, she shoved the wall down and stumbled back to her feet. The Humphy was on its side, prevented from rolling onto its roof only by the armoured turret enclosure. The left front wheel and the suspension were nothing more than a mangled twist of wreckage. Somebody was screaming. She stumbled towards the sound, past other marines. Most were moving. Some weren't. Moving on instinct and roach training, Bradford dropped to her knees in front of the screaming marine. Gutierrez, her squad sergeant. His left leg from just above the knee and down was gone. She was pretty sure that she could see it lying out of reach in the peripheral vision but she refused to let herself look at it. Corpsman, she shouted, ripping off her gloves. Stay with me, sergeant, she said, as she ripped the first aid kit out of his armor, fumbling the kit to open. She snapped the tourniquet out. How bad is it, Jabs? Gutierrez asked through gritted teeth. I'm afraid you're not going to be winning any dance contests, sergeant, Radford said as she wrapped the tourniquet around the thigh and began tightening it. Because you're a rather terrible dancer. <laughs> Gutierrez grit his teeth and beating the ground as Bradford finished talking the tourniquet. Securing it, she was it starting to pull the quick clock galls from the HM2, Olun Rawaga, wrapped on her shoulder. I'll take it from here, Jabs, he said. She stepped aside and let the big Nigerian do his job. At least, buy me dinner first, Doc, she heard Gutierrez say as Alamuraga started pulling up on a pair of blue nitrile gloves, and was pale and sweating, and breathing was erratic. Trusting the FMF for corpsman to do what he could for Gutierrez, Bradford turned to assess the situation. The Humvee had shielded most of the Marines from the blast, but not all of them. Three of them were down, Colson was definitely dead. Shrapnel to the face tended to do that to a person. McKimber and Alda were still alive and receiving first aid. That leaves me with ten marines combat ready, eight of my squad, plus two pickup PFCs, HQ Company Forbits by a look of them, and one alien foxcat. She paused, remembering that she was next to the line after Gutierrez. And I'm in charge. Frick. She turned to the Humvee. It was nearly on its roof and definitely out of commission, but maybe survivors, and definitely ammo. Stevens, Gomez, Dubois, get that Humvee open and haul out any survivors and ammo you find. Samson, get on the horn and let whoever set up this field command know that we need a medivac. She turned to the Fobbits, reading their nameplates. Clemson, Aldridge, help the dock with the wounded. She paused. Think, think, what else do we need to do? Get back to the fight. What about the artillery? Aye, yet. What's the range on those things, and how often can they fire? The Kishman looked at her, still a little shell-shocked, but quickly shook his head clear. 
nearly dislodging his earmuffs in the process. About five hundred tails with a reasonable accuracy, he said, readjusting his earmuffs. We haven't seen them shoot much in the past several hundred tails. Before blinking an unexpected unit of measurement, I suppose I can't complain too much, as well as whatever translating magic has been translating everything else. How long is a tail? Redden cocked his head to the air, his earmuffs wiggling as his ears moved inside of them. He gestured at his own tail, which he flicked in her direction. About that long. After briefly considering subjecting him to the indignity of taking a measuring stick to his tail, she decided to eyeball it. So, about a meter. She glanced at Kowalski and Edison. Ish. Ish, they agreed. Corporal, medivax inbound, Samson reported. Copy. She replied with the stepped up over the corner of the upturned Humvee and looked at the battlefield beyond. The rest of the marines had continued on the low rise of the plain and howled it there. It wasn't much of a one, but it was high ground. Four Abrams, four LRV-25s and twelve surviving Humvees were pouring fire into the elves, along with most of the battalion of marines. From what she could see between the dips and the rise, the elves were still falling back, consolidating their formations around the story and a half-tall spindly towers that had fired their heavy artillery. The vipers were still circling overhead, harassing the elves' flank, but they were producing some kind of heavy shield over those towers that seemed to be holding against the fire. As she surveyed the situation, she saw the formation of wizard types holding a rear guard with a storm of lightning spells. Small arms spell fire, she thought. They were putting up a tremendous fight, keeping an entire flank of humans in line, suppressing the barrage of fire, until they disappeared in a hailstorm of light, smoke, and dust. The irregular staccato of explosions reached her a fraction of a second later, followed by the A-10's distinctive battle cry, she looked up to see the two Air Force A-10s banking away from their gun run. When she looked back, there was a clearing smoke and dust. A formation wizards were gone. She grinned. Radford ducked back behind the Humvee just in time to meet the Stevens and Gomez, helping another Marine that she didn't recognize out. Dubois crawled out after him, looking pale. It's a mess in there, Jabs. Whatever that was punched through the belly armor and tore everyone up. He nodded at the dazed marine. Rango here only survived because he was under turret, but he banged his head pretty good on the roll. I'm all right, Rango insisted, looking a little dazed. Takes more than that to get through this thickhead. Bradford narrowed her eyes in skepticism. If he can walk in a straight line for ten paces and back, find him a weapon and ammo. Otherwise, he stays with Doc and the other wounded. Aye, Corporal, Duwar said, and led Franco away. Aye, yet, she said, waving him over. About how many tails are those tower things on Archmages, you said? The Kishman stepped over, nodding. The Archmages in their mana towers. They are the other mages' mana crystals channeling energy through the towers for them to use to generate shields and their heavy artillery, along with other spells. He swallowed. They use our prisoners as living mana crystals. They don't want to have the mages or artifices. They just suck the life force right out of a person and leave them as a withered husks. Don't get captured. Copy that. She grimaced, seeing the hollow look in his eyes. She gently placed a hand on his shoulder. 
about how far away are the towers. Rin shook himself and had to readjust his earmuffs again. Right. He leaned down in a corner of the Humvee. About 600 tails, more like 620. He ducked back behind the Humvee and waggled his wizard stick at her. Artificers have a good at estimating ranges, both for our own spells and to help guide artillery. Yeah, that's about the distance I figured, between six and seven hundred meters, Bradford nodded. How often can they fire? They haven't hit us with anything after those first three salvos. I don't know for sure, we haven't had many victories, and the few that we have had, they destroyed their towers before we could capture them. If they didn't retreat with them, he considered it a moment, we do know that they can only store so much manner at a time, and it takes time to replenish them. They should have fired again by now, though. It doesn't take them that long to recharge, not with an army like this. And the only times that I've seen them not fire the heavy artillery range is when... Tush! He snarled. Whatever the epitaph was, it didn't translate. He jumped up from behind the Humvee, pointing his with a stick in the direction of the human's battle line. His eyes glowed silver along with arcane patterns of the staff as he muttered a few words under his breath. A sharp tilt of the staff and a wave of energy pulsed out of the end of the cone. Several formations of owls suddenly shimmered into existence between the wrecked Humvee and the rest of the battalion. Ambush! Bradford shouted, little more than a hundred yards separating them from the rest of the advance force sent to bolster the Gandlin army. The owls were smack in the middle, a lot of owls, with a lot of glowing blades. Rifles shot crack out around her. Die, mother truckers! Kowalski shouted as he opened up with his saw. Bradford ejected the HEDP round, chambered in a M203. They're looking and shooting the wrong way. They won't hear or see them until it's too late. Samson, she stowed the round in a dump bag and pulled out a smoke round. Priority fire mission, hostiles ambush position on. She glanced at the color round before shoving it into the tube. Red smoke, danger, close. A flick of the sights to adjust for range. Swoop! She watched as the round arced through the air as she reloaded on reflex. It fell right into the middle of the owls, bouncing off a helmet of one of them, before bursting into a deep red column of smoke. Ha! <laughs> Take that, you fricker! She knelt down and started putting her own rounds down range, careful to keep her aim low enough to not hit the rest of the unit on the other side. She saw a dull flash of Ayat and Kowalski and the other two saw gunners as the squad laid down a continuous stream of fire with talking guns. Whatever hesitation had been caught before that trigger, the ambush the owls had wore off. She heard the distinct orders being barked, and several formations of owls started moving in their direction, while others headed for the rest of the battalion, and a hail of spellfire was hurled their way. It would never reach them. The pulses, like white tracers, raced down them and to deflect up several yards ahead of them. The angle was shallow but noticeable, and most importantly, it was enough to deflect the small shots that the owls in a few feet above their heads. Bradford glanced at a yacht. He was holding his wizard stick out before him, pointing towards the owls. He had a look of intense concentration on his face, and his eyes and the staff were glowing silver. With a shrug, she made a note to thank him later, and sent an HEDP round to downrange. Swoop! Corporal, fire mission confirmed, danger close, ETA 20 seconds. 
I am mission. Danger close. Danger close. Take cover. Bradford shouted before grabbing a yacht and pulling him down behind the Humvee with her. She hit the deck and her yacht landed on top of her with a yipped. Oof! And Bradford rolled on top of him as she had body armor with a wrap around Kevlar inserts and ballistic sappy plates. His armor was made of linen. The Cashman artificer had enough time to yip a protest. Then the world exploded. There was no distinct crackles, pops or bangs, just a continuous roar. It lasted a bare handful of seconds, but seemed to go on forever. The roar of destruction paused for a heartbeat, then resumed for another multi-second eternity. The noise ended just in time for Bradford to hear the blessed sound of angels trumpeting the sky. Eat some freedom, mother truckers! Hoorah! Kowalski, you freaking motard, I love you. Ha! <laughs> Jabs, we don't see each other anymore. Edison and I are getting married. Kowalski, go frick yourself. Every day. Bradford couldn't help but laugh as she rolled off her yacht, who had renewed his protest at being squished under the more than 200 pounds of marine and kit. Check to see if there's any still alive before they walk over and turn us into shish kebab, you freaking dumbass. Nah, they're all dead. I stayed and watched. Kowalski, you're freaking insane. Hey, at least I'm freaking somebody, he said as he sauntered over, saw casually propped over his shoulder. Speaking of which, shields, that was an awesome kick with the whole magic missile deflecting thing. But dude, you really need to buy her a dinner first. What is it with you people and buying dinner? End of chapter Retreat Hell, Episode 3, written by Lithy Dragon. Brynn looked up when she heard the thundering whirl of the viper cobras that had been flying overhead. Coming in low with a roar of a heavy gust of wind was a fatter contraption, this one with wide open bay in the middle. Less than a tail off the ground, it spun sideways to present an open door before setting down with a slight bump. A marine jumped out and started directing all the other marines as they helped the wounded onto the craft. The machine was terribly loud and threw a constant wind. Those close, Rin realized that the wind was generated by the set of great blades that spun so fast that they were a blur. He stayed right next to Bradford. When the last of their wounded when dead were loaded on, the surviving squad members stepped back and the marine who rode with the medivac and hopped back in. With a roar and a fresh gust of wind, the contraption lifted off, swung around, and then thundered off into the distance. Bradford continued to watch it go as the tall, ebony-skinned human walked over. He gonna make it, Doc. He lost a lot of blood, but I think so, Jabs. Thanks to you. She glances at him, and Rin was impressed at how much her expression could communicate without ears. His femoral artery was shredded, the doctor continued. If you hadn't put the tourniquet on as quickly as you had, he might not have made it. Yeah, but he'll still need a prosthetic. Maybe. I've seen worse amputations get reattached. We're also maybe twenty minutes' flight from three major trauma centers in the downtown San Diego. His left leg will probably be a bit shorter for the rest of his life, but they have a good chance of saving it. Thanks, Doc. Bradford said as he gave her shoulder a reassuring pat and continued on. 
Rin flicked his ears in amazed disbelief. He had seen many similar wounds, and they were often fatal. Even if the soldier survived, he would often succumb to infection. They talk as if infection were not even a concern. How can they reattach a limb that has been completely torn off? Radford gave one final nod in the direction of the disappearing medevac, and then turned to the rest of her squad. All right, Marines, let's get up the hill with the rest of the battalion. Dubois, Stevens, take point. Two, five. Retreat, hell. Move out. The Marines headed up the hill and into the loose formation. Weapons up. Run stuck to Radford's side. His own staff howled in his ready. As they moved into the kill zone, Run's staff slowly dropped his tail as his side. Where half a cohort of owls had just stood moments before was now a gruesome hellscape. The ground was pockmarked with hundreds of little craters. What was left of the owls were scattered in pieces across of them, and the grass was thick with blood of offal. Torsos were exploded, even plate armor was rent clean through and front and back. The destruction was both awesome and terrifying. I wish we had those firepower years ago, and I hope... And then we never had to face it. They found no survivors. Halfway up the hill, the owls resumed their artillery fire. Orders were shouted, and the carriages and the tanks pulled behind the peak of the rise. Marines broke out in trench tools and began digging. As Bradford and her squad jogged up to the top of the hill, Rin marveled at the ability to set such a pace while carrying so much weight. Radford had nearly squished him when she covered him for the own body. At first, he had been offended by the effort to shield him, but the walk past the obliterated ambush made it quite clear that his armor was no match for the human's weapons. Nice of your squad to join us, Corporal. Rin turned to find a marine approaching them who exuded authority. Oh crap, it's the new XO, he heard someone mutter. Sorry about that, ma'am. We ran into a flat tire. Spotting this new marine, Gomez snapped to attention and started bringing the fright arm up, but before he could get halfway up, Kowalski grabbed his wrist and yanked it down. Are we trying to get the major freaking killed? No saluting in the goddamn combat zone, you freaking jackwagon. He threw Gomez's wrist down in disgust, while the young marine's skin turned pale. Now go get me more ammo. Lucy's hungry, and double the load you carry, you goddamn freaking boot. Rin suddenly found himself glad that he had also just started to bow to his major, who was obviously a noble of some sort, but apparently also a woman. He still was reading from the woman going to war and now commanding armies, but decided that it was wiser to ignore that for now. The major ignored the dressing down as if it hadn't even happened. That's one of the hell of an understatement, Corporal. You call for that airstrike? Yes, ma'am, I did. Outstanding job, and damn, quite quick thinking. If you hadn't spotted the ambush and called in the hogs, we would be in a world of hurt right now. Thank you, ma'am, but most of the credit goes to the second artificer here. He gestured at Rin. As a second artificer, Ayat, Ayat, this is Major Winters of Battalion XO. Winters gave him a nod, and he shrugged to keep his tail from curling in discomfort. Ayat is one who realized that the owls had stopped firing their big guns, and it was his magic that neutralized whatever invisibility spell they had going. He also put up some kind of shield to protect the squad while we called the airstrike. If not for him, we'd all be dead. 
Kowalski apparently felt the need to chime in. Look what followed us home, Mom, can we keep him? Winters ignored Kowalski again. Then it sounds like the whole damn battalion owes you their lives, second artificer. Damn fine work. Rin flicked his ears down, shuffling awkwardly, and he kept his eyes low, unsure of how to respond to this kind of attention. He was also able to give us some intel to the artillery, ma'am. Bradford continued, the maximum range is about 700 meters, max effect is about 500, and they can't move fast while they're putting up the shield. That matches what we've seen, Winters nodded. Rate of fire is uncertain, but they've got some kind of mage type on them. He channels power and some combination of other mages, mana crystals or prisoners, ma'am. They use them like living batteries, Bradford scrawled. Jesus! They're just kicking the dog left and right, aren't they? Winters asked. Say that again, ma'am? Bradford asked. Literary reference, she said, waving her hand at the dismissal. Bradford seemed to understand, but Rin found the explanation to be insufficient. Noted on the ranges. She paused, looking at Rin up and down, his tail wiggling awkwardly. Second artificer, you're the only Keshman who has advanced with us up to the hill. Some of your buddies rallied with us when we joined the fight, but none of them advanced with us. That makes you the senior most member of the Gandalin army resident. Until your commanders see fit to provide me with an official replacement, you are now my local advisor. Rin's ears and tail popped up straight, and he had to adjust his Mickey Mouse to keep up from falling off. What? Bradford, you're early age on, and the rest of the squad is his escort. He's the only source of intel I have right now, and the only way that we have of spotting those bastards if they try pull the damned invisibility trick again. I don't want him tripping under a tank tread or walking into a magic ray gun blast. Aye, aye, ma'am. Walk with me, she said and turned away. Ren and Bradford exchanged a glance. Bradford shrugged at him, and they quickly followed. We don't have the numbers nor the media capability to push into the main Alvin force. We've got two, five, maybe a company's worth of tag-alongs that we've picked up along the way, and two armor platoons. We've got reinforcements on the way, but if they swarm us, we're done. There's tens of thousands of them down there. Over 40,000, Your Grace, Ren confirmed. The elves crossed the river with eight full legions. No need to your grace me, second artificer, Winters laughed. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Major, or ma'am, is fine. Yes, sir, ma'am, Rin replied. These humans are so confusing. Anyway, the big shield that they've got is holding us up, what we've been able to throw at it so far. They reached the crest of the hill, crouching low, and Winters peeked over the edge to observe the point of the enemy forces. Those shields don't move fast, though. Anything that wants to come at us quick has to come out of that shield, where we can light them the frick up. Otherwise, they're struck crawling towards us at a snail's pace. She turned back to Bradford and Rin. The plan is to hold here on this hill. It's not much, but it is a high ground. We dig in, get the hull down, and force them all to turtle up under the shield and come at us nice and slow. That's exactly what they all do, Ren said, shouting over the sound of god hammers and other heavy weapons. Any time we are able to massacre them, they form under a shield and make their dread march towards us. Excellent, that's exactly what we want of them. She gestured towards the conspicuously empty skies. A heavy shard burst struck close, and they ducked a dirt rain down upon them. 
Air support is bingo on munitions, but more is on its way. 11th Marines managed to get two battalions of M777s on the th- their high mass battalion trucked through the portal and are nearly set up at FOB Tolkien, and the Air Force has a flight of B1s from the 9th Bomber Squadron en route from Dyers. She pointed back at the rallying Alvin Legions. Once the Arties are set up, they're going to rain unholy hell down upon these bastards, and if that's not enough to crack their shield and lay them flat, the Flyboys will carpet bomb the ever living crap out of them. As if on cue, the familiar whirling thunder of the Viper Cobras roared overhead. Spitting smoke and fire, explosions and impacts rippled across the Elven shields, but they held unperturbed. Four of the Viper Cobras circled around the elves while another pair of hogs trumpeted their destructive battle cry, pouring a staccato of death into the shields. Another small shard thumped into the ground ahead of them, obscuring their vision with a tower of dirt and cloud. Let's step back from the ridge, Winters shouted as one of the tanks rolled up and thumped its gun hammer before rolling back towards the hill crest. It's a little quieter. Another god hammer thumped, spitting fire at the elven legions. Aye, ma'am, Bradford agreed. As they were turning to leave, Rin saw the spell shot pulse into the sky and slam into the tail of a viper cobra. The explosion obliterated the tail, shattering the big spinning blades and having the shard-riddled main body through the air. What remained of it immediately started spinning and thumping against the ground. The broken wreck slammed into the ground and exploded in a great fireball. Crap! Winters cursed, sprinting back to the carriage. Mayors, to all the units, we have a bird down. The elves have anti-air capabilities. Heavy artillery at maximum range and 700 meters. All aircraft maintain a minimum standoff range of 900 meters. How far away is the FOB Tolkien? Wren asked Bradford, as if they followed Winters at a slower pace. And how long will it take your artillery to get here? About 12 kilometers, Bradford replied. When Wren gave her the confused look, and she added, 12,000 meters, or about 12,000 tails, and they're not coming here. They're sitting up at F.O.B. Tolkien. Wren did the math in his head. That's six royal miles. He looked at her, nonplussed. What good is all your artillery going to be at six miles away? He stopped as his brain caught up to the implications. You have artillery that can reach six royal miles away? Kowalski laughed. You bet your ass we do. That's well inside the engagement range. Hell, we've got some weapons that can launch on one side of the planet and hit things on the other side of the planet. Bradford frowned. Let's hope we don't have to use those. That means, crap, or we have really hit the fan. But we got a nuke out of orbit, Jabs. Kowalski insisted. It's the only way to be sure. You are saying words that make no sense, Rin flicked his tail and ears in exasperation, and had to readjust his Mickey Mouses to keep them from falling off. Wait, wait, I got one, Edison said. This place has a moon, right? Rin cocked his head at them. Yes. What kind of crazy question is that? Awesome, so does ours, Edison grinned. We've been to ours. Now you're just yanking my tail. Not one bit, we send people and back several times. Rin gave the man a skeptical glance, readjusting his Mickey Mouses again as they shifted with the movement of his ears. He finally managed to snag the connecting band with his horns on the way that felt much more secure. 
though the conversation was interrupted by a sound of concentrated barrage of small spellfire pattering on the hill, followed by the marine shouting, Corpsman! Rin jumped as another god hammer thumped further down the line, followed by a steady hammering of whatever the light-wheeled tank things were. Two marines carrying a stretcher ran up to the hill. They returned a moment later, at a slower pace. The marine on the stretcher had the most of his face carved in by the shard blast. Looks like they're learning, Duvois said as another messed up barrage struck the dirt and flashed overhead, this time concentrated on another point of the marine's line. Yeah, they still can't hit for crap at this range though, Bradford pointed out. They're just massing fire and hoping to get lucky. She turned to Rune. What's their effective range? I've seen them hit an individual targets effectively outside a hundred, hundred and fifty tails, though they can volley fire against formations out to five to six hundred. They all use the same base spell structure, regardless of size, and it collapses at about seven hundred tails. Did you get all that, ma'am? Bradford asked. Rin turned around to find Winter standing behind him. It took a lot of willpower to stamp down on his instinct to bow. I did, Corporal, she said, and they all flinched as a concentrated barrage of heavy shardbursts struck the ground in front of her aprons. Several flew harmlessly overhead, but over two dozen still impacted the hill, carving out great craters of earth. The godhammer thumbed back in defiance. Looks like they've finally decided to use the long-range earth movers of theirs to try and dig away our cover, Winters noted, been wondering when they were going to get around to trying that. She smiled. Good thing the Yarties are set up. Follow me. About freaking time, brah, Stefan said. But the frick took them so long. No GPS, no satellite surveillance, not even a goddamn map. Artie's got to do this the old-fashioned way. This time, Rin and Bradford fell in behind Major Winters without hesitation, and she led them back to the ridge. There, they joined two other marines, with some boxy equipment that contained some form of artifice. All set, Sergeant. The map's blank, but we got a grid set up, ready to ranging shots, ma'am. You may commence when ready. Aye, ma'am. He picked up a device and held it to the side of his face. Logass once, this is fire back six, adjust fire, grid six three two zero one eight, over. Sergeant listened to the device. Logass once, this is fire break six, missed enemy forces under heavy cover, danger close, over. He passed on again. Romeo Fox struck Ake E in effect, one round out. Another pause. Shot out. He lowered the device from his face. First shells on the way. Rin waited for several seconds for something to happen, but he saw nothing new. He was about to say ask if he actually fired with the sergeant called. Five seconds. He looked, but saw nothing. Overshoot, called one of the spotters, and Rin looked again where the spotter was pointing, and saw the puff of smoke and the dirt rising in the distance, on the other side of the river that the elves were backing up against. Copy. Doghouse 1, this is firebreak 6. Adjust fire. Direction 2500, drop 1000, level 150. Danger close, out. Several seconds later, Ren heard the faint whistling sound overhead, and a spray of dirt and smoke was kicked into the air off the left of the elven formations. A second later, he heard the explosion. It had a much sharper crack than any artillery that he'd heard. The elves responded with another concentrated barrage. The ground beneath them shuddered as the heavy shard burst dug another crater out of the hill. 
raining dirt and rocks around the marines. Freaking pop, these guys are ready, Rin heard somebody shout. He heard the marines who was talking to his box call out more numbers and marveled at the communication tool. The manner required to power for the artifice like that should be utterly practical, he thought, but if we had artillery that could reach that far, it might be worthwhile. Another shrieking whistle, and this one was much louder, and an explosion tossed dirt into the air almost directly in front of them, less than two hundred tails away. Jesus, whose freaking side are they on? Kowalski asked. A little closer than that one, Sergeant, Winters commented. Yes, ma'am, Sergeant replied, ignoring Kowalski, and spoke into the device. Loghouse 1, this is firebreak 6, adjust fire, direction 2500, add 500, and danger close, out. Another quarter of a minute later, something slammed into the elf's shield. The Sergeant turned to Winces. We're sighted, ma'am. Very well, Sergeant. Saturation fire. Ah, frick yeah, make it rain. Hi, ma'am. Doghouse 1, this is firebreak 6, saturation fire from grid 638011 to grid 362018. Mash troops undercover, danger close, fire for effect. He paused, all batteries aki in effect, 360 rounds, DPICM in effect, 60 rounds out. Rin waited for another half a minute, and then a whistle trailed overhead, ending in an explosion on the elven shield. Then another, and another, and another! Whistles shrieked constantly overhead, and ripples of explosions began walking across the elven shield, faster than he could count. Interspersed with the barrage was that already deafening roar were heavy ex- explosions that thumped in his chest even this far away. By all the gods above and below, never before had he seen so much destruction brought to bear. The shield started to waver. <laughs> Kowalski cried. One fifty-five Mike Mikes of Mother Fricking Freedom delivered at muzzle velocity. Ma'am, Lance of Flight inbound, ETA, thirty seconds. Winter's response was drowned out by another godhammer thumping anger in the Alvin legions. Rin felt a tap on his shoulder and turned to see Bradford pointing at the sky. Six large bird-shaped things were moving through the sky, but they were much too large and moving much too fast to be birds. The first two banked on emotionless wings and flew over the Elven legions, spilling dozens of objects as they flew. The objects fell slow enough for Rin to see them, and when they finally struck the shield, a wave of explosions and fires rolled across the shield. The shield shattered, roiled, and shattered as the next two craft topped their loads overhead. A fresh wave of smoke and fire engulfed the Alban legions, throwing debris high in every direction. Rin was certain that most of that was pieces of bodies. Who, who? Look at the flyboys, actually worth something. Then no Ralphies were going in dry. Artillery shells no longer impacted the shield, slammed into the Alban ranks. A whole formations were wiped out. Three more heavy explosions burst over the owls as the last pair flew overhead. The shields are down, layered on, Winters called, waving the marines up. At a signal, all the vehicles all surged to the top of the hill and fired. Stunned by the intensity of the barrage, it took Rin a moment to realize that the number of tanks had doubled since the last time he had counted, and there were more of the lighter carriages and marines. Kowalski whooped, 
and opened fire with his saw while the rest of the marines surged to the top of the hill, dropped down whatever they could find room, and fired. Thunder, fire, and glowing trails of light poured from the marines' line. The elven ranks were completely engulfed in smoke, dust, and fire. Hey, some of them are getting away, Edison reported, pointing at several groups of owls that were sprinting across the river. What the frick? Are they walking on water? What kind of Jesus bullcrap are they pulling? Ceasefire! 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 Winters called out, barely heard over the din. The cannonade slowly tapered off to nothing, followed by the last few artillery shots shrieking across the sky to explode somewhere in the column of smoke that used to be the Eight Legions' grand army of owls. Ma'am, the flyboys have eyes on the forces that made it across the river. They're pretty scattered, and it's hard to say for sure, but it looks like maybe a quarter of the original forces made it across, along with a couple of the magic towers. The sergeant paused. Ma'am, orders from Fob Tolkien. We are to sweep and clear the river, but not to proceed beyond. Flyboys are to enforce the river as a boundary. Send Wilco, Winters said, and started passing orders through the sergeant. Rin looked at the column of smoke and dust towering above them. He did not want to go down there, but looking at the marines all around him, he didn't see that he had much of a choice. All right, marines, sweep and clear the river. Form up by squads and move as a line with the vehicles. Two five, retreat, howl. Rin trudged his way through the marine camp, trying to stay out of the way of the bustle of activity. Night had fallen, and many of the marines had found some place to sleep, but more humans were arriving all the time. The last several hours had been a battle had passed in a blur. They had walked down to the river, searching for threats and survivors. They found none. Rin shuddered, remembering the carnage and destruction that he had walked through. I didn't even look like the gala, he thought. It looked like another world. That notion brought him no comfort. Once the battle was over, the Lord Generals had been swift to relieve him of the job of Major Winter's advisor. Lord General Yangri himself had commended him by his bravery, and then quickly sent him back to the lower ranks. Returning to the camp to try and find anyone from his column or line, Rin instead found himself snatched up by several different working parties. He spent several hours working to salvage the Grandland camp, and assist the humans in setting up theirs. They're turning this place into a fortress with earthworks, Rin noted as he passed another mechanical wonder, growling and rumbling as it filled great bags with earth and rocks scooped up from the ground. At any rate, they'll have it done literally overnight. He stopped to ask for directions. The marine pointed towards a collection of tents and pavilions half away across the growing compound. At least I was able to retrieve my own staff from the armory, He's double-checked the leather strap that looped around the staff that sees clung to his shoulder. The lower buckle was worn and was prone to coming undone. And an extra mana crystal. His stomach rumbled. He had grown used to the sort of rations the last couple years of the war, but food was particularly scarce in the royal host camp tonight. Many of the soldiers who had routed had raided the food stalls as they fled. Not that the lords of the host would go hungry. Their food stockpiles were kept under heavier guard. Walking past the mound of dirt that strange spikes and fans and metal spires circling around it, Rin took stock of what he had left. One staff, half expended, one replacement mana crystal. 
he touched his cambeson and one set of armor, mostly intact, shirt and trousers, undersized boots. He grimaced. Well, they're a closer fit than the ones I was originally issued, at least. He patted his belt, one dagger, mostly empty coin purse, and one pair of Mickey Mouse's. He sighed. And apparently I'm all that's left of the third line. That does make me the line commander, he chuckled at the absurdity. Rin absently patted his cambeson, checking for another pouch, and his ears drooped as he was reminded that he left it in a crate that he used as personal chest before the battle. And that was all there was left of the column pavilion was a few scraps of muddy canvas, a broken cot, and a few shattered chests. Head down and tail but dragging on the dirt, Rin continued his lowly trudge, his thoughts drifting down dark paths. Shields! Rin poked his ears, looking up. Shields, where the frick have you been? Kowalski waved at him. Get your furry rear over here. Rin turned towards the tall marine, his spring lifting. I found him. Man, we've been looking for you all over. Kowalski said, meeting him halfway, he threw a heavy arm over Rin's shoulder and casually started dragging him towards the salvaged royal host pavilion. He carried a large box under the other arm. Shouldering the door, flap aside, he pulled Rin in after him. Hey guys, look who I found skulking around our front porch. Oh crap, it's Shields! Gomez hopped up off the cot I had been sitting on. Shields, man, where have you been? We were worried. Dubois waved him over from another cot, where he had his weapon apart in pieces with a rag, a brush, and something that smelled like oil. Rin gripped both of his ears, swinging forward. It was the first time he'd seen any of them without a helmet on. Your ears are round. Of course not. Did you think that we were some knife-eared blalfy bastards? Samson asked. Nah, we're aliens, brah, Stevens said. Aliens from another world, man. Shut the freak up, Stevens, Kowalski said, as he set the box down on the crate that was being used as a table. I'm not a goddamn alien. Everything else is a goddamn alien. What's in the box, Kowalski? Bella asked. What's in the box? Samson echoed. Chow time, Kowalski declared as he ripped a top open and started passing out ten packages. Oh man, where the frick did you get these? I thought that they were still sorting out some chow through the portal. Bradford asked, setting aside her own weapon to reach the package. Co-guns managed to rustle some up. I snagged a box wall of the squad before the rest of the company scoffed them down. Awesome, but where did the co-guns get them? Dubois asked. <laughs> First sergeant asked him the same question. Yeah, what did he say? Don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to. Kowalski tossed the package a run and gestured for an empty cart next to Bradford. Have a seat, Shields, and dig in. Rin slowly sat down on the cart and looked at the package in confusion. Yeah, let me help. Bradford laughed. She told him how to tear it open and explained what the contents were and what to do with them as he pulled them out. Looks like you lucked out. The beef ravioli is pretty decent. Rin wasn't sure whether he should be confused, amazed, or horrified at what these humans had managed to do to make the lasting real rations. Oh, frack yes, tortellini, chili mac. Hey, there's there another beef ravioli in there? Toss me one. Hey, is there a veggie burger in there? Samson asked. Yes, I got your freaking veggie burger, you sick frick, Kowalski said, chucking him a package. How the frick can you stand those? Man, I just liked them, okay? 
Whatever, more chili mac for me. Hey, real talk though, Dubois said, disassembling his package. What are we going to call the owls? What do you mean? Well, the terrorists are Terry, and we called the Russians Ivan. The communists in Vietnam were Charlie. The Germans were Jerry's. What can we call the owls? Hmm, it's got to be an E name, right? Samson said. Maybe the Russians didn't fit that rule. What about Eli? Gomez asked. Shut the frick up, Boot, Kowalski snapped. You don't get to pick names. What about Eduardo? Stevens asked. You don't get to pick names either. Just call them Keeblers, Bradford said, while showing Rin how to use the chemical heating pack in his emery. What magic is this? Everyone looked at her for a moment. And that's why Jab's in charge, Kowalski said, and they all turned back to the meal. Hey, Edison, you gonna come eat? Gomez asked. Yeah, in a minute, he said, not looking up from the device he was inspecting. What you working on? The young marine asked. The GoPro. It took some shrapnel and the Humvee got hit. What? The bastard's got a GoPro? Samson asked. Yeah, the screen's busted and so are the lights. But it turns on, I think, but I can't tell. They got the GoPro, Muller asked. Oh, we're gonna freck them up. What's so special about a GoPro? Gomez asked. That thing looks ancient. Listen here, you goddamn boot. Kowalski rounded on Gomez. That GoPro has more combat time than you have been in the service. It's been passed down through eight generations of Marines, been on twelve deployments, survived three grenades, saved four Marines, and recorded half the freaking combat footage on YouTube. You will show it some goddamn respect. Do you understand me, Private? Yes, Lance Corporal. Can you fix it? Bradford asked. Maybe. I don't know, Jabs. Edison shook his head. The memory looks intact, so it shouldn't be able to pull the footage off. At least. But I don't think the GoPro's fought its last fight. He fiddled with the buttons a little more, then reverently set the device down on the crate. Rip, GoPro. We'll bury it with full honors. I have so many questions that my questions have questions and thought as he carefully opened up the entree package but above and below the smells good he used the spoon to scoop out the steaming bite and cautiously put it in his mouth his eyes went wide his ears perked up straight this is amazing it actually tastes like something he scarfed it down with the rest as fast as he could and demolished the packaging so that he could lick the inside clean i guess our kitty was hungry kowalski laughed He's not a cat, he's a fox, Samson said. Look at the nose. Are you kidding? Look at him. He's a cat. Put him in a box and take a picture, and he'd fit every gadget as wears meme ever made. Pointy nose. But what about the horns? Dubois asked around a mouthful of food. Is he part goat? I'll part goat a spell blast up your rear, Rin snarled as he worked to tearing open another package with his teeth. Whatever in the five howls a goat was, I'm sitting right here. Hey, he's learning, Kowalski said, throwing his arms wide. There's hope for him yet. You're all goddamned insane. Well, duh, we're marines. What do you do, sit around all day eating glue? Yep. Though we do prefer crayons, Edison said, eating his emery cold. Nothing better than munching on a good crayon, Kowalski added. What's your favorite flavor, Jabs? Mine's purple. Mine's green. Me too, Samson chimed in. 
I like the blue ones, Dubois added. Eh, I don't like the blue ones, Muller shook his head. They're too tart. Ren just stared at them. We've been saved by chaos demons. I think you guys broke him, Bradford laughed. We broke him, Kowalski feigned insult. You're the one that was dragging and shoving and dropping him all over the battlefield. You're not even a day into the relationship, and you're already abusing him. Shut the frick up, Kowalski. What did you guys break up already? Kowalski shrugged. Maybe we can start seeing each other again. Samson and I broke up because I don't like power bottoms. Samson laughed. You're the one who keeps trying to win gay chicken with a guy who's actually gay, and then gets all butthurt when you lose. I'm not butthurt. You're freaking butthurt. Rin decided it was best to ignore the humans. He pulled his legs up onto the cotton hunched over the latest package that he had just opened. It was dense, brown square that smelled delicious. The humans continued their banter, with Kowalski driving the greatest heights of sexual overtones. Rin ignored them, lost in the sweet gooeyness of the brown square, until Kowalski shouted for his attention. Hey! Shields! Isn't there supposed to be camp followers? Rin tilted his head to twisted his ear in confusion. You know, civvies who follow the army around, especially the war types. Kowalski, we're not having this conversation, Bradford cut in. The last time we need to do right now is a string of Okinawa incidents. But Jabs, you're still hung up on your boyfriend, and Samson and I are too busy fighting over the kids in the divorce. Where else am I going to get some tail? Kowalski, if you really want to blow some steam, go see if any army units have shown up that you can relocate your gear from. Jabs, you're freaking brilliant. This is why you're in charge. Come on, guys, let's go. I think I saw some army trucks roading in on the other side of the camp. Kowalski jumped up, grabbing some of his gear, dragging most of the squad along with him through sheer enthusiasm. Dubois exchanged a glance with Bradford as he finished putting his weapon back together. She sighed. Go with them and make sure that they don't get too much trouble. Aye, aye, Jabs, he said, setting his weapon down and grabbing some gear. Kowalski made the rest of the squad wait outside of the Dubois had to join them. As the corporal stepped through the floor flap, Gomez spun around. Oh, crap, I forgot. Kowalski grabbed him by the collar, ranked him back, and shoved him into the walkway from the tent. You're doing without boot. Jabs and shields are getting their alone time. What? Edison asked as the posse walked away from the tent. Look, Jabs isn't the frickin' forget type, right? Kowalski explained. She's the type who wants something more serious than that. But she's too straight-laced to frick anyone in the division. And she's too career-driven to have enough time to find that outside of the corpse. He shrugged. Besides, did you see them? They're a perfect match. What, are you playing matchmaker now, Kowalski? Dubois asked. Hey, they don't call me Matt the Mad Dog matchmaker for nothing. Nobody calls you that, Miller laughed. They will, Kowalski insisted. Now come on, I'm pretty sure they were setting up patriots over this way. Rin stared through the door flap as Kowalski in the silence that descended now that he had Bradford alone. Why do you tolerate him and his insubordination? Bradford laughed. Kowalski is a complete balls-to-the-wall motard, motivated retard. He, she added when Rin looked at her in confusion. 
He's committed to the corps and a damn good marine, and he is also 100% motivated and dedicated to causing somebody trouble. With a capital T, she shrugged, if you can point him in the right direction, he'll cause all sorts of trouble, with drive everyone's motivation along with him. Letting him give me an extra dose of the same banter and bullcrap that he gives everyone else makes him think that he's causing me trouble. Gives him an outlet, and he works harder at doing everything else that I need him to do. She sighed heavily. Besides, it's mostly a defense mechanism, she shrugged at Rin's confused flip of his ears. He was always something of a frickhead, from what I've been told, but he earned two bronze stars in Afghanistan. The first was before I reported to the battalion, and he lost half of his squad in that fight. She shook her head. He never recovered. It still eats away at him, so he puts on the show, acts more of a motard jerk than he was, to cover for it. Rin nodded, thinking of the friends and comrades that he'd lost over the years. He didn't know how many his pike line were still alive, or if they even still existed. He saw the keck's lacerated corpse, remembering the sight of the vivid smell of his friend's insides that should never have been seen in the light of day. The faint sizzle as the gem blade casually dragged the blade through the friend's body. The smell of the burning hair and the scorching flesh. Ah, crap man, I'm sorry. Rin snapped out of the memory at the light touch on the shoulder. He was surprised to see a look of concern on the human's face. So different, but recognizable. She withdrew her hand. I didn't mean to bring up that. She rolled her hand in the air and struggled for words. Recent memories. It's okay, he said, flicking his ears back in an uncomfortable dismissal. It's not the first defeat that I've uh, participated in, he grimaced, remembering other friends lost and more, nor the worst. Another touch brought him to the present. This time it was a hand on top of his. These humans are so, uh, tactile. You can talk to me about it if you need to. She rolled her shoulders and shrugged. I don't know if it worked the same for your cashman, but for humans at least talking about it usually helps. I, Ren began, but faltered. I, these things weren't talked about. To talk about the loss was to accept it. To remember defeat was to relive it, to make what was lost a reality. He felt a weight press on him, his face, his limbs, some invisible force they wanted to crush him into the ground. He whined. He tried to move, but he was paralyzed with a crushing weight. I couldn't. I, his breath caught in his seizing lungs. He started the canvas, the pavilion's wall, but didn't see it. He saw the smoke over the trees, the smoldering ruins. He retched at the stench of burning fur and fresh mixed with blood and offal. My home is gone, he whispered, and keened at the admission. Radford remained silent, letting him continue on his own. We'd won. We'd beaten them back, made them into a retreat. It was a desperate maneuver and a hard fight, but the royal host had shown its strength and forced them to withdraw. He shook his head, the movement slow and stuttering. But we were too late. I grew up in a town of Leili, in the Yuntar province. It was in change of subject, but it was important and less painful. It was always something of a backwater, a minor trade stop, surrounded by farms and a lumber mill. My family are only yeomen, but my father always saved some extra coin to have me educated, 
and when I showed the talent for artificing, the kingdom paid for an additional introduction. We knew the war with the elves was coming. They had broken centuries of isolation and were expanding aggressively. He was rambling now, he knew it, but found that he couldn't stop, and he didn't care. My father passed away the year that the war was declared. He contracted tallow fever. The town physician did what he could, but there was only so much even the best medical artificers could do. Ren took a breath, remembering his father's laugh, a stern scalding, his dedication to his craft. A wagon wheel is a wagon wheel, but no matter what you do, always do it well. This pain hurt, but it was old, and it had given him purpose. With father gone, we would have struggled to get by, but the war was on. The elves had declared us animals, vermin, to be exterminated, and the host was the desperate need of artifices. He nodded, his spine straightening. They guaranteed an allowance that would keep my family fed, and so I signed up to support my family and defend my home. He looked at Bradford and was startled at how interesting her eyes seemed to be listening. They're green. Blue, grey, orange and brown, yes, but never have I seen green eyes before. She nodded at him to continue, and he did. I became an artificer in the royal host. I trained as a pikeman first. Every member of the host is a pikeman. She exhaled a short laugh through her nose. Every marine is a rifleman, she said with a smile. A similar doctrine, he said, and surprised himself returning the smile. That's when I met Keck. We had reported to the same time. We quickly became friends, and we managed to stay together in the same line for a whole war. He paused as memories of the day slammed into him, and he barely croaked out. Until today. Radford placed her hand on his again. The sensation of a smooth skin was against his fur was bizarre, and an expected comfort. He found strength to continue. I was given a staff and trained as an artificer of war. I've never been the greatest artificer in the kingdom, but I'm still a damn good one. I'm decent enough with elemental pulses and focused mana bursts. I even managed to pick up a bit of elven shard spelling, but I have a particular knack for defensive artifices. He twisted his free hand through the air and is molding a shape of what he saw in his mind. I can intuit shield geometries better than most, and I can do it while holding enchantments artifices active on the half the line, and while maintaining a decent defensive output, he nodded. I made second artificer because I'm good, he sighed, but not good enough. He stared down through the canvas again, his snout twitching with a snarl that wanted to form. Nobody could be good enough. He felt reassuring squeezed in his hand and something moving through his fur. He looked down, and Bradford was rubbing the back of his hand with her thumb. He stared at the motion as he continued. The war had been on for four years, and I had been campaigning for three. The early battles were inconclusive, both of us probing each other, testing each other, but then the Elven legions showed up in force, and they pushed us back. He took a shuddering breath. We were not so unevenly matched at first, but the Lord Generals have their notions of how battles and wars should be fought, and they did not account for all of what the elves were capable of. 
He barely noticed Bradford's grimace, his snout twitching into a snarl of his own. We lost more than we should have, still. Lost more than we should, because some high lord in his grand estate had been taught since his mother weaned him that battles are fought with particular ways, and nobody dares question it. His expression softened. He was too exhausted to stay angry. Not all of them were so bad. Lord General Kaizen Yungri, the sire of our current supreme commander, he understood. He restructured the host, changed how we engaged the elves, and we started pushing them back. A brief flare of light faded from his eyes. Then we got word of new elven offensive. We had just pushed the elves out of what used to be the city of Vashon. They had been there for months, and nothing was left. Not even ruins. He shuddered. Every place that we pushed them out of was the same. It was as if they were trying to wipe out all traces of our existence. Rin whined. Yintar was supposed to be different. They had invaded the province. It wouldn't be easy, and it was a risk. But we could save the province. Drive them out before they wiped out more of our nation. Our history from existence. He shivered, the heavy weight returning. He looked past the canvas again, and when he continued, he could barely muster more than a monotone. It was three days, forced march, but we forced them to the field of farms outside Lele. The whole of the royal host had come to save a little, insignificant backwater Lele. It was a hard fight. We were exhausted from the march, and our baggage train had lagged behind, so we were short in mana crystals, arrows, everything. But the old General Lingri was a clever bastard, and he caught them in a pincer, forced them between two risers that prevented them from using their artillery until we were right on top of them, while we rained every single arrow and bolt that we had into them. We pushed them right to the brink of the trees, and when the third pincer sprung into their flank, they had no choice but to break the withdrawal. A ragged breath was all that he could force out through the paralyzing weight, his voice ragged. I saw the smoke above the trees. I knew what it meant. We all did. Despite our exhaustion, we all double-timed the last half a mile. His eyes twitched and the vision blurred, the scent of the scorched fur and the flesh filled his snout. It was all ruins, smoldering rubble and bodies. The house I grew up in was nothing more than a pile of ash. He whimpered, unable to keep his breathing regular. Little Maya had grown so much since I'd left. His voice cracked. Her body was in pieces. Talon. He had found a sword and tried to fight, but it was cut in two and his head was gone. He was just a boy, and they cut his head off and crushed it. He keened again, rocking back and forth. I found Mama in the yard. They burned her alive. I only knew there was her because of the wedding bands on her wrist. His whole body shook and he tried to control his breathing. He wiped his hands across his face, his eyes streaming. I never found Tala. Half of the village was missing. No bodies were found. He growled. We knew what had happened to them. They destroyed my home, my family, and I couldn't stop them. His vision blurred, and he could see nothing but the mutilated bodies of his brother and younger sister, smell the blackened flesh of his mother, until a hand on his shoulder brought him back. Only this time, it wasn't just a light touch. 
Bradford had moved to the cot next to him and was wrapping her arms around him, putting him against her. He resisted at first. It was highly inappropriate and improper, but he just didn't have the energy to care. He gave in and he clung to her. His body was shuddering as he just let go. Rin didn't know how long they sat there while he expended his grief. It might have been minutes, it might have been hours. All he knew was that, when it was done, he was exhausted. With a sigh, he pulled back, and a calming catharsis settling over him. He wanted to stay that way for longer, with her rubbing his back in comfort. But he found that he had the energy to care about impropriety again. Thank you, he said. I... I don't know what to say. His ears flicked awkwardly. You don't have to say anything, she replied, wiping her own eyes. I'm a marine. We're all supposed to be tough as nails, but... uh, War as hell, and I don't know a single one of us that could have gone through that and not broken down at some point. I've seen guys kill themselves over a lot less. I almost died that day, Ren admitted. I didn't care about surviving anymore, and I would have chased after the elves until I found them, and then thrown myself at them until I had killed me. But Keck found me, stopped me, and promised we'd get them back. He heaved a sigh and now he's dead, and it's all on me. Bradford shook her head, taking his hand again. Wrong. You're not alone. You've got us. Her voice took on a hard edge. They angered a sleeping giant, and they don't have a freaking clue about the world of her that has just dropped on their heads. Today, we were just getting started. We're going to make those bastards pay for everything that they've done. Full price. In blood. And we're going to make sure that they never do it again. Even if we have to nuke them into oblivion. Hoorah! Ren snorted and flicked his ears back in a direction. Hoorah! Good. She clapped him on the shoulder. We'll make a marine out of you yet. We'll see, he said, as they shared a little chuckle. Well, she said, stepping away from him and reaching down to pull off her blouse, she held it away from her body, looking at the garment in mild disgust. It's been a long freaking day, and I'm beat. I'm going to hit the sack. Rin sat up straight, his ears and spine going parade deck rigid. He had forced himself to look elsewhere. The proportions were a little different, but with her just undershirt, it was clear that she had the same shape and anatomy as a kinchin woman. He had denied, ignored, or just tried to put off the question all day, but found himself suddenly unable to ignore it further. So, um, you're a woman. (laughs) Ha! You've just now figured this out, she asked, turning back to look at him. Yeah, I've got boobs and a vagina, what of it? She cocked her hips, accentuating the curve of her figure, and glared at him. You ogling me, fox boy. Ren stuttered and stammered, his eyes going wide as he looked at Bradford, and then immediately looked away. He felt his stomach dropping through the trousers in sheer mortification. Bradford struggled to keep the straight face, but her mouth twitched, and then she snorted, and then doubled over in laughter. I'm just freaking with you, man. Relax. Ren did no such thing, though he was relieved that he hadn't just grievously insulted her. Let me guess... She said, sitting down on a cot and grunting as she pulled one of her boots off. Kishman women don't go to war. Rin shook his head, pointedly trying not to look at her. 
though he feared his ears were giving him away. He made a mental note to amputate the mutinous bastards at a later date. Yeah, we used to be the same way, she said, putting off another boot. Then we realized it was kind of dumb idea. A waste of half the talent pool of your population. She stowed the second boot underneath her rack, next the first one, and then began putting off the socks that she wore underneath. We're still figuring out a lot of the crap, and we've only just started allowing women in combat roles in the last few years, though we've had women in the military for decades. She examined the socks with even more disgust, and hung them up somewhere else to dry out and air out. Rin found himself distracted by her clothing, from the size of her boots to the socks that she wore inside of them. Even her feet were bizarre. Hey, she said, wriggling her bare toes at him. My boobs are up here. His eyes immediately snapped up, and then up again, as his ears flicked down, in and out, in embarrassment. Oh man, she said, giggling. I'm sorry, that wasn't even fair. I'm just poking fun. Please, don't take it seriously. Wren looked at Bradford, his ears twirling front to back and back to face her again, as she tried to figure out how to even feel or respond to the whole situation. Why am I so flustered? She's not even a Kishman. She doesn't have any fur. How do you, Wren waved her and gestured around the pavilion, live with a bunch of horny, frick-ready marines in a male-dominated career? Yeah, that... Not what I was actually trying to ask, but that's fine. Well, Bradford sighed. I'd be lying if I said it was easy. It's not, but I get by mostly by not being a pushover. I give right back whatever the kind of crap they give me. Make it clear that I am not interested in them. And as for proprietary, she shrugged, there comes a point when you're just too tired to give a freck, she laughed. Besides, half the Richmond seen Kowalski's balls. Seeing each other naked isn't a big deal as people make it out to be. Rin nodded slowly, still struggling to wrap his mind around the whole affair. A lot of taken for a day, isn't it? Yeah, Rin agreed. He paused, looking around. Can I stay here tonight? The rest of my line, uh, I don't think my line exists anymore. My column pavilion is gone. All I have left is what I'm wearing. Of course, Bradford said. We were actually trying to find you earlier. I talked to First Sergeant and the company LTE. The high-ups always liked the idea of joint operations, and that shield stuff you did was pretty freaking awesome. Never mind the whole dispelling elves invisibility bullcrap. The brass is on board with a permanently embedding some artifices in our units, and we dibsied you into our squad. Rin had to stop to think for a long moment. If he stayed with the royal host, he would just be folded into another line and sent back to a meat grinder. These humans were alien and crazy, but they talked to such wonders that he'd never seen. And they were winning. That is a lot of crazy that I'd have to deal with, he thought. I hope I won't become just as crazy. Okay, he said. I'm in. Outstanding, Bradford said. Welcome to the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. Retreat hell. You keep saying that, he said. What does it mean? It's our battalion motto, Bradford said. It originated back in the First World War. And yes, we had more than one. My country, the United States of America, joined the war late. And when the Marines from 2-5 arrived in the trenches, the French officer told one of our officers that we should retreat. Our officer replied, Retreat? Hell, we just got you. 
Retreat Hall has been our motto ever since. Oh, Rin said, he snorted, rather fitting today. Yeah, I thought about that too, Bradford nodded. Any more questions? Rin stared and shake his head in negative, but stopped, his ears twisting in curiosity. One actually. Shoot, why do they call you Jabs? It's my initials, she smiled. My name is Jamie Alice Bradford, so my initials are J-A-B. She shrugged, far from the worst nickname that I could have picked up. I see, he said, falling into an awkward silence, until he was nearly bowled off of the cot when she chucked her blanket and pillow at him. Now get some shut-eye, the boys should be back soon, and tomorrow always comes far too early. Rin set the blanket and pillow down on the cot and began doffing eyes Gamberson as the Bradford turned out the lights. Tyriel opened his eyes. The moon had risen high in the sky, but with only a silver, it shed sparse light. Slowly, silently, he eased himself out of the mud and muck. Normally, he would have disparaged being covered in such filth, but tonight, it would aid his cause. Carefully, he crept away from the edges of the field and the harsh, unnatural lights these humans were casting upon it. Slipping into the wood, he turned east. He turned east. There were trees and a low ridge obstructing his view. But he could feel it. The internium thrummed in his bones. Cautiously, with a painstaking focus on stealth, he made his way to his target. The great tear in the very fabric of the two realities, rent and torn asunder, are permanently fused together. The portal. End of chapter. Retreat Hell, Chapter 4, written by Lithy Dragon. Well, that escalated quickly. Say again, sir, Barakas asked. We've been in theatre, what, a day and a half now, Michaels asked. About that long, give or take. Michaels nodded. And I've already been relieved by a four-star general. Michaels nodded at General Langston on the other side of the room. Baracus nodded. Are you actually upset about that? Not in the goddamn least. Michaels inclined his head at the young Gandlin Supreme Commander and a gaggle of lords and jockeys for positioning and influence around him. The generals can have all the fun and the political clusterfract all to themselves. Don't speak too soon, sir. The political cluster prick is heading this way. Ah, hell. Colonel, Spartan Major. Yangri greeted them. He held out a hand, and they shook it the gandlin way. Probably some political power play, Michaels thought. The speed at which your forces had constructed a fortification is nothing less than astounding, and what I can see of your world through the portal is incredible. Our marines are good at what they do, sir. Indeed, they are. Yangri flicked his ears straight up. We all saw that firsthand yesterday. He glanced across the room, filled with row upon row of metal folding chairs facing the projection screen. Perhaps when we're done here, you could give me a tour. I would love to see more of your world. Probably not, sir. My battalion is one of the few that was able to respond at full strength, and we're going to be at the front of this thing before a big push even starts. Ah, I see. Your men need you. He nodded, his ears sagging a little. Still, I'm saddened that we will no longer be working together. My army owes you and your men their lives. Just doing my job, sir, Michael replied. His proper form of address is Lord General Supreme Commander. 
All your grace, one of the Gandan generals snapped. He is not mere sir to you. Lord Nuffy, do not be disrespectful. We owe this man more than just our lives. We owe him our kingdom. Young glared at the offended general, his ears twitching flat against his skull for a moment. Sir, as a general honorific and human tongue applied to all superiors, with no class distinction, he flicked his ears back in Michael's direction with a subtle smile. Besides, I imagine his exploits would soon have him relevated to a higher status. Michael struggled not to shift awkwardly from foot to foot. Yangri wasn't wrong, but uh, I wouldn't say that I've done anything or any other marine officer wouldn't have done in my place, sir. Ah, come now, colonel. Our two militaries cannot be that different. Battle and victory bring promotion. With the campaign ahead, surely you and your men will see plenty of both. I'm just a battalion commander, sir. All of this theater-level stuff is a bit over my pay grade. Youngry chuckled. Between you and me, colonel, he said with a sly flick of his ear. I wish it was a bit above mine. Michaels crocked an eyebrow. My father did too. There is something more, um, honest about a battlefield. At the least, you know who wants to put a knife in your back. He flicked his ears again, and Michael wasn't sure if it was just a kinchman version of a wink, or it was a subtle nod in the direction of one of the Lord Generals behind him. All right, everyone, let's get started, Langstrom called out, saving Michaels from any further discussions. Duty calls, Yangri said, waving to the rows of chairs before them and handing back the Gandan's side of the room. Oh, thank God for that, Michaels muttered under his breath after the Supreme Commander left. Not too loudly, sir, I think their hearing is better than ours. Michaels snorted, but held a smart remark as he took his seat. The Ganon leadership took a front corner of the chairs, but the vast majority of them were filled by the commanding officers and senior enlisted members of over 80 different battalion-level commands. Their regimental equivalents and the command staffs of 1st Marine Division, 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing, and the 1st Marine Logistics Corps. Several Army and Air Force unit commanders were also present, along with two Navy captains. Command staff of one Marine Expeditionary Force took up half of the first row, not occupied by the Ganlin contingent. Ladies and gentlemen, Langston started, stepping in front of the dark projector. We have a lot of work to do, and not a lot of time to do it in, if we want to be able to press our current advantage. So this will be as brief and to the point as we can make it. In how many three-hour briefs about nothing I've heard of that before, Michaels thought. Langstam's reputation of one of being brusque, even for a marine, so maybe this time it would hold true. Langston gave a nod to someone at the back of the room, and the lights dimmed while the projector turned on. There were some mutterings from the Ganlin contingent. I am not going to go over what happened yesterday. Some of you were there, and the rest of you have had enough time to read the briefs. The results speak for themselves. We're still counting the bodies, but estimates are over 30,000 dead with maybe a quarter of the force surviving to retreat. In a nutshell, the Keeblers got the goddamn rears kicked. Are you crapping me? Michaels marveled at how quickly the word and phrases spread throughout the ranks. Lance Corporal Kowalski only just started throwing that term around this morning. Langstam clicked the remote, and the bird's-eye view image of the fleeing Alvin forces appeared. The Ganlin contingent muttered and whispered again. 
Aerial recon tracked the survivors for about 8 kilometers across the river, before they disappeared under the heavy forest cover. How much of that force is combat capable is uncertain, but given the number of fatal sword wounds that we found in the oven remains, many of which were self-inflicted, it seems likely that they left all their casualties behind. He clicked the remote again, and a high-altitude photo of the region surrounding the portal appeared. The Keshwin stared intently at the screen. This is where we lost contact with the surviving enemy forces. Langston continued with another click, popping the colored circle over the region of dense forest. They were heading in a northerly direction, but aerial recon showed no signs of activity, bases, or opposites in that direction or 200 kilometers. Another click and the image changed to a photo much further to the west. Recon did pick up two large base camps roughly 50 kilometers to the west, and signs of mass troop movements between there and the river. These camps appear to be lightly defended, and are far larger than required to be occupying force. Several clicks cycled through a series of zoomed-in photos, showing row upon row of tents and huts in camps occupied by tiny numbers of soldiers. We expected these were staging areas, either for the legions that were there originally campaigning in this region, the legions that were moved to bolster their attack on the royal host, or both. Clicking again left the screen dark. Either way, these are our targets. It is uncertain how quickly the surviving forces can move, but by all accounts from our new allies, he nodded to the Ganlan corner, they are primarily restricted to normal marching speeds and their armies typically only travel 20 kilometers a day. Even if they turned straight for their base camp as soon as we lost him in the forest, the double timed it back, they'd still have another day to normal travel to go. Worst case scenario, 8 hours. The combat engineers won't have bridges across the river capable of handling our vehicles until this evening, but we can do an airlift to put our boots on the ground in those camps with less than 30 minutes flight time. Several murmurs from the Ganon continued were joined by a few whispers from the U.S. commanders. We're going to send battalion of marines to those camps, take them, capture any intel, equipment, and prisoners we can, and then the Air Force is going to bomb their flat anything that we can't carry. I want unit recommendations on my desk in 30 minutes after we're done here, with wheels up and marines on board no more than two hours after that. Several more murmurs followed, mostly from the U.S. side. Get a place out in a ping us, sir, Barakas whispered. I am not taking that bet, Sergeant, Michaels whispered back. That's the immediate objective. Moving forward to a more long-term objectives, he clicked another slide up, this one showing the recon photo of both Tolkien as well as the main operating base and the new forward operating base Williams alongside the Gandon camp. MOB Tolkien was rapidly expanding to cover the entire kilometer and change width of the portal, and the FOB Williams already had a notable earthworks. Right now, our situation is something of a clusterfreck. Ganon forces are recovering from their defeat, and between casualties and half their troops still being scattered to the wind, their combat effectiveness is about 50%, with maybe 20,000 troops capable of combat. To be completely frank, our situation isn't much better. We have roughly four battalions worth of marines from eight actual infantry battalions and three different regiments, an assortment of army reserve and national guard companies, elements of three armored battalions, and most of the artillery regiment. 
2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, is the only infantry battalion that actually has their entire command in theatre right now. And that's only because they were staging a pre-deployment exercise. Langston shook his head. I know it doesn't feel like it, but this is only the fourth day since the portal opened, and we've only been at war for barely 36 hours. You all did well in that initial scramble, but we can't fight a war like that. He laughed, putting his hands on his hips. You'd think that a portal less than half a mile from the I-15 would be a supply officer's wet dream. It's probably the shortest supply line in history, and the Marines in country can have dominoes delivered straight to the stateside perimeter. He got a few chuckles from the various unit commanders, but it's also a goddamn nightmare. We have too much of the things we don't need, and the things we can't do anything without. Like replacement ordnance for all the artillery we sent down range yesterday, are bogged down in rush hour traffic. He shook his head, waving his hand before him to establish a hard line. Before we can do anything more than lightning raids, we have to get our supply issues sorted, get the Grannon army back in the feet, and get our forces consolidated and ready to advance. That's phase one. He clicked the slide, and the aerial photo was augmented by lines along the river around the FOB Williams and MOB Tolkien. And the portal. We established a solid defense line at the river, much like the royal host was doing before we showed up. Expand MOB Tolkien with a proper airstrip, set up fire support bases around FOB Williams and along the river, and get the rest of the Marine One Expeditionary Force in theater. This declaration was accompanied by several grumbles and yips from the Grandlin contingent. Is there a problem, Lord General? Langston asked Yangri. Michaels was 100% certain that the use of Lord General instead of Supreme Commander was deliberate. While we are grateful for your assistance and support, and we would certainly be doomed without you, he said, glaring at some of the other generals, the Marine acting as the interpreter repeated his words for the benefit of everyone who wasn't in range of the translation spell. Some of our lords have expressed concerns over the uh, damage to their estates that have been caused by your construction. Langston's expression darkened, but Yangri held up hand before he could speak. Their concern is moot, he continued, speaking more to his own generals than to the marine general, because all of their estates, the entire kingdom, was already considered lost. That's why we created the portal in the first place. You created the portal? asked Brigadier General Harley, a commander of the 1st Marine Regiment, as a ripple of shock rolled through the room as a revelation. Yes, we created the portal, Yangri nodded. He flicked his ears back in a pained expression. We knew the kingdom was lost. Hard as we fought on, defeat was inevitable. And defeat meant extermination. Facing that, we took a desperate action. He shrugged. We had theories about creating portals to another world, and recent discoveries had suggested that they were more than theories. With alternatives being extinction, we threw half of what was left of our treasury at it, with the hopes of making a path to a new world, free of elves, where at least some of us could survive. You made a Hail Mary pass, someone said. I don't know what that means, Yagri replied, but if that is what I suspect, then yes, it was a long shot, but we had no other hope of survival. We took a chance at finding a new world. Instead, we met you. And now you hope to save your homes, Langstone said. I can respect that. 
We will try to minimize our impact on the territory, but the war comes first. It won't do a damn bit of good if we save your homes but manage to lose the war in the process. What if the Keeblers followed you through? One of the 7th Marine Regiment staff members asked. We had planned to shut the portal down behind us. You can shut the portal down? Yes, we retain control over the portal, Angry nodded. Closing it would not be an easy thing to do, and to be honest, from what I understand, being able to close it again is just as theoretically as opening it in the first place. From what you've been told, General Harley asked again. I am not an artificer myself, Angry waved a dismissive hand. I leave the specific details to them. How energetic of an event would that be? Langston asked. From what I'm told, about as energetic as opening the portal in the first place. Whispers roiled through the room as a new revelation discussed. Freeway pile-ups caused by rubberneckers produced more overall damage than the portal did, sir, Baracus muttered. So did the perimeter we cleared, Michaels added. The eminent domain lawsuits from all of that will be raging for decades. Suffice to say, Yangri added quickly, we have ever interest in maintaining it open now, and should we win the war, some have already expressed a hope at the possibility of trade through the portal. A discussion for another time, Langston noted. Either way, it doesn't change where we're at now. we still got a war to win. Moving on. He clicked the slide again, bringing up a scanned map of the Kingdom of Ganon and surrounding territories. Overlaid in a few places were high-altitude photos sized to scale. Phase 2, while we're all working on getting this crap under sock, we'll focus on scouting and recon, identify enemy troop dispositions and deployments, potential targets, and while Grandland's infrastructure is still intact. We'll keep the enemy on their heels and airstrikes and lightning raids with air-lifted infantry and hardware. Another click of the slide and the screen was replaced with an advanced arc on the other side of the river and deep prongs jutting far past the main line. Phase 3 Once we've got all of our crap in a sock, we're going to surge on the offensive. It'll be a two-pronged affair. The main line of Allied-controlled territory will be pushed by the Grandland Royal Host, bolstered by the U.S. Army and Reserve Units. The Royal Hosts got the manpower in country to control and a lot of territory. They're not mechanized, so the rate of advance will be slow. But for maintaining control of the territory, that's fine. The next slide shifted to focus on the prongs. The second prong of the offensive will be the deep strikes behind enemy lines, using mechanized and aerial assaults. We'll deploy forces deep past the main line of advance, where they will set up FOBs, and corridors of advance that can be used to encircle any Alvin forces and reply advanced lines main line. This will also serve as a purpose of building strings of FOBs to facilitate and secure lines of supply, and provide fortified points to fall back to should the Keeblers surge back with something unexpected. All operations will be supported by heavy air cover. A click of the screen and the prongs and a line were replaced with a star and a portal and a deep cone of blue radiating out from it, and with the granulum border outlined in blue. The primary objective of this operation is to establish a substantial depth of field protection between the Elven and Allied lines and the portal. Secondary objectives are to identify Elven strongholds, lines of supply, tactical and strategic assets, and neutralize them. Ultimately, the goal is to push the Keeblers out of the Kingdom of Grandland entirely. 
After that operation is complete, we take the fight to the Keebler home front and keep on pushing until the bastards give up. Or there's none of them left. The screen went dark with another click of the remote. That's our grand strategy. Operation Bulldog, the specific details are going to be up before your unit commanders. You all know your jobs and I'm not going to do them for you. I do want no bullcrap reports from each of you by the end of the day on what your units need to be ready for phase 3, what you don't have and what you expect to get. He turned to Granlin contingent, his tone less commanding. Lord General, if you can get me a list of what your troops need, be it food, medical supplies, boots for their feet, whatever it is, I'll do my best to ensure that we get whatever materials you need to get the Royal Host combat ready again. In return, I'm going to need maps and whatever intel on the elves, their tactics, capabilities, and dispositions that you might have. Yangri gave Langston a small but gracious bow. I will ensure that you have the report by sundown, General. Some of the companions yipped and tittered the grumbles, but a flick of an ear and all his tail silenced them. Outstanding! Langstrom gave a firm nod. Now, he continued stepping away from the projector, I give the floor to Lieutenant Commander Rice and the Officer of Naval Intelligence. Commander Rice will brief you on the current known capabilities and potential threats demonstrated by the Elven forces. Commander Rice, the floor is yours. Passing her the remote, Langston took a seat. Thank you, sir, said a short woman with an auburn hair and a deep brown eyes as she rose from her own seat. Mutters rippled through the Gandan contingent as she stepped in front of the darkened projector. Ladies and gentlemen, before I begin, I must emphasize how important it is not to underestimate our new enemy. Though their primary weapons and tactics were rendered obsolete centuries ago in our world, they have employed weapon systems and technologies that, if not on par with our own, give them at least a near peer capabilities in several areas. They have also demonstrated technologies and capabilities for which we have no equivalent, and possibly no direct counter. Most importantly, they have demonstrated the ability to adapt their tactics under fire, and they no doubt will adapt in attempt to compete with our own technological capabilities. It is an estimation of myself and my colleagues that we hold a distinct and decisive technological advantage now, but we also cannot rely on retaining that advantage. She clicked the remote, and an aerial photo of the previous day's battle was displayed, showing the album cohorts and the legions in the regiment ranks. The primary infantry weapons employed by the enemy are three types. The primary ranged weapons are called mage staffs. Wielded by mages, these staffs are capable of projecting a variety of concentrated energy blasts with varying effects. Michaels took notes as he listened. While the commander Rice's presentation was detailed and cogent, as he could have hoped under the circumstances, it was also incredibly dry. Having attended many similar intelligence briefings, Michaels was able to maintain at least an appearance of an alert interest, but he noticed several of the Kishman lords struggling to stay awake. A few had even completely nodded off. Rice seemed to be well aware of how dry her presentation could be, however, and she moved on to talk about the Alvin artillery. The first slide was a video from Cobra's gun camera, complete with an audio. The video started with the staccato rattle of the Cobra's chin gun, startling the Granlin contingent awake. Somebody took the time to set up subwoofers just for this, Michaels thought, chuckling to himself. 
Good hits, good hits, one of the pilots said as the burst gunfire exploded across the Alvin formation. Switching to rockets, let's set up for a pass, said the other pilot. Copy, same target, that format. Holy crap, did you see that? A flash of light was thrown at the towering column of dirt and debris high into the air. Yeah, I saw it. Big dog, this is Yankee 1-3. Hostiles have artillery. Several more flashes threw more columns of dirt into the air. One struck an Abrams, knocking armor off its glasses. And the two took out Humvees. The videos froze. Produced by the same towers that provided them with the heavier shields produced by a heavy explosion and smaller, fragmenting shards of energy upon impact. They are more than sufficient to neutralize up-armored Humvees and Alevis, but not sufficient to penetrate the frontal armor of an Abrams. The energy released appears to be roughly equivalent to 5 to 10 kilograms of TNT, but it's not quite the same. Alvin artillery produces a much lower velocity explosion, somewhere in the order of 1,500 to 2,000 meters per second, while TNT detonates at nearly 7,000 meters per second. The next slide featured an image of a heavy shard blast explosion next to a familiar detonation of a 155mm HE round. The HE round produced a column of smoke and dust, while the shard blast lifted much more clumps and clods of dirt. The shard blast has a much lower lethal radius from detonation than compared to artillery shell, but the shards produced appeared to dissipate at 60 to 70 meters and have significant penetrability of their own. She clicked the remote again and brought up another aerial photo of the battle, this one from a higher and further away. The photo had several craters circled, their primary limitations of being direct line of sight weapons and their range. Maximum effective range is about 500 to 550 meters, while maximum range caps at 700 to 750 meters, where the energy blast dissipates into nothing. She clicked the slide again, blacking out the screen. Close-range engagements against the elves' artillery puts them at near-peer levels of capabilities, but longer-range engagements have left them unable to respond. How long this will remain the case is unknown, but for now, every effort should be made to neutralize Alvin artillery at long range, before closing to a more conventional engagement ranges. No crap, Michaels thought. He wanted to roll his eyes, but sometimes people need the obvious pointed out to them, Rather, it'd be here in a brief than on the battlefield at muzzle velocity. Rice wrapped up her briefing by highlighting the elves' adaptation to existing weapon systems in the midst of a battle to remind the officers and senior enlisted before her to not take advantage for granted, and to be wary of Alvin efforts to adapt, in addition to the existing out-of-context problems like straight-up invisibility. Thank you, Commander, Langston said as he took her seat. All right, everyone, you have your marching orders. You all know your jobs. I want readiness reports on my desk by the end of the day and unit recommendations for the first strike in the next half an hour. Let's get a job done. Dismissed. Any word on the Kishman capabilities? Asked Lieutenant Colonel Mayhew, the CO of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. They're supposed to be setting up a tech demo for us tomorrow afternoon, Michaels replied but they haven't been clear on what they'll be demonstrating. They probably are as wary as us as we of them, Barakas said. Can't say that I blame them. Well, we are going to need them to pull their weight, if the Yells prove to be a bigger problem than they were yesterday. The Colonel Anders, the CEO of the 5th Marines. 
Russia and China are already chomping at the bit over the portal and demanding access. If things heat up over this on the home front, we might have to pull out and leave Gandlin to do all the heavy lifting. Let's hope we can avoid that particular clusterfreck, Michaels grumbled. Yeah, Anders agreed. In the meantime, Henry, you have more immediate concerns. The strike on the elven base camps. Yep, U-5 is the only battalion strength unit that we have in the field right now. I don't really have anyone else to send. Plus, your boys are amongst the few who have recent combat experience against these bastards. I know, Michael sighed. Rally your men, you got two hours. Semper Fi. Anders patted Michael on the shoulder before walking off with Mayhew, discussing what he needed to finish moving this battalion in theater. Well, Sergeant Major, you heard the man. Retreat hell, sir, Barakas said as a way of confirmation. End of chapter. Retreat Hell, Chapter 5, written by Lithy Dragon. It was early. Radford lay on her back, wishing she could go back to sleep, and knowing that she wouldn't be able to. It wasn't the sound of orders, shouts, or banter that could be heard around the camp that was keeping her up, nor was it the sound of vehicles, construction, or aircraft rumbling overhead. She had grown up on military bases. These were familiar sounds to her. Neither was it the cot that she slept in. Somebody in the supply chain had thought ahead and all the troops that would be moving in and around the portal. Thousands of them, along with blankets and pillows, had been shipped in the stateside perimeter, and in the chaos of the initial surge, they had been given a higher priority than some of the trucks carrying MREs and other rations. She had slept on far worse camping with family. Radford sighed, relenting to the inevitable. Wiping the gunk out of her eyes, she pushed herself up to sit in her rack. The simple fact was that she was always, always, always had trouble staying asleep in a new places. Humvee on the move? Fine. Middle of nowhere? Fine. Rock for a pillow? Fine. Comfy rack in a new place? Not fine. She slept soundly enough, but if she slept anywhere unfamiliar, something in the back of her brain forced her to unrelenting wakefulness as soon as the sun was up regardless of how late she actually went to sleep, and regardless of the time zone, regardless of the planet too, apparently. Twisting in her right, she grabbed the edge of her cart and pulled, twisting and popping the kinks out of her back. With pained but satisfied sigh, she released the cart and twisted to stretch the opposite direction. Doing so brought Rin into view, and she noticed that the Kishman was also awake, lying on his cart. She grabbed a far end of the cart with her left hand and pulled again, eliciting another painfully satisfying series of pops and a sigh of pained ecstasy of those who were too young to be too old for this crap. She also noticed that Rin was very pointedly turned to not look at her while she stretched, sending a million yard not looking, not looking stare straight through the canvas ahead. Releasing the cot again, she allowed herself a brief smile at his bashful modesty. It was refreshing compared to what she was used to dealing with, and utterly adorable. Especially when you added his ears. Those tufts made him look like a long-nosed lynx or a caracal. They're so fuzzy. I want to... to... Nope, nope, no, 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 not thinking about it. Totally unprofessional. Not appropriate. Troubled sleeping too, she asked instead. Yeah, Rin said, pushing himself to sit up as well. 
His ears flicked as a halo rumbled over near distance. Strange noises, he added. The nose twitched. Strange smells. Are you saying that we stink, fox boy? Bradford couldn't pass up the opportunity for a jab. There was a reason why her initials had become her nickname. Yes, no, I, I mean, um... His ears flicked hard back against his skull, eyes going wide. Relax, she said, waving her hand to calm him down. I'm just poking fun. Besides, she waved a hand at her undershirt. We've all been sweating inside the same clothes and body armor for the last day and a half without even a field shower. War stinks, literally. Yeah, Rin snorted as Branford threw her blanket off and swung her feet over the rack, twisting and stretching a little more to work out the lost kinks. I don't even remember the last time I felt clean. Speaking of getting clean, Bradford pulled her pack out from under her cot and dug into a pack of baby wipes. Here, try one of these, she said, pulling a wipe out and tossing the pack at him. He caught the pack after it bounced off his chest. What are these? he asked, giving them the same confused head tilt trademarked by the pit bull that she had as a kid. They're called baby wipes, she said, demonstrating their use by wiping her hands, then reaching up her sleeves and wiping her armpits. They were originally invented to clean babies, hence the name, but they were great for cleaning adults too. We use them for field showers. Eyeing the pack of wipes, Rin pulled off the blanket and swung his feet to the ground. Tugging a wipe free, he gave a sniff. With a wiggle of his ears and a shrug of his shoulders, he reached under his tunic and began cleaning himself. They're not perfect, but they help. Bradford continued, moving down to her feet to clean the grime of the cheese from between her toes. She would normally use a second wipe to clean under her breasts and between her legs, and didn't really give much of a frick about doing that in front of the rest of her squad. But that might be a bit too much for a little Kishman's sense of modesty today. That was when she noticed his feet. Dude, she said, pointing at the blisters and the patches of fur that had rubbed completely away. How do you walk? What? He said, looking down at his feet as he self-consciously pulled them away from her. Oh, he shrugged. The last pair of boots I could get didn't fit me well. The ones I have now fit me better. Radford looked at the boots in question. Bro, she said, giving the boots a firm knife hand. What are those? Standard pattern boots, Rin said as Bradford picked one up and inspected it. She could feel the sarcasm. The boots I was issued when I joined the royal host were good quality, but they're, um, not made as well as they used to. His ears dropped flat and waggled back forward and back a couple times before rolling back. She picked up the other one and compared the two. They don't even match. I know, Rin said there. I got them from, uh, someone who didn't need them anymore. I don't think they were originally a pair. Bradford glared at the offending footwear for a moment, dropping them back to the deck. Let me see your feet. What? Hold up your foot, let me see. Okay. Run said, slowly lifting his foot up for her to inspect, one ear twitching towards her while he held her straight out to the side. Bradford shifted into a cot to sit directly opposite him and held out her own foot size. She pressed the two together, comparing the shape. He had pads on the heel and balls on his feet, and the short claw-like nails that reminded her of a dog's foot though they were trimmed short, minus the pads and blisters and patches of bare skin. His foot was covered in the same ebony fur as the rest of his body. Meh, seems close enough, she said. Playing footsies, jabs. 
Radford and Rin both jumped, dropping their feet. Neither of them had noticed him approach. Shut the frack up, Kowalski. Hey, I'm not judging, Kowalski said, holding up his hands. Foot fetishes are pretty tame compared to some of the crap that I've played around with. What do you want, Kowalski? Just letting you know that I'm taking Goma and Stephens to collect the, um, um, equipment that we reallocated last night. We stuck them in some boxes and I had one of the guys in Foxtrot who owes me a favor launder them through the FOB overnight to avoid suspicion. Kowalski, you know how CO's guns often tells for a sergeant to not ask questions he doesn't want to know the answer to? Yeah, Kowalski said with a fond smile. That was the kind of answer I didn't want to know. Ah, right, Kowalski said. Well, anyway, I'm taking Goma and Scubba, Steve, to go dig in a latrine for me to scrap in. Very well. Radford sighed as the lanky marine spun around and marched off, scrubbing an eyeball with her hand. Goma, Scubba, Steve, grab your shovels. I need to take my morning crap. Moving right along, she shook her head. Let's get dressed and get some chow. Then I'll take you to the platoon LT to meet Staff Sergeant Rickles and see if we can get you some pair of gear from supply. An hour later, they were walking out of the chow hall, and Bradford had re-slinging her rifle over her shoulder. Normally, the whole squad would have eaten together, but the rapidly expanding FOB was such chaos of activity that the cooks were constantly running a chow line for anyone coming through for food. Not that they were actually cooking anything yet. I've never seen anyone enjoy an MRE as much as you have, Bradford said, shaking her head at Rin. How can you not? he asked back. They have so much flavor. Compared to what? Old leather and hardtack. That sounds like standard fuel rations to me, except we're lucky to have old leather. Jesus, no wonder you guys are losing. Bradford held up a hand to stop Rin from walking into the street as a Humvee drove past, following up by a traco and a light dozer. Rin stared at all of them as they passed, his ears erect and pacing straight ahead. Didn't anyone teach you generals that an army marches on its stomach? Ha! Rin said, flattening his ears. That's a true statement. He shrugged as they continued. Food was never good, but it used to be better. The last couple years, though, he shook his head. Bradford was saved from coming up with a response by the arrival of the company headquarters tent, if by tent you mean a pair of Humvees backed into each other with a camo netting strung between them. Bromley said to Lieutenant was in here, Bradford said to Rin, appraising the arrangement with a shrug of his ears. She led the way around the front of the Humvee to the entrance side of the makeshift tent. Ah, Bradford, there you are. Sir, Bradford said, stepping under the netting, Rin at her heels. This is second artificer Rin Ayat. The Granlin soldier that I was telling you about, she gestured at the lieutenant, sitting behind the folding table. Second artificer, this is our platoon leader, First Lieutenant Mayers. Sir, Rin said, snapping at attention and giving the lieutenant a crisp bow. As you were, second artificer, we're still in a combat zone, saluting or bowing is not required. Mayers was short for a marine, barely five foot seven. He was shorter than Rin, who was about five foot eight, if you didn't count his ears. At five, nine and a quarter, Bradford practically felt like a giant next to him while he was seated. As you say, sir, Rin acknowledged, relaxing his stance. But if I may ask, why is that a practice amongst marines? Snipers, Mayers replied. Rin tilted his head his ears flicking in what Bradford recognized as the I'm confused but not sure if I can ask waggle, 
Snipers are an infantry with a high-powered rifles and optics that can hit precise targets hundreds or thousands of meters away, she said, providing an additional explanation. Saluting officers paints them as a command targets to snipers who might be concealed in the area. That's why it's standard practice in modern Earth militaries to not salute in a combat zone. Same with rank tabs on helmets, she said, tapping her boonie. The Keeblers didn't demonstrate any capabilities that could compare, Mayer smiled, but I'd rather not be painted as a target in the off chance that they do. Ah, Rin said, his ears pricking back for a moment. I see. Those things are expressive. I bet money that he doesn't know how to feel about snipers being a thing, but I really need to figure out how to read his ears. Rin's ears flicked towards Bradford and then faced Mayer's. A sharp change of subject, sir, but uh, again, if I may ask, what is the significance of your rank compared to the Corporal Bradford's? His ears flicked to face down behind him. I mean, I gather that you're an officer and she is not, and that the difference is akin to the difference between a common's armsman and a lord commander and a lord general's, but it is clearly not the same. The original historical distinction between an officer and an enlisted was pretty much the same in our world as it is on yours, Mayer said, with the enlisted ranks being comprised of common peasants and yeomen, and the officers being composed of landed nobility. Mayer shook his head. But that is not the case anymore. Most modern nations in our world don't even have hereditary nobility anymore, and most that do are strictly ceremonial. The United States of America was founded nearly two and a half centuries ago when the original 13 British colonies in America declared our independence and revolted against the King George, Radford added. You don't have any lords or nobility at all, no king. Not a one, and good riddance, Radford confirmed with a nod. The practice of distinguishing officers from enlisted carried over from the older military traditions, Mayers continued, but instead of lineage or nobility, the distinction was set on education. Modern officers have had their bachelor's degree, either in graduating one of our military academies or earning the degree at another university and going through officer candidate school, or OCS. Mayers waved at Bramford. Education requirements are regular enlisted or minimal. You think you're cool because you can read, sir? Bradford glared at the lieutenant. Wren looked at her, his ears drooping in dismay. You can't read. I'm a marine, Bradford threw her chest back in pride. I eat crayons and drink glue. Don't let her fool you, second artificer, Mayers laughed. Bradford here is using her tuition assistance to get the degree in aerospace engineering. Don't you go starting any dirty rumors, sir. You see San Diego, right? Yes, sir. How far are you into your degree? About halfway, sir. What is, um, aerospace? Bradford laughed. That is, um, something that I'll explain later. Probably a good idea, Mayers chuckled. Anyway, did you discuss your proposal with Second Artificer? I did, sir. That is on board. One hundred percent. What about your chain of command, Second Artificer? What do you have to say about this? I don't have a chain of command anymore, sir. Ren kept his back rigid and his ears drooped. So far as I can tell, everyone else in my entire line has been wiped out. I see, Mayer said. Well then, he glanced around the table and picked up a folder. I have here a message authorizing the embeddedment of Ganlin artifices into my platoon, and another message relaying the authorization of the Ganlin Supreme Commander himself.
I don't think you have anyone higher than that who can override him. None but the king, sir. Very well. Welcome to First Platoon Echo Company. Mayers flipped the folder open and jotted down a few handwritten notes before signing a piece of paper. You are officially embedded in Bradford's squad and fall under her command. He flipped through the few pages in the folder, pulled out another sheet and signed it before handing it out to Bradford. He has the authorization to get him gear issued from supply. He glanced at Rin up and down. The mad scramble for the last few days had seen a lot of stuff shipped out that we really didn't need right away. But that the second artificer here can use. See that you get him properly equipped and get him into a uniform. Aye, sir. Speaking of uniform, Sergeant, Bayer said, picking up another folder off his shared makeshift desk. You're out of uniform. Say again, sir. What does he mean I'm out of a... What? You made the cut this month, he said, handing her an embossed folder. It's a little late, actually. It would have been awarded two days ago, but, um, well... He waved around them. Congratulations. Rin's ears perked up, but he stayed quiet. Uh, thank you, sir. Bradford opened up the folder to reveal a certificate of promotion, dated for the 12th of June. You've been eligible for sergeant for, what, at least two quarters? Yes, sir, Bradford said, glancing over the certificate, running the time-honored words through her mind. How long have you been in now, sergeant? I, um... She glanced at her watch out of habit, not actually reading the date. Three years and four months on the first, sir. Not bad, sergeant. Keep up the good work, he said, offering her a hand, and she shook it. Thank you, sir. That'll do for the ceremony, he said, handing her a small stack of folders. Same with these. Sir, promotions for the rest of your squad, sergeant. You're not the only one who made the cut this month. Understand, sir. Then there, your squad sergeant, the docks at the UC San Diego were able to save his leg. Gutierrez is going to be convalescent for a long while. That leaves you. The good news is that you're getting Kimber back. Doc stitched him up. Said he's good to go so long as he's careful about the stitches on his arm. Well, there was his left arm, and that was it. He should be fine. Right, Maya chuckled. Bad news, sir. There is always bad news. Davies is back from the convalescence, Mayor deadpanned. Freck, she grimaced. Are you sure that you can't dump him on another squad, sir? No can do, Sergeant. There's a war on. We need every Marine that we can get, and your squad's taken three losses as it is. I know you don't want to have to deal with him, but he's your problem now. Maybe you can figure something out with the Gutierrez, couldn't? Aye, sir, Radford said with a heavy sigh. Is there anything else, sir? Just see the correct your uniform while you're at supply. Will do, sir. Very well. Sorry to rain in your parade, sergeant. Dismissed. Hi, sir. Bradford braced in attention and turned to depart, nodding her headed run to follow. Outside the tent, Bradford turned left and started marching down the street. Come on, supplies this way. Congratulations, Run said, struggling to keep up without breaking into a jog. Yeah, thanks, Bradford said, glancing down at the first folder in the stack that she was carrying. Who is this Davies? Ren frowned, Rose right ear swiveling on alert, but his left ear was locked solid with her. Why does him coming back make you so angry? I'm not angry, Bradford growled. Ren flicked a tail against her elbow. You humans can be hard to read, but you're not that hard to read. Frick, is it that obvious? Yes, 
Radford sighed. Davies is a blue falcon. Rin gave her his, you're using words I don't understand, sighed I. It's a code word for buddy frecker. He's a holier than thou prick who thinks the crap doesn't stink. He'll undercut and double-cross you, snitch on anyone he catches breaking regs. He thinks he can get away with bending the rules, and he spends more time broke prick than any actually being useful. Bradford found herself knife-handling in the air in front of her, and decided she needed to rein in a little. We also go way back. We went to infantry school together, reported on the same day, and have been assigned together ever since. He's been a prick for as long as I've known him, but he thinks we've got some kind of special friendship because we've known each other for so long. She checked her rising knife hand and clenched her fist instead. The lazy bastard even managed to make Corporal the same month I did. But now you outrank him. Run raised his eyebrows at her, the tips of his ears flicking in towards each other. Yeah, now I'm his sergeant, and I own his rear, she growled, and he'll probably try to frick me over somehow. Because of that, she glanced at Run. I'm not sure how he'll take to you, but watch out for him. He'll come at you with smiles and friendship, buddy-buddy-like, but it's all for show. There isn't anyone who's known him more than a couple weeks who hasn't been fricked over by him. I'll keep that in mind, Rin said, rolling his ears. On a happier note, we're here. She gave him an ironic smile. Let's go shopping. She flipped open the door flap of a long beige tent and led the way inside. Morning, Jackson, she said as the corporal standing at the folding table inside the door, sorting through what looked like stacks of receipt forms. Crates, boxes, and bags were stacked on top of each other, and all temporary shelving in several neat rows through the tent. On the far end, a section of the wall had been rolled up, and the marines had formed a daisy chain, offloading more crates and boxes from the back of the truck. Morning, Jabs, he said without looking up. What can I do for you? He absently scratched at his moustache with one hand as he sorted the papers into neat stacks. Got a sign slip from the LT. Need to outfit an embedded foreign asset. She handed him the sheet of paper and Mayers had signed earlier. What, did the Brits send some intel weenie or something? Oh, crap, he said, finally looking up and seeing Rin as he took the paper. Corporal Jackson, this is second artificer, Ayat. Ayat, this is Corporal Jackson, one of the H&S Company pogs. What's a pog? Rin asked as Jackson rolled his eyes. Person other than Grunt, Bradford explained with a smile. He sits back here, shuffling papers and counting beans, while the infantry traps actually go to war. Ah, Rin said with a nod. We have those too. Yeah, and if it weren't for our supply types, you'd be out here fighting naked, chucking rocks. He absently waved away her insult as he skimmed over the paper. Jabs, do you know how many stars have signed this piece of paper? Not a clue. You'd have to take up both of your boots to count that high. He shook his head, stepping over to a copy machine set into the stack of crates. Freck you, Bradford laughed. Our supply situation's all freckered up right now, he said as he ran off a copy of the paper. Rin's ears flipped straight up, focusing on the copier. The sheet of paper hit spat out. Jackson performed some secret supply ritual of signatures and stamps and handed Bradford back the original. We've got a thousand things we don't need, and half the things we do, and half of those things are still at the main supply depot at Tolkien. God, it's hard to take that name seriously, he muttered, shaking his head. 
Captain Holbrook's actually back at Tolkien right now, trying to find the heads to bank together to get this mint sorted. And in the meantime, they keep sending us random crap as it comes through the portal. He waved at the truck being offloaded at the other end of the tent. But, he continued, we've got plenty of the stuff you're looking for. He shook his head. We're about to go down to one meal per day because they're not sending enough food to feed the bodies and pouring in here. But we've got plenty of combat uniforms, boots, plate carriers, rucksacks, and other basic kit that everyone already has. But that you'll all be looking for. Excellent, Bradford said, holding up a stack of folders. I'll need some new rank pins. Oh, Bradford showed him the contents of the forger. Oh, damn, Jabs, congratulations. He shook his head. Man, I remember when you first showed up in the battalion. Now you're making me feel inadequate. You are inadequate, Jabs smiled with a wink. Oh, frack off. Jackson laughed. Most of the crap you'll need is at least three rows down. Down there. He waved in the corner of the tent. Let me know when you find everything so I can track it properly. Will do. Thanks, Jackson. Bradford waved at Rin, and they made their way around the ordered rows of the corner Jackson had indicated. Bradford scanned the marked crates and boxes and looked Rin up and down. All right, let's see. Let's start with the uniform. She waved at the gambesome and started rummaging around the boxes. Go ahead and start getting that stuff off. Um, you can go around the corner to try stuff on, Bradford laughed. I won't peek, I promise. With a sigh and resigned to flick of his tail, Rin began undoing his gambesome. Bradford opened up a box and pulled out a blouse. Jesus freaking Christ, I don't think they made these uniforms for wide bodies this big. She held it up to Rin to see. We could both wear this at the same time. Rin's ears went straight up, an expression of concern on his face. How big do humans get? Not big, fat, Bradford said, stuffing the brows back into the box they came from with disgust. What people do to their bodies in the civilian world is their own goddamn business, but anyone that's grossly out of fitness rigs shouldn't even be fricking me in the corpse. Sounds like some Lord Commanders I've seen, Rin grumbled folding his gambesum and setting it on the desk. Bradford pulled out another box. Aha! This one should be more your size. She pulled out another blouse and held it up for inspection, then tossed it at Rune. Here, try that on. He managed to catch it before it engulfed his face. He held it up for inspection, gave it a sniff, and with a waggle of his ears he set it down so that he could strip off his tunic. It was grey and yellowed, but Bradford suspected it had originally been white. I wonder how long it's been since he had a new, clean clothes. Picking through the boxes, Bradford glanced at Rin had peeled off the tunic. I guess that fur doesn't really leave much to see. His coat wasn't shaggy by any means, but it was just long enough to have a little bit of fluff. Like a short-haired cat, I wonder if he sheds. His chest and his bit deeper than it would have expected for a human. His neck and shoulder proportions were a little different, but overall his frame was close enough for that of a human. I guess walking upright leads to some common patterns. While Rin figured out the buttons on the blouse and donned it, Bradford pulled out a pair of pants and a pack of undershirts, and suppressing an unprofessional giggle, a pack of skibbies. How do I look? Rin asked, holding his arms out. Bradford turned his head to give him an appraising glance. Well, the sleeves are a bit more loose than normal, but they're designed to be baggy, so it's fine. 
It's not too tight around the shoulders. Oh, it's fine, Rin said, rolling his shoulders as he inspected the blouse. He pulled open one of the front pockets, and his ears perked up at the tearing of the rip of the Velcro. What is this? he asked, closing it and reopening the pocket several times. Radford laughed. That's Velcro. It's great for sticking things, but makes a lot of noise. Yeah, tried these on. She dumped a load of clothes in his arms. Rin took the items, examining them while shifted them to a better grip. What are these? he asked, holding up a pick of skivvies. Those are skivvies. They're for under your pants, assuming Kishman and human bodies keep the same stuff between your legs, she said, and his orange eyes lit up as the humor before it went wide as his ears flicked back. She chuckled, certain that he'd be beat red if you were a human. Go freaking change, fox boy, and let me know if anything doesn't fit. He looked at her, his ears flicking out. You do that on purpose, don't you? I disavow all knowledge of what you're talking about. She gave him a perfectly innocent smile. You are the most crude woman that I've ever met, he said, walking around the stack of crates in the next aisle. Have you met many women? I'm done with this conversation. Bradford laughed and began sorting through the stacks of supplies, looking for the things Rin would need and anything else useful that I might be able to sneak out of here. Oh, hey! She pulled out a pack of baby wipes out of the cargo pocket and chucked it over the dividing row of crates and shelvings. They haven't gotten showers set up yet, so while you're stripping down over there, clean yourself up a bit. Ah! He shouted after she heard a pack bounce off something and smiled. What is it with you people and throwing things? Bradford laughed and continued building a pile. A few minutes later, Rin stepped around the corner again. What do you think? He struck a pose, putting his hands on his hip. Well, damn, Rin, if those horns and that face, you really do look like a devil dog. Bradford laughed. Looks good. Everything fit all right. What's a devil dog? Rin asked as he walked over to set his old clothes next to his gambesome. Nickname for a marine comes from the First World War. The Germans called the U.S. Marines they fought against Eiffelhunden which roughly translates to Devil Dog, and the nickname stuck. I see, Rin nodded, but what's a dog? Radford paused, leaning against the crate as she lifted her head at him. Dogs are a companion species, we call them man's best friend, and our civilization wouldn't exist without them. She paused. I'm pretty sure that they brought the canine unit last night. We'll swing by the kennels after we're done here, and I'll show you. Sounds good, Rin said poking at the pile of gear Bradford had collected. What's all this? This, Bradford said, is your kit. You've got your backpack and all the accessory packs to put everything in. She pointed at each item. Your mess kit, hydration pouch, wooby and sleeping system, ballistic glasses. Bradford paused. Not sure if those will fit you, but you can try them on. She shrugged. Top, IFAC, gloves, glove liners. She waggled her fingers at him. Good thing that we both have five fingers. Neck gaiter, shovel, mag pouches, batman belt, frog gear, drop pouches, grenade pouches, knee and elbow pads, canteens, waterproofing pouches, Gore-Tex pants and jacket, more pouches, extra socks and skivvies, plate carrier, isapi plates, and Kevlar helmet, she added, plunking down said helmet on top of Rin's head. It promptly snagged on his horns, keeping the helmet from actually sitting on his head and doing a very little good. You carry all of these, he asked, shoving her hands away and pulling the helmet off his head. His horns snagged and the strapping, and it took him a moment to remove it. 
He handed it back to Jabs in distaste. This is what a basic loadout. We also carry ammo, grenades, batteries, battery charger, night vision goggles, radios, and other personal gear. How much does this all weigh? With a weapon and full combat load of ammo, about a hundred pounds or more, Bradford shrugged. These guys in Weapon Company can lug about a lot more hauling mortar rounds, rockets, and bouts of ammo. Rin looked back at the pile of gear with a sigh, and I thought my marching pack was heavy. Don't worry, I've got something that'll cheer you up, Bradford said, holding something behind her back. Oh, Rin's ears perked up a little. What's that? Boots, Bradford said, pulling out a pair from behind her back. Yeah, put some socks on and try these on. Rin's ears perked up, and he promptly sat down. It took him a moment to figure out how to put on socks, but once the problem was solved, Bradford handed him a boot. I'm not sure if the size is right, but it should be close. I've got three other sizes here for you to try on, if it doesn't fit right. What miracles you weave, Rin muttered. Hmm? Bradford asked. It's from an old fable, Rin explained, as he tried on the different boots about a young woman who tricks a coral elder through telling them that the secret wisdom, and uses it to create miracles with her mother's loom. Yeah, sounds pretty awesome. Doesn't end well, he frowned. The coral didn't tell her all of the secret wisdom, and she learns the hard way that everything comes with a price. Oh, it's one of those stories, Bradford snorted, poking around some more boxes. He shrugged. I always felt the ending was off contrived, like it was originally something else that was somebody rewrote the end differently after the fact. Figures, she rolled her eyes. So, are the coral like some ancient mystical cult or something? She waggled her fingers at him. Rin laughed. No, they're the coral. They're, well, we sometimes call them the rock people, because they look like rocks when they huddle up and hold still. You mean there is another species, like the elves? Bradford wandered round the next aisle over and continued her snooping. Well, they're definitely not owls, but yes. What are they like? Nobody really knows, Rin shrugged. The coral are even more reclusive than the elves used to be. They are a mountain people, and they live in small tribes, he snorted. They profess great wisdom, but refuse to share any of it with the outsiders. He waggled his ears. They have no regard for national borders and have little military or economic significance. They are considered a minor annoyance but no threat, and not worth the effort to remove from terrain that is rarely inhabited by any of the nations who claim the mountains they live in. Do you know where they come from? Bradford poked her head back around the corner of the aisle. Not a clue, Rin replied, tugging on another boot. Some legends say they formed out of the bones of the mountains themselves, and are the guardians of all the ancient wisdom of Gala itself. He rolled his ears and shrugged. Personally, I think they're just stories. Glancing over his shoulder, Bradford walked back into the aisle and slipped a couple boxes into Rin's sack of old clothes and armor. She held up a finger to her lips in a shushing motion. Rin mimicked the motion, his ears tilting forward in confusion, then understanding drawn across his face, and he flicked his ears in amusement. Are there any other species or nations on this world? Do you guys have any other allies? Well, there used to be other Kishman nations and city-states. Most of them were unified under the Ganlan banner three generations ago. The rest either joined the kingdom during the war, or had been wiped out by the elves. He pulled on the latest boot off and sat comparing the other one for a moment. I think this pair fits the best, he said, holding up the other boot. 
Great, Radford said, taking the other boot. Let's just put these other boots back in their boxes and gather the rest of the stuff up. I just have to throw it all on, but the bean counter's got to count the beans. She waved at him and started putting the chosen pair back in the box. Go ahead and put those ones on. Right, Ridden said, happily stuffing his feet into the boots. They're also Dalgra. They have a number of disparate city-states that are constantly shifting alliances, all orbiting their central kingdom. They're big, slow creatures, broad of body and narrow of hips, and they walk with knuckles as much as they do feet. He paused, staring at his booted feet, and Bradford laughed when she realized that he didn't know how to tie them. Yeah, let me show you, she said, pointing out the proper military way to lace his boots, and how to tie them. They're brand new, so it'll probably gonna suck for a while until they get broken in. But the more you wear them, the faster that happens. Just make sure you take them off and let your feet air out whenever you can. Don't know about you guys, but foot fungus infections can cripple a marine. I'll keep that in mind, Ren said as he started gathering up his things, new and old. Radford put a few things back on the shelves or on other boxes and gathered an armful himself. The Dolgra your allies at all? How are their relations with the elves? The Dolgra were always a decent trading partners, even if we did have to dance through the games of intrigue. But the elves are between us and them. They cut off the only land access we had to them years ago, and along with most of the sea trade. He shrugged his ears. I did hear a courier ship managed to slip the elven barricade during the storm a few months ago. The word it brought was that the Dalgra weren't so engaging with the elves and was seeing more success in their defense, mostly thanks to the mountain rangers that marked the border between their territories and the elven territories. All right, Jackson, I think we got everything, Bradford said as they approached the exit. Set it all out here, he said, clearing out some papers from his table and pulling out a handheld scanner. The system actually working, Jackson. It works great when it actually works, Jackson replied, and it turns out, when you're only a three-hour Jewy flight from Silicon Valley, it's surprisingly easy to get some egghead type who actually knows what the frick they're doing on scene to properly set it up. Hoorah, Bradford said. As Jackson began scanning the barcodes, she turned back to Run. So the Earls are fighting a two-front war, and we're still rolling up the opposition. Yeah, Run sighed. Magic is so much easier for them. Every elf can do magic. They usually specialize as a mage or a gem blade or a hundred other specialties. But every elf can do some very basic sparcraft and enchantments. And everything they do, every tool, every weapon, is enchanted by it. Sounds like a tough advantage to beat, Radford frowned. Is it what you and the Dolgra, or is it anyone else? There is the Kalimkali, across the ocean to the east. They are cousins to us, he said, flicking his ears out horizontally and then back to the normal 45-degree swivel. Though distant enough that interbreeding is rarely successful, he shrugged. There are rumors of a land bridge between our continents to the north, beyond Alban territory. But the only contact we have had with them has been by ship, with the owls blocking the seas. We have no communications with the Kalimkali for years. Sounds like the elves have been working hard to keep you all cut off from each other, Jackson said. Divide and conquer, Bradford added with a nod, shoving gear into Rin's backpack as it was scanned. Well, we're on the job now. The US will kick their rears all the way back to whatever hippie tree-hugging hellhole that they crawled out from, and the Marine Corps will lead the way. Hoorah!
Bradford agreed. She picked up the stack of Isapi plates and Jackson finished scanning them and stuffed them into Rin's plate carrier. You're all set, Sergeant, and there's those rank pins for you on the house. Thanks, Jackson. I'll make sure that Kowalski gets you a souvenir. Appreciate it, Jabs. You need anything else? Mm, crap, yeah. She stopped mid-turn, suddenly thinking of something. Name tapes and a name patch for a yacht. Sure, he said, pulling out a pen and a notepad out of from pocket. How do you spell it? Um, Radford turned to Rin. How do you spell your name? En height ye untart, Rin replied without hesitation. Frick, how do we just do that with harmonic spelling in English? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea, Bradford said, and she looked at Rin. Any chance you could do the written language translation spell? Nope, not my specialty. Rin shook his head, tugging on the staff that he'd slung over his shoulder. Honestly, spells like that are hard. Right, so Rin, shields, a yacht, Bradford told Jackson. R-I-N, shields, and... A-H-Y-A-T. So, just the one N for Rin. No, it's a hard nigh, not a soft nah. I am not a fish. Rin flicked his ears back. Wait, Rin sounds like fish. Not if you say it right. Bradford laughed. Let's go with two N's then, and I don't let Kowalski know. You'll never hear the end of it. Two N's it is, Jackson said. Should be able to have these ready for you in a couple days. Or three weeks, he shrugged. Anything else? I think we're good for now, Bradford said. Thanks again, Jackson. Anytime, see you round, Jabs. Later, Bradford grabbed Rin's rucksack and threw it over his shoulder, and then handed him his plate carrier. Here, you can carry this. We'll get it adjusted back at the tent. Rin took the fully assembled plate carrier and nearly dropped it. Tja, what's in this thing? Rocks. Close to it, Bradford laughed, heading out to the supply tent. But the damn things work. Gomez took a hit from one of those elf wizard sticks and suffered nothing more than a bruised ego. And there are a few guys in the battalion who took AK rounds in Iraq and Afghanistan who got back up because of those plates. I guess it's better than a full plate armor our knights and dragoons used to wear, he said, following her across the FOB. And it actually works against the shard blasts. That's the spirit, Bradford said, leading the way across the FOB. Hey. Isn't the pavilion back that way? Yeah, but the kennels are over this way. I told you I'd show you some dogs on the way back. You mean we're going to haul the stuff all over the camp? Yep. When we get out of the field, we're going to haul all of the stuff all over the countryside. Rin whined and readjusted his grip on his plate carrier and old garments. I think you should have just borne that old stuff, by the way, Bradford commented. I don't think it's going to be worth saving. Yeah, Rin said with a sigh. You're probably right. And here's the kennel, Bradford said, stepping over the small, caged-in yard. An obstacle course was set up inside, and the marine was following a big German shepherd around as it exercised through the course. That's a dog. Rin stepped up to the chain-link fence and tilted his head. His ears flicked forward as he watched the dog. I, uh, can see the resemblance, he said. They're a descendant from wolves. Pack-hunting predators, Bradford smiled, recalling fond memories of the dog she grew up with. A couple hundred thousand years ago, or so, back when we were still the tribal hunter-gatherers, some of them started hanging out around our settlements, or camps, or whatever the freck they had back then, and we kind of adopted them. The combination of evolution and selective breeding for different purposes. Plus a couple hundred thousand years, and you've got dogs. 
So, they're domesticated livestock? No, they're a companion species. They're not people smart, but they're very intelligent creatures, and they usually form social pack bonds with whomever they live with. She shrugs. There are a lot of working dog breeds, but it's more of a partnership, with them putting their weight in our civilization, though it's not an equal partnership. I see. Rin watched the dog as its handler for a long moment. Is that how you view us? Bradford frowned, pulling her boonie cap off and ran her hand through her hair before responding. Full disclosure, there are a few jerks out there who will. Freck, we're still stamping out the last dregs of freckwads who think that it was about humans. She put her cap back on. But if most people... Most people are decent, if given a chance. You're obviously as intelligent as we are, just a few centuries behind us in technology. She shook her head. I can't promise that there won't be humans who try to take advantage of your people because of that, but I can promise you that I'll fight anyone who tries. Fair enough, Rin said, and they turned away from the kennels, heading back to the squad pavilion. Some of my people will probably try to do the same. <laughs> Sounds like we'll be perfect for each other then. Jabs! Shields! Look who's back and not dead! Yeah, I heard Gomez. Bradford said, walking through the pavilion to drop Rin's new pack on his cot. Welcome back, Kimber. How's the arm? Fine. Doc stitched it up nice and tight. He said, waving from across the pavilion. I'm combat effective and ready to kick some Keebler rear. Since when are you a sergeant, Jabs? Dora asked. Oh, snap. Two days ago, apparently. Jabs said, holding up a folder and tossing out a rack. I've got some good news and I got some bad news on Gucci too. Yeah? How's he doing? Edison asked. Doc's managed to save his leg, and he'll be able to walk on it again with rehab. Frick yeah. Man, can you imagine Gucci trying to dance around on a peg leg? Asked Samson. Probably would have made him better, Kimber laughed. True that. What's the bad news, Jabs? Asked Kowalski. The bad news is that he's on rehab indefinitely. Might even be on his way at the Metsep. She tapped a few ranked pins on her chest. I'm officially the squad leader, so I'm in charge of all you fricks now. Crap, that's the bad news, Edison asked. Fricking a bra. There's worse news, too. The Keeblers wussied out and aren't going to forgive us a fight, Kowalski asked. No such luck. Davies was cleared by medical. He's coming back from convalescence. Frick, I thought he was tapping out on some psych bullcrap. Apparently not, Bradford shook her head. But I do have some other good news, she added, holding up the folders, gaining everyone's attention. It's not much for a ceremony, but some of you frecks managed to make the cut this month. She flipped open the first folder. Samson, you made corporal. Sweet. Miller, you made Lance corporal. Nice. He responded with a slight smile and a nod. Gomez, you made PFC. What? I don't meet the timing grade for another two weeks. Don't freaking question it, Goma. It just takes a goddamn paycheck, Kowalski said, smacking the back of his head. Ah, Freckoff. And finally, Kowalski, Bradford shook her head, handing him a folder. You made corporal. Again. Freck. Probably the only man in the corpse is angry about making rank. Right there. Dubois laughed, pointing at Kowalski. Kowalski responded by flipping him the bird. Congrats, everyone. You all earned it. Now let's get all this gear squared away and get some chow before they put us down one meal a day. What? We're in a freaking FOB. There's a freaking McDonald's less than 25 kilometers that way. 
Edison pointed towards the portal, and they're putting us in one mill a day. Not yet, but the supplier situation is wrecked, Bradford shook her head. They keep sending us all the crap we don't need, and half the crap we do need. We've got enough food for the marines that we've got yet now, but they're sending bodies in faster than they're sending the food to feed them. Now stow your crap, and Kowalski, if that espresso maker blows up inside the tent, I'm not lying to the CO to cover your rear. Aye, Sergeant, Kowalski said, snapping to attention and giving her officer a doofy salute. Bradford rolled her eyes and turned away from the rest of the squad, starting putting the gear away. She paused mid-turn. Dubois, where the frick did you get an avocado? I got a whole bag of them, he beamed. They're not ripe yet, but they're fresh picked. Snagged them off of a pile of trees they cleared out from around the portal. Figured it'd be shame to see them go to waste. Fricking millennials, Krawalski rolled his eyes. Hey, I'm older than you, you frick. No fresh avocado snack bread for you. Rin shook his head as he arranged his own gear, his ears flicking in amusement. You keep using that word. I don't think it's translating right. What does it mean? What word? Bradford asked. Frick, he asked, struggling to pronounce the F sound right. Frick means, um, a lot of things, Bradford glanced around awkwardly. Yeah, I keep getting a lot of different meanings whenever you say it. It means all of them. Depending on context, Addison added. Oh, all the magic and you can't translate Freck? Kowalski asked. He waved his hand in his air. Can't you just snap your fingers and conjure up an understanding? Magic doesn't work that way, Rin said, shaking his head. Well, why the Freck not? Um, Rin's tail twitched and he tugged his left horn. You have to create an artifice to manner to do anything with it. The more complex the thing is, the more refined or precise or delicate you need to be, the more mana you need to control the thing that you're using, to do the thing. He shook his head, his ears flicking agitated while he gestured in front of him. On top of that, you have to know how to structure the artifice to do what you want, and translating language from raw mental concepts is very complex, never mind implanting that understanding in your head. So how did the mass translation spell you guys put on work? Edison asked. The artificer who did that was the Supreme Commander's personal aide. He's a goddamn savant, one of the greatest artificers that has ever lived. He burst a mana crystal large enough to power one of our heaviest artillery pieces for a week, straight with his bare hands, and the effort nearly killed him. Well, crap, Miller said into the silence that followed. So, um, he can't match me up a Starbucks. Shut the frick up, Skowalski. Mid-afternoon found Bradford cleaning her rifle, showing Rin how it worked. That's amazingly crude and incredibly sophisticated at the same time, Rin said, examining the bolt carrier. Yep, Bradford laughed, and she nodded at his magic stick. How does your magic staff thing work? It's on articulation staff, or just a staff. Rin picked the staff up from the rack to show her. It was a little longer than her rifle and mostly straight, but with a slight curve at the bottom end. It's constructed to facilitate the flow and manipulation of mana. Artifices are kishmen who have natural ability to sense and manipulate ethereal mana on our own, though only to a limited degree. If we can get a source of concentrated mana, like mana crystals, we can do more, but manipulating energy with raw mana crystals can be difficult, and sometimes extremely dangerous. Especially if you don't want to burst the crystal and use it all at once. He waggled the staff. That's where these come in. 
With the light materials and designs, we've been able to create tools that facilitate and regulate the use and modulation of mana, at least for a certain range of actions. He set the staff on his lap, tracing the lines of the precious metals set inside the length. The standard artificer staff is designed to facilitate a generation and conventional spell shots, personal and line shields, and an assortment of standard functions, like disrupting the artifice structures of Alvin spells, particularly their true invisibility spells. Cool, Bradford said, taking the staff when it was offered to her, holding it up to examine it. You've mentioned artillery pieces before. I'm assuming you have bigger staffs that shoot more powerful spells. Essentially, yes, though the construction of more powerful articulates like that requires them to be more focused and specialized. We can also create single-use articulators embedded in small mana crystals for use as ammunition and more conventional artillery. So you guys might be able to make something that fits inside one of our rockets or artillery shells. That certainly is a possibility. Hey, Sergeant, Dubois said, walking into the pavilion. Staff Sergeant Rickles says that they must bring all squad leaders and up for the brief of Company HQ. He say, what's up? Bradford asked, passing the staff back to Run and quickly reassembling her rifle. Nope, but the whole FOB started buzzing like somebody kicked a damn hornet's nest. Word is, we're going on the offensive. About freaking time. Kowalski jumped up from his rack. Time to get some. Her rifle reassembled, Bradford slapped a magazine back and slung it over his shoulder. Get the squad packed up and ready to move, probably in a hurry up and wait, but let's be ready just in case. She headed for the door. Dubois helped Ren make sure that he's got everything he might need packed up. Aye, Sergeant. Five minutes later, Bradford was joining the rest of the Echo Company squad leaders at the company HQ tent. With over thirty officers and NCOs packed between the two Humvees, spacing was tight. We got everyone here, Captain Spader asked, and got a confirming nod from Cartry, the company first sergeant. First off, congratulations on Sergeant Bradford and a promotion. It's well earned, and she has demonstrated it is well deserved while under fire yesterday. Saved all our rears. Damn fine work, Sergeant. Thank you, sir, Bradford nodded, as one of the other squad leaders patted her on the back. All right, everyone, listen up. While the brass goes about unfricking this clusterfrick we found ourselves in, we're going to keep the pressure on the enemy. Those orders just came down straight from the top. He stepped aside to point a rough map set on the board for all of them to see. Recon ID'd a pair of enemy base camps at fifty clicks to the west, probably where that army that we wiped the floor with yesterday operated out of. Codename Blackstreet 1, he pointed at the circle, point slightly to the west, and then one further north and Backstreet too. They're likely defended, and we've had the window to get there before the survivors from yesterday do. General Langstam's been put in charge of the combatant commander here in Glala, and he wants to use the base captured, looted for intel, prisoners, and any gear that we can recover, then blow the frick up. Nods and mutters of approval ripple through the assembled marines. Two fives, the only infantry battalion that's managed to get their theater for the full strength yet, so, we're it. Orders are to gear up, load up, and muster at the landing strip for Tolkien in one hour. Wheels up in thirty after that. Echo Company is taking the lead in the assault on Backstreet 1. Foxtrot Company is taking the lead on Backstreet 2. Golf and weapons companies are being split to augment both. 
We're getting Halo and F-18 escorts from Miramar, and the Air Force flyboys are sending warthogs in close air support. Time is short, so additional briefings will happen en route. If you have questions, unless it's a showstopper, ask them now. The General has made this top priority mission, so we've been given temporary usage of every Humvee, truck, APC, and tricycle that can carry a Marine to get the battalion to Tolkien on time. Muster at the ECP in 30 minutes. Radford, bring your diversity higher. Command wants an initial evaluation of Kishman performance under this. Dismissed. An hour later, Bradford was crammed into a Humvee with five very excited Marines and one increasingly nervous Kishman, as they rolled through the entry control point of M.O.P. Tolkien. Ahead, the portal yawned before them, roughly oval-shaped. It was four times as long as it was high. The clear, sunny San Diego sky visible through the portal was jarring against the low, overcast-turning vanilla skies of Gala. Clearly, marking the portal even without the pale green glow of the false wall that framed the edges of back. The Humvee rumbled and rattled along the packed and scraped dirt and gravel inside the MOB's expansion perimeter. Smack in the middle of the column of Humvees, trucks, APCs and government vans and SUVs racing towards the ash grip. Rows of Hueys and Ospreys were already idling on the field. The column bounced along with the rough-formed roads, weaving around temporary structures and not-so-temporary construction sites, and rolled right up to the airfield, clapping the random marine who had been thrown into their chauffeur on the shoulder as a thanks. She shoved the door open and stepped out. Dismount, devil dogs, let's move. Further up the line, Baracus was shouting encouragements as the marines streamed out of their vehicle columns, directing them to form up in front of the waiting aircraft. The rumbles and whines of the turbine and rotors filled the air alongside the stomping of boots and rattling of gear. The rest of the squad hopped out of the SUV behind them and half another squad. They rallied together and all nine marines and one Navy FMF corpsman and one Cashman artificer raced to fall into the designated position with the rest of the battalion. At the last of the marines tickled into the back of the formation, Baracus marched to front of the battalion. He shouted, Attention! And the sound was nearly 800 marine sailors and one artificer snapping to attention thundered across the field. Michael strode onto the field before the assembled battalion. Winters at his side. Baracus snapped a crisp salute. Battalion assembled and awaiting orders, sir. Michaels and Winters returned the salute, and the battalion CO stepped forward. Marines, he shouted, straining his deep voice to be heard over the rumble of the aircraft. Yesterday, two five were the first marines into this fight. Today, we're the first marines to take this fight to the enemy. Our mission is to assault two enemy base camps fifty clicks west of FOP Williams, capture every scrap of intel, equipment, and every prisoner we can, and then blow whatever the left is the frick up before the remaining of the army we demolished yesterday can get back to use it. General Longstorm has decreed that if the Keeblers want to find a pillow to cry on after the beating that we gave them yesterday, they're going to have to walk all the way home to Mama, back in the Kleberville. Hoorah! Hoorah! Echoed 800 voices. Additionally, Intel reports that the Keeblers can use prisoners as living batteries for their damn mage towers. One, that's extra incentive to not get captured. Two, 
Last night we found the remains of several hundred desiccated Kishman corpses in and around the ruins of those damned shield towers we knocked out. The poor bastards were nothing more but dried-out skin and bones, sucked completely dry. Most of them stacked and discarded a cord wood. If they weren't already dead when those towers fell, they would have been dead soon after. Intel doesn't know how many prisoners they brought with them, or nor how many they left behind, but our mission is now includes the liberation and rescue of as many Kishman prisoners as we might find. So watch your targets. If it's got fur, it's probably friendly. If it looks like a damn Lord of the Rings cosplay, assume it's hostile and lighted the frick up. These are the same bad motherfreckers who are in need of a whole hell of a lot of killing. Let's go give it to them. Your aircrafts have already been assigned by squad. Fall out by company. Treat. Hell. Two five. Retreat. Hell. Semper Fi, Marines. Fall out. Echo Company. Mount up. Move, move, move. Get the lead out, Marines. Recare. Get some. Radford sprinted forward following the calls of the first platoon and second squad. She raced towards the open ramp of the V-22 offspray that would look like half of the 3rd Marine Air Wing's complement of AH-1Z Vipers and FA-18 Hornets thundered through the portal above them. Tyrell's night had been long and exhausting. He had skirted around the edge of the Kishman and human camp, staying well away from the harsh, unnatural lights and any patrols they may have. The human camp was not his target. The journey to the portal itself was exhausting. Without the ambient manor fields of the mage tower, it was left to subsist on mana that he could draw from either on his own or the food that he brought with him. The forest he traveled through was young and unfamiliar to him. Wild and untrained, the trees had forgotten their masters and had no concern for him. Just as troubling was the constant stream of human troops and the camp at the portal, he wondered how the Keshman had managed to create such a thing, but was unconcerned. Answering the question was not his mission. Evading the Kishman patrols or what existed of them was child's play. More difficult was the human patrols and the strange machines. Ironically, the greatest challenges were the scattered Kishman who had yet to return to the army. They were everywhere. Many wandering aimlessly and weaving an unseen path through them proved to be the most difficult task. His reserves drained quickly, and he was forced to stop and rest several times. He foraged what he could and conserved his food stores. Twice he was almost found out when the Kishman nearly bumbled across him and rested. Finally, late afternoon on the day after the battle, he reached the human base camp around the portal. Its size and activity were alarming, and it was well defended and patrolled. Tyrell was prepared for this, however. Reaching into his bag, he pulled out a mana crystal, placing the crystal against the emerald mana gem that hit the end of his staff. He concentrated, weaving the spell constructed around him, though easier than within the range of a mage tower or with the support of other mages. The spell was still not difficult for him alone. The mana crystal came unbound, streaming into the gem of his staff, and Tyrell vanished. Getting over the human's defensive wall proved to be a minor challenge, but with the surge of mana through his blood and a boost of his acrobatics, and a few carefully placed shield flickers that served as stepping stones, he was across. The drain of his reserves was not insignificant, and he knew that he would need time to recuperate, but reaching his target must come first. 
Maintaining the invisible spell and the rapid bleed of mana, he raced across the human fortification, dodging tents, people, strange machines. He sprinted past and field with a large formation of humans standing before dozens of whirling contraptions, and nearly lost his concentration as dozens more were thundering, mechanical birds roared overhead. But by then he was slipping through the portal, setting foot onto another world. His reserves were waning critically low. He ran across the open field on the alien side of the portal. Another wall presented itself, and with desperately short surge of mana he danced over it, his energy failing as he threw himself across the cleared area to the side of the wall, past more humans and their strange constructions and vehicles. With the last of his reserves he stumbled down the embankment and into a small grove of trees that had never known an elven master. His reserves were depleted, and the smell failed, and he collapsed. Victorious. End of Chapter Retreat Hull Chapter 6 Written by Lithy Dragon I must be going insane. Brun was sprinting across an open field scraped and packed dirt, surrounded by hundreds of non-Kishmen, aliens from another world, towards a line of whirling contraptions that could fly. I must be going insane. It's the only explanation. The marines ahead of him slowed, turning towards a specific craft. This one had two wings sticking out of either side of it, with great spinning blades whirling above the columns and the end of each wing. First platoon, second squad, first platoon, second squad. A marine was shouting, waving them towards the rumbling monstrosity. The marines piled into the craft, ducking as they stomped up a short ramp and into the belly of the beast. Ren followed them. I'm definitely going insane. Inside, the marines were unslinging their packs and dropping into the seats mounted on the outer shell. Following suit, Ren fumbled for the straps on his own pack and soon found himself being shoved into a seat and strapped in. Snugging the straps, Dubois gave him a slap on the shoulder and moved his seat further in the craft. Through the small window on the opposite wall, Rin could see the smaller flying vehicles. The ones that had the bigger sets of blades and the smaller set of blades were their tail, and they were already lifting off, loaded with marines. The rest of the squad piled in, along with the marines from another squad, then the ramp was raised and the tones of the contraption changed. Jostling slightly, Bren looked at a partly open ramp. Above and below were in the air. He latched his hands onto the seat. The craft lifted and the view from the ramp spun, bringing the portal into view as it turned northwest. Already the hundred feet in the air, Bren was granted a bird's eye view of the human side of the portal. Past a fortified defensive line, he saw the ordered rows of orchards and farms surrounding a huge complex of bizarre structures that looked like long rows of white half-barrels. Beyond that was a great highway, stretching into the distance past the mountains covering the green trees and brown shrubs. He felt a faint rumble and thunk beneath him, as a glance through a small window opposite him revealed the vertical columns of the spinning blades had rotated forward. Glancing backwards again, Ren saw the portal receding at an increasing pace, a line of the other flying craft trailing behind them as the rest of the battalion loaded and took off. How are you holding up? Bradford shouted, clapping him on the back. She had been several marines ahead of him when they'd boarded. She must have swapped seats when she wasn't looking. I'm sitting in a chair in the sky, 
Ha! Now he'll get used to it. She waved at Marine near the ramp. Just look at the Hicks. He's already asleep. Ah, Hicks don't count jabs. Edison cut in from the seat to Rin's right. The man's a freak of nature. Put him on anything that moves and he's out. Almost immediately. Rin gripped his seat as he shuddered and rattled. Relax, Edison said. It's just a bit of turbulence. Probably from the portal. It's having some weird effects in the weather. Bradford wrapped her knuckles on the steel helmet of his head. Glad to see that you found something to protect your grape. Yeah, he said, latching onto the distraction, tapping on the Kishman helmet himself. Your helmets don't fit. Gomez found this somewhere. Yeah, still not the best, but, but it works. Better than nothing, at least, Bradford grinned. Hot damn, that's a sight. Kowalski said, pointing out the back ramp at the line of mechanical birds falling into formation around them. This has got to be one of the largest air assaults since freaking... I don't freaking know since when. Shock and awe, man, Kimber said. Shock and motherfucking awe. Hoorah! I'm just surprised that we were able to mobilize all of this in such short notice. Samson waved the craft around him. Organizing an operation like this is normally takes weeks, at least. I know, right? Bradford laughed. The portal kicked off a mad scramble. Everyone's been on high alert and ready to go since it popped up. Rin looked back at the ramp and was amazed to see that the portal so far in the distance behind them, even more astounding, was the appearance of the royal host camp of F.O.B. Williams below them. He thought the twenty-minute ride in the front lines to the portal was amazing, a distance it would have taken the royal host a day to march. We've been in the air for mere minutes, and we're already crossing the Yankai River. Rin sat back and considered the fact for a moment. We haven't taken the offensive across the Yankai in months, and here I am, flying through the sky. Joining the band of marauding chaos demons in an assault on the Alvin camp, nearly into the next country. He adjusted his helmet on his head, not liking how it chafed against his ears, and he tried to relax. Once you get used to the noise, the droning of the blades is actually kind of soothing. Ready up, marines. We're five mics out. Rin blinked. He hadn't fallen asleep, but he had drifted away to the here and now. He hadn't noticed how much time had passed. Are we almost there already? Around him, marines shoved each other awake and double-checked their weapons and gear. Rin adjusted his helmet again and gave himself a quick pat-down, looking for anything that seemed out of place. Keep your ears open, shouted an unfamiliar marine, tethered to the back of the manning the mounted machine gun. The Hueys are engaging psyops, and we're in two mics out. Best day ever, Kowalski shouted. Let's kill us some freaking kibblers. Hoorah! The craft rolled, and Rin found himself staring at the marine across from him, while his stomach tried to do its level best to crawl up his throat. The world reeled outside and back of the ramp, and the craft leveled out, and much closer to the ground. The swarm of whirling birds of death jockeyed around them. Two mics, the marine around them, all grinned at each other. At first, Rin couldn't hear anything over the noise and the craft he was in. Straining his ears, he started to make out the sounds of some string instruments, the fluttering of a flute. Then the horns began. The marine on the machine gun leaned forward in the ramp, gripping at his weapon, eager for targets. He paused, putting his hands on his earmuffs. Are you freaking crapping me? What's the problem? Bradford asked. There's nothing there, sergeant, the marine shouted, half turning to face her. Just a bunch of freaking trees. 
What do you mean just a bunch of freaking trees? I mean just freaking trees, he pointed out the ramp at the uninterrupted forest below. We just flew over the target. Did we make a wrong turn somewhere? Edison asked. No, we're right on target, the marine shouted. He paused and listened again to the horizon and tilted. We're making another pass. Raiders not giving with what we're seeing. Could it be a... Bradford stopped mid-sentence as Ren unbuckled himself and lurched to the ramp. Raising himself with one hand on the ceiling, he felt a hand clamp down on his tail. I got you, bruh, Stephenson shouted. Ignoring him, Rin spun and standard detection artifice. It couldn't detect the elves through the invisibility or illusions, but it could detect... Aha! Somebody's leaking too much mana. Shifting his grip on his staff, he fired off a hasty disruption pulse. It was quick, dirty, and low-powered, but it did the job. A flicker of mana burst into the edges of the illusion, disrupting a large swath and revealing the elven camp below for several seconds, before the illusion restabilized and the hole collapsed. Crap, it's right there! The marine on the gun shouted as several rockets flashed from one of the vipers. They shot right through the illusionary trees to strike the ground in rapid series of detonations. Completely disrupted by the rockets, the illusion collapsed, revealing the elven camp in its entirety. We're going in, shouted the marine, leaning out to spit a burst of machine gun fire into the camp as the craft rolled again. Ren stumbled, and Stephens yanked in his tail, hauling him back into the craft. The ground came rushing up as they came to a land, and several pulses of small arm spellfire flashed by. Something tinked against the frame. Elsie's hot, the marine gun shouted as the ramp dropped and he swung his weapon clear. Piled out. Rin surged down the ramp with the rest of the marines as spellfire flashed and gunfire rattled around him while the orchestral symphony bled out. Stumbling, he struggled to hold on to the pack someone had shoved into his hands while firing a mana pulse in the general direction of a group of Alban regulars charging towards them. Leaf green tents toppled and tumbled across the ground as thundering sky carriages landed and powered marines into the camp. Their ride roared and lifted into the air, swinging clear as the small arm starburst tracked after it. None hit. Rin dropped his pack and threw up his shield where he stood. Several shard bursts deflected off, but they were all shot wide anyway. The squad of elves charged, swords high, but they were cut down by sustained rapid fire from Kowalski and Gomez. Eat crap and die, frickers! I got one! I freaking got one! You freaking got five of them, Goma! Eyes front, Marines, Bradford shouted. Clear their Alzi, kill anything that's hostile, but remember, we want prisoners. Two five, retreat how. Get him, boys. Contracting his shield, Rin grabbed his pack and dragged it behind him as he sprinted after the Marines. A hundred tails, several bursts of gunfire, and a few explosions later, and the fight was over. Is that it? Dubois asked as the gunfire tapered off around him. Only the whirl of the rumble of the flying machines overhead and a few shouts from the marines remained. That's it, Bradford confirmed while Rin took the opportunity to properly shoulder his pack, nearly falling over in the process. Well, that was a little, um, anticlimactic, Edison said. Frick your big words, it's a goddamn disappointing is what it is. That's a bigger word. Nobody asked you, Goma. There must have been fifty people defending this camp, Alan Rawaju said, looking about at the torn-up tents and half-collapsed buildings. No more. Fifty freaking people, Kowalski laughed, 
We just dropped half a goddamn battalion on this heavy air support with fifty freaking people. Looks that way, Bradford said, shaking her head. Crap! There's a shock and awe, and then there's freaking overkill, Samson said. Overkill is just more kill, Kowalski declared. No such thing as too much kill. Right, Bradford laughed. All right, stick together. We still got some mopping up to do. And a whole camp to search for anything that we can haul off. Let's go find the LT and see what he's got for us. Britain picked his way through the rows of scattered and still standing tents. Then they were made out of a strange leaf-like fabric that he had never seen before. I wonder if they groaned. He paused, looking about. Something's wrong, Shields, Edison asked. I've never been in an Alban camp before, he looked at the Marines. Seven years of war, and I've never set foot in an Alban camp. He gestured at the rows of elegant green tents surrounding them. We've beaten them, driven them back, and forced them to withdraw, even overrun them a time or two. But we never managed to push them back so hard that they couldn't decamp. They really had you by the short hairs, didn't they? Dubois said. I don't, he snorted, staring out across the field of tents. Yeah, yeah, they did. Well, you've got us here now, Kowalski said, throwing an arm over his shoulder. We can get all their areas together. Let's keep moving, Bradford said. The birds only have so much flight time before they got to go back and refuel, and I don't want to get stuck here overnight. The pens are just up ahead. The pens. The thought sent a shiver down his spine, hope and fear warring in his gut on what they might find. Clearing the last row of tents, a large corral came into view, constructed with the typical elven style. That looks, um, delicately brutal. Dubois said, looking at the inward curving spines and spires at the top of the high fence. Those two words don't go together, Edison objected. How can? Ah, fricket, you're right. There's a gate over there, Bradford said, leading them away. It's open. It looks empty, Samson chimed in as they approached. Bradford pushed the gate fully open and walked inside. Rin slowly walked into the center and stopped staring at an object in the ground as the marines fanned out to investigate. There's not much here, Kimber said, gesturing about. Couple lean-tos for shelter, a bird over there for crapping in, looks hand-dug. How can you tell it was hand-dug, Gomez asked. You can see the finger tracks in the walls. Look at how the ground was all tore up, Miller said, pointing at the bare dirt and mud. There must have been hundreds of people in here. None of them are here anymore, Kowalski said. Where did they all go? Gomez asked. With the army to the other side of the river, Bradford frowned at the obvious. Yeah, frick. Ah, Jesus, Edison said, walking up to Rin. What? Bradford asked. There were kids here. He bent over to pick up a crude doll that Rin had been staring at and held it for everyone to view. Frick. Echo One, this is Echo One, standing by to make a report, Bradford said into a radio headset. It was in one of the boxes that she had smuggled out of the supply tent with Rin. She listened to the response and then Rin couldn't hear, and then continued, Echo One Actual, this is Echo One Two. We're at the corral, but the gate was open. It's being cleared out. Ground signs indicate several hundred people were held here, including children. Another pause as she listened to the response. Echo One Two will go out. Bradford frowned at the corral around her. All right, make sure we got plenty of pictures. Intel wants them, and I'm sure that the brass will feed them to the press. After that, we're heading back to the LZ. There's a lot of gear that we'll have to sort through. 
Rin gently took the doll from Edison and examined it. It was mostly rags tied together with a bit of stuffing in the head, crudely shaped like a kishman. It had mismatched buttons sewn for eyes and it was missing an ear. He felt a hand on his shoulder. You going to be okay, Shields? Bradford asked. Yeah, he said, showing her the doll. Maya had a doll like this. She called it Binkles. She carried him everywhere. Gripping the doll, he twisted and tried to stuff it into his pack. After he struggled for a moment, Bradford helped him stow it away. I'm ready to go, he said, looking across the corral. Yeah, let's get out of here, Bradford agreed. Dubois, Stevens, you guys get enough pictures. Yeah, Sergeant, Stephens said, his irrepressibly chill attitude subdued. About as much as we can get, Dubois confirmed, stowing the camera away. Let's get back to the LZ. Hi, Sergeant. Rin stood up and stretched, feeding the satisfying pop and crackle up his spine. Above and below, the stuff weighs on you. He rubbed his hand across his face, and he scratched behind his ear. He had been sorting through the gear for the last hour, inspecting captured equipment and doing his best to tell the Marines what it all was, and if it was worth holding back or not. At least the helos and ospreys have flown up into the higher, wider pattern. I could barely hear myself think of the racket. So you sure you can't make use of one of these things? Edison asked, picking up a gem staff of the Alban Mage. No, I can't. He said, pointing the mana gem bound to the staff near the top. See this? That's a mana gem. Only the elves can make them. We haven't figured out how. What is it? It kind of looks like an emerald or something. It's, um, it's... It's like a mana crystal, but with much more complex structure. It's very stable, so it can't be converted into semantic mana and used up like a mana crystal. But it can store semantic mana, and it makes it easier for elf wielding to channel mana, both in using stored semantic mana to cast spells and drawing out ethereal mana. Kinda like your articulation staff. Yeah, same basic concept. So why can't you use it? Rin sighed. Because when an elf makes a gem, it gets personally tuned to them. Only that elf could use it, he shrugged. From what we understand about them, creating one is a difficult and arduous process for an elf, and entails the risk for them. Many elves never create a mana gem in the first place. Edison set the staff and picked up a gem blade, examining the ruby-like gem set into the pommel. Do they all get worked into stuff? I believe so, yes, Ren said, picking up a water bottle and examining the material for a moment before taking a drink. This plastic stuff is fascinating. We've only ever seen them set into specialized articulations, like a mage staff or a gem blade, matching the elves' profession or specialization. Not two are alike, he twisted the cap back on. There are rumors that some mana gems are imbued with such a complex structure, or with so much of the essence of the elf that made them that they are almost alive, with personality all of their own. Really? Edison swung the blade a few times, like a living talking sword. So the rumors go, Rin said, setting down the bottle, but I don't think it's more than just a fantastical speculation and rumor. You found yourself a souvenir? Kowalski asked, wandering over to Bradford and Miller. Nah, I gotta go back with the rest of the hall of the eggheads to study. We didn't get enough of these things that weren't tore up or blown to crap by the artillery. Don't we have enough here? Just sneak it into your pack or something. I wish. My pack's not that big. He shook his head, setting the sword back and the important or useful pile of captured gear. 
Besides, that's one of them lightsaber crap asses. Then there was only a handful of those fricks and the Meiji types here. Most of them were just regulars. They all died fast enough, Kowalski shook his head. Too bad. I wanted to get my hands on a life keebler so I could just beat him to death. That kind of defeats the point of taking prisoners, Kowalski, Bradford laughed. I'd still be worth the satisfaction. Couple of boys in second platoon nearly caught themselves one of the wizard types, Kimbler grunted as he and another marine hauled a heavy chest over for inspection pile. The rest of the second squad and a few of the marines from third squad were following him with a half dozen more chests. But the bastard made his hands all glowy and put a knife hand to his chin and blew his own brains out. He mimicked the motion. Kimber, aren't you supposed to be taking it easy with that arm? Nah, it's fine, Sergeant. He waved a concern away. Maybe he only popped a couple stitches. Bradford rolled her eyes. Anyway, shields! LT, he said as tapping the chest and the others were stacked up with him. I think you guys are going to get a kick out of what we've found in the big tents. Mayers broke away from the conversation and walked over to the Staff Sergeant Rickles. What do you got here, Corporal? A whole frickwad of mana crystals, Kimba said, popping the latch on his chest and flipping the lid open. There's another ten chests back there, just like this one, all chocked full of them. Gods above and below, Rin said, as his ears were standing straight. That's enough to supply. He flicked an ear. Well, a whole army. Good find, Corporal, Riggles said, tapping him on the shoulder. Kimber only winced a little. Take a breather and hydrate. First squad has been standing here for ten minutes with the schlongs in their hands for the last ten minutes. They can haul the rest over. Kimber nodded, taking a water bottle and sitting down on one of the chests. It's the big tent over there, three tents down from the half-blowed-up hut. We stack them all out in front before we hold these over. You copy that, Sergeant Anna? Yes, Sergeant. Right then, go to it. Aye, Staff Sergeant. With a satisfied nod, Rickles turned back to his conversation with Mayor, and they stepped away. You sure we're going to have enough room for all the scraps, sir? Captain Spader has just got off the horn with the CO. They're sending a couple of flights to Super Stadions for cargo lift, so it shouldn't be a problem. Lieutenant, sir, Ren spoke up, shifting from foot to foot as he eyed the arsenal before him. Yes, I yet. May I stock up, sir? He asked, waving at the chest. I've only got a crystal and a half left. Help yourself, second artificer. We've got plenty, and I'd hate to have any of you run out of ammo. Thank you, sir. Rin said, barely stopping himself from giving the lieutenant a crisp bow. No saluting in combat zones. Mayers nodded and resumed walking away. Rin jumped on the chest, greedily pulling out a crystal after crystal and stuffing every single pouch that he had with them. Jesus, you're like a kid in a candy store, Kimber laughed. You never run out of ammo before, Kowalski said, snagging a couple fist-sized crystals and tucking them into a pouch. His pouches topped off including a few crystals large enough to properly feed the artillery piece. Rin sat back, satisfied. I think I'm carrying more mana crystals right now than I've personally handled in the last three years. I think we made a good haul, Bradford said with an approving nod. They managed to burn a lot of their documents and gear, but we got a lot of it too. Captured a bunch of tech, including some comms gadget and their goddamn magazine. I just wish that we had more of a fight, Kowalski said shaking his head. I wanted to frick up some more Keeblers. Rin rolled an ear at Kowalski. I like your marine way of fighting a lot better than what I'm used to, 
but I've had enough of fights. I don't need more. Kowalski shrugged, giving Rin an understanding nod. Meh, it was good enough, Kimber said, taking another swig of water. But, hey, real talk, important question. What would you do for a billion dollars? I'd do a lot for a billion dollars, Kowalski said. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for a billion dollars, said one of the marines from 3rd Squad. Rin didn't know his name. Would you suck a billion schlongs for a billion dollars? Dude, I've already said, there isn't anything that I wouldn't do for a billion dollars. I don't know, man, Stefan said. That's a lot of schlongs. Dude, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for a billion dollars. But that's a billion schlongs. Just line them up, man. That's a billion dollars. You'd never finish. But it's a billion dollars. Dude, that's a dollar a schlong. Rung stared at the confused mix of fascination and horror at the conversation. Are they really discussing this? He glanced at Bradford. She was merely rolling her eyes and laughing at the conversation, though he didn't miss that she was firmly not participating. Dude, five dollars a schlong is a rip-off. You're talking a dollar a schlong. Yeah, but... The marine from the third platoon stopped mid-sentence and turned, pushing Stephens out of his way. This conversation is over. I just crapped myself. What? Kevmuller laughed. Just crap myself. Move! He shoved past Dubois and ran off to the rest of marines, burst out laughing. Rin saw an osprey sitting down and cleared the area a couple hundred baths past him. He did he just crap himself to get out of a conversation he was losing? Bradford chuckled, pointing after him. I think he did, Edison said, struggling for breath. What about you, Miller? Kimber said. You've been silently staring at the trees this whole time. What would you do for a billion dollars? Shut up, Miller said, not shifting his gaze. What? Kimber asked, coughing at another laugh. I said, shut the frick up, Miller snapped. What do you see, Miller? Bradford asked, stepping up to his side. Levity instantly forgotten. Rin jumped to his feet, joining them. I don't know. Something doesn't feel right, he nodded at the tree line. There is no bird singing over there. I don't see anything, Kowalski said, peering through the pair of binoculars. Rub it up, Sergeant, Mayer said, walking over. We're pulling out. He paused. Something up? Don't know, sir, Bradford said, pulling up a telescope like device out of a pouch. Maybe... Rin squinted, running his detection artifice again. I'm not detecting anything, but it's a good distance to the tree line. Bradford fiddled with the device for a moment before putting it up to her eye. Crap! Contact! Hostiles in the trees, visible on thermals! She stuffed the device back in a pouch and brought up a rifle as Miller started snapping off shots into the trees. The thwomp of her grenade launcher joined the rapid staccato of Kowalski's SAW, and suddenly the tree line was filled with owls. Hostiles in the tree line, Mayer shouted as he grabbed the radio hand device. All units, this is Echo 1 Actual. Multiple hostiles in the eastern tree line. Visible on thermals. Spellfires flashed by and Rin threw up a shield, deflecting the blasts overhead. Then his blood ran cold. The trees seemed to sway out of the way as their mage tower strode into the camp. Jesus freaking Walker! Kowalski shouted turning his saw to hose down the spindly three-story tower. The rounds flared harmlessly against the personal shields projected by its mage crew. The tower swiftly cleared the trees, its six legs letting it scramble over the uneven terrain with ease. 
It slammed to a halt, barely swaying, and the heavy shard burst from the splendles at the top. It cracked overhead and slammed into the osprey as it desperately tried to lift off, the violent explosion sending debris and shrapnel flying over the field. Frick! Kimber shouted. We've got a boat down, Rin heard another marine shout. Dozens of shard bursts snapped and crackled towards them. He angled his shields to deflect all that he could. Another flash came from the spindles on the top of the tower, but instead of a shard burst, a pillar of energy shot up and arched over to the tower as hundreds of owls pouring out their trees, doming them over the area shield. It stabilized just in time as several streaks were slammed into the rapid succession, bombarding Rin and the marines with concussive of heavy explosions. The shield rippled briefly, but was otherwise unperturbed. Crap! It looks like a heavy artillery carpet bombing to take down eight of those things. How much can one hold up to? Bradford asked. The spindle splashed again, and the heavy shard burst thumped on the ground halfway across the camp. One of its legs swung up, over and down. The tower started to move forward, one leg at a time. I don't know, Rin said. It takes us an hour of bombardment with several artillery pieces to bring one down. We've never brought down more than three. Danger close, danger close. The shout came from seconds before the crackling thunder of the war dog, splattering against the tower shields, followed by a second later by a short brrrt. The shields howled. A flash pulsed out from the spindles, and Rin watched as the heavy shard burst flew towards the warthog as it blanketed away from its attack. It was out of range and it's going to miss. Rin's thoughts were interrupted when the shard burst reached a maximum range and detonated, bursting into a core of mana shards and extending it several hundred meters more. The shards riddled the warthog and one of the bulbs at the back and the ripping off of the tail, fins, and a third of the wing, and the half of the other. Rin watched as the warthog shuddered across the sky, waiting for it to fall. He kept waiting as, to his utter amazement, it managed to recover. It flew off, trailing smoke, but still flying. Almost as if in a rage of lack of a kill, another shower burst flew from the tower and thumped into the ground. Too close for comfort, dirt and the bee rained down, scattering by his shields. LT, Bradford shouted. I saw it, he responded, and continued shouting into his radio. Another explosion thumped into the far side of the elven shield, and the tower continued to advance. The marines on the eastern side of the camp were steaming back into the positions, or past them, pressed back by several hundred elves advancing with the walker, spitting lesser shard bursts. Frick! Mayor shouted. Pull back, sergeant. The elves is too hot. We're outnumbered, and we don't know what it'll take to bring that shield down. We're going to get away from that thing and find a new extraction point. The shield crept towards them. Tashan! Rin cursed, crunching his shield and throwing an angled wall up directly between them and the tower. The heavy shard burst flashed out and skipped off his shield to detonate harmlessly in the air above them. The owls will overtake you in trees, Rin said. They can draw mana from them somehow. Frick! Mayers cursed. Well, we can't stay here. They'll overrun us. A streak of smoke and fire shot up from behind them and slammed into the shield, again with no effect. Rin reconfigured his shield to deflect a renewed volley of shard bursts coming from the elven mages. They're all bunching under my shield. I can't hold off the mage tower by myself. Sir, I have an idea. I need the javelin teams, Bradford said. Sergeant, I know what you're thinking, and you're freaking crazy. Sir, Bradford stared him down. 
We've got Ayat. Just give me a javelin team. We can do it. Another Sharbow stumped on the ground ahead of them. Rin couldn't deflect that one. A salvo of smoke and fire from the viper flashed against the shield and continued to edge closer. Rin heard something sharpening from a corpsman. Damn it, Mayers cursed. Whiskey 2, this is Echo 1 Actual. I need a javelin team on my position, ASAP. He paused. Whiskey 2 Actual, Echo 1 Actual. We're at the loot dump under the friendly shield. I've got a squad going under the enemy shields with our embedded Kishman to put fire directly on the tower. Echo 1 Actual, copies out. He threw down his headset. The rest of the company and the weapons company are putting back to here and are going to withdraw to the tree line. Second artificer. Sir! Rin kept his attention focused on the tower and the encroaching owls, ready to try and deflect another shard burst. How many people can you effectively cover in there? Much more than the second squad will be at tight at the range, sir. Myers grimaced. Two teams of marines lugging fat tubes jogged up. Javelins as ordered, sir. Sergeant Bradford. Sir. Another shardburst thumped down behind them. Rin heard screams. Take your squad and these two javelin teams under that shield and take that freaking thing out. He stabbed a finger at the tower. The rest of the first platoon will fan out and draw the fire to try and give you some kind of cover. Aye, sir, Bradford shouted. Second squad on me. She loaded up a fresh round in her grenade launcher and fired it at the base of the shield. It struck at the starting pouring white smoke. Move up. Freaking A, Kowalski shouted. Let's go frick up some Keeblers. Rin narrowed the shield and sprinted forward, surrounded by marines. They passed several others, some lying down and others falling back, and some huddled under whatever cover they could find as the shard burst flashed around them. Some were dead. Several thumbs landed ahead on either side, and a heavy smoke screen began to billow around them. Moving through the smoke, Rin's nostrils burned, but the spell fire around him thinned and became more erratic. Another shard blast bled up overhead, and Rin heard something explode behind them. This is crazy. This is the most insane thing that I've ever done in my entire life, he thought as they ran up to the shield and passed through. It had never been meant to stop infantry, but I think it can work, which is more insane. Clearing the smoke, they became visible once more, and shard bursts fired at them from all around. Rin flattened his shield, deflecting the shard burst barely over their heads, as human gunfire hammered around him. Owls started dropping. Contact left. Squad right. Squad right. Rag out, Samson shouted, ripping the pin out of a green ball. He chucked it overhead to them and to the left. It tumbled through the air, skipped off the ground once and exploded amidst the cluster of owls, sending them all to the ground. Half started screaming. The other half didn't. Kowalski's saw chattered to the right, mowing down lines of majors. Several shouts came from ahead of them, and the formation of Gemlades charged in. Contact front, Bradford shouted, bringing her rifle up, but Rin beat her. Two rapid mana bursts punched into the leading Gemblades, toppling them to the ground with gaping holes in their chests. He quickly switched to a fireburst, dumping more mana into the artifice than he'd been able to spare in a long time. The spell pulsed from his staff and burst into a cone directly in front of the Gemblades, engulfing the entire formation of fire. They screamed. Jesus, shields, Kowalski shouted. Frickin' get some! Bradford's rifle barked several times, and Rin flicked the shields to the left, 
deflecting a salvo of shard blasts covering the line of Alvin regulars as they charged. Rin was about to fire on them when the felt the manor surged. Instinctively, knowing that the angle was too steep to deflect the shard blast high enough, he flipped his shield forward and the blast from the tower flashed out, striking his shield, and deflecting down, right into the charging column of regulars. With a heavy thump, the dirt and pieces of owls went flying high. Well, that wasn't intentional, he thought as he flicked his shield back in place, but nobody needs to know that. Defilade, Bradford shouted, pointing at the newly formed crater. The squad surged forward. Rin hopped over the elven body parts and jumped into the crater as the other marines dove in around him. Kowalski and one of the javelin teams slid into cover behind a toppled cart that had been full of crates and barrels. Just get those javelins on target, Bradford shouted as the marines ripped and fled end of the front of their fat tubes. Rin sent another fireburst into a mixed cluster of valves, then desperately fumbled for a fresh mana crystal to his star front dry. The flames engulfed all but two mages, but several shots from Bradford's rifle took them down. Reloading, she shouted, dropping the empty magazine out of her rifle and grabbing a fresh one to slam home. Reloading, Rin belatedly added as he shoved a fresh crystal into the staff and restored his shield. Holy frick, there's people strapped to that thing, Dubois shouted. What? There's freaking people strapped to that thing. Eight, ten foxes. Crap, you're right, shouted one of the javelin marines. They're freaking cats, Kowalski shouted. Jesus, some of them are kids, Kimber said. They've got a freaking kid strapped to that thing. They're dead, Rin shouted, sending several mana pulses into a group of valves advancing on their position. Something heavy thumped against the shield from the outside. What? Radford asked. They're dead, Rin screamed back. Once you are linked to a tower, there is no undoing it. They're dead already. With a wordless scream, he threw an overcharged fireburst at the elves, ending them. The tower slowly strode forward. Frickin' kill that thing, Bradford shouted with the javelin teams. Seeker's good, shouted the marines. It's lit up like a goddamn Christmas tree. Havelock, asked the partner. Havelock. Missile. Bradford grabbed Rin and pulled him from behind the tube. Firing, shouted the marine with the tube, and with a thump and a roar and a fat object spat out of the tube and then took off with a jet of flame. It raced towards the tower and a second later slammed into the personal shields and the thundering report and ball of fire. The tower staggered, but continued forward. Hit! Crap, it's still up! Missile! Firing! As the missile thumped and roared away, Rin felt another mana surge. He tipped the shield up and curved it, just slightly, and the shard burst past and the missile in flight, curving along the shield and thumping into the ground behind them. A second missile detonated against the tower, rocking it back. It stumbled two steps and then steadied itself, continuing forward. It's still up, Samson shouted as the dirt rained down around them. Reloading, Rin shouted. Kowalski's saw chatted away. Goma, where's that freaking ammo? Its shields are down, Bradford shouted. It's taking damage, hit it again. Missile, firing. A thump and a roar. The missile streaked towards the tower and detonated inside the twisted spire, just below the copula of its peak. The tower shattered, the copula was thrown high, broken in three. 
Fragments of gold and platinum spindles were support columns were blasted across the field, and the remains of the tower collapsed in an arching discharge of partially charged spell and shield bubble above them collapsed. Frick yeah, eat crap, you freaking crap bags. Freaking come get some. All units, Echo 1 2, splash 1, target down. Bradford ducked as more shard blasts flew overhead, and Rin hastily shoved a new mana crystal into his staff and threw the shield back up. Request closed air support. Frag out, Comer shouted, lobbing a frag out of the defilade at the advancing group of owls. It exploded as Rin threw a mana pulse followed by a fireburst at the mage leading the team of regulars, and then there was a helo of a ched. Cannons on either side of it hummed, spraying streams of fire and showering them in brass casings. Rin flicked his shield over to protect them from the metal rain and sat down, panting. Explosions and gunfire crackled around them as the yells were pushed back into the trees. Kowalski crowed with victory and the marines surged around him. The crackle of explosions continued into the trees, until they were silenced by the thunderous boom that they grew over the towering column of smoke. Woohoo! Frick yeah! That was frickin' JDAM! Two thousand rounds of American frick you! We did it, Ren panted. We did it! That was the most insane thing that I've ever done in my entire life, he laughed. And we did it. Thanks to you, man, Bradford said, clapping him on the shoulder and giving him a good shake. We'd have been fricked a dozen times over if it weren't for you. You're a natural-born Gillibra, Stevens grinned at him. I'm not going to lie, Alam Waiju said, sitting down on the edge of the crater. I did not think that you were going to survive that one. Then why the frick did you come with us, Doc? Kowalski asked. Because somebody had to hold you while you cried like a little biatch, he replied. <laughs> frick you, Doc. Hey, said one of the javelin marines, patting Ren on the shoulder. You can cover us any time, Shields. Ren nodded. Everyone good? Bradford asked. Nobody got any extra holes that they didn't have before. Just the holes you and Samson keep leaving in my heart, Jabs. You don't have a heart, Kowalski. The Marine Corps never issued you one. Oh, that's why there's a hole then. Makes sense now. Ren laughed. I think I'm starting to understand there's insanity now. All right, let's get out of this hole and see what we have to do to get an extract out of this prac show. Hurrah, replied several marines. Teriel woke up. It was dark, but not as dark as it should be. The sky above was black, lit only by a scattering of stars, but harsh, unnatural light flooded the nearby area. He slowly picked himself up. I must get away from here. I'm too close to the human's defenses. He placed a hand against the rough bark of the tree that had passed out beneath. The trees aren't talking to me. They don't even acknowledge my presence. He considered this for a moment. His manner reserves had replenished somewhat. Ethereal magic was just abundant here as it was in his world. Or is it just because I'm so close to the portal? Something to investigate. But first, I am too close to the human's defenses. With that, mana he reserves low as they were, as Paul went the heavy mana draw of true invisibility, and instead blended himself in with his surroundings. Picking a direction away from the portal, he began to walk. End of chapter Retreat Hell, Chapter 7 Written by Lithy Dragon Yeah, home, sweet home, Bradford said, stretching as she stepped out of the Humvee. She snagged her pack and slammed the door. With a huff, 
she swung the pack onto her shoulders and the rest of her squad unloaded behind her. Close enough, Edison said, slamming his own door and banging the side of the Humvee. The driver waved and pulled away. Hell of a day, huh? Frick yeah, it was, Kowalski said, bouncing over. We murdered those freaking Kibblers, good. Bradford rolled her eyes. Come on, let's stow our gear and find some chow. Yeah, I'm freaking starving, said Gomez. Yeah, our boy here needs a freaking meal, Kowalski said, clamping an arm around Gomez's shoulder as the rest of the squad fell in behind Bradford. He finally popped his cherry and turned himself into a real freaking marine. He waved at Rin. Even Shields got some today. Freaking burn those witches alive. That was some freaking holy crap you pulled back there, Shields, the was said, slapping the Kishman on the shoulder. That tower would have had us for breakfast if it wasn't for you. Rin hunched over, ears fletching low. He tried to wave off the attention. I just worked a shield. Ah, dude, you're a hell of a badass, Stevens chimed in. You were totally clutch, brah. Rin pointed an ear at him with a sideway glance. Are you speaking words or nonsense? Ha, you'll get used to him, Kimber said. He's a straight-up soul cow surfer boy. And what the frick is that? He asked, pointing at the giant balloon that had suddenly taken off from the other side of the tent, a large pole dangling beneath it. The frick? Gomez stared after it. Holy crap, Radford said, as with a smile. It's a rock-coon. What the frick are they strapping a raccoon to a balloon for? Kowalski said. No frick-nuts, not a raccoon, a rock-oon. Portmanteau of rocket balloon, she pointed at the dwindling balloon above them. I don't speak French jabs, Kowalski stared at her. She rolled her eyes. It's a rocket strapped to a high-altitude weather balloon. Balloon gets the rocket way up into the upper atmosphere, then pops, and the rocket goes the rest of the way up. She laughed up at the barely visible speck. We made one when I was in a rocket group club in the Murray High. You made a rocket in high school, Samson asked. She shrugged. I was just a couple of tubes of cardboard strapped into about two grand's worth of model rocket engines, with a gyro stuffed inside and a GoPro slapped on top. It barely got suborbital, but we did technically get it into space. Damn thing came down somewhere in Virginia. She grinned at fond memories. We dressed the GoPro up to look like it was Space Sphere from Portal, and stuffed it with an MP3 player that played the lines on a loop to make it easier to find. Oh, look at the big brainiac! Kowalski waved his hands around as they resumed the trek back to the pavilion. Fricking nerd. Frick you, Kowalski. Hey, Kowalski might be too dumb to see past an X-Crayon, but I think that's fricking awesome. Thanks, Edison. Fricking nerds says the guy who won the Division Call of Duty Championship two years in a row. Hey, COD isn't for nerds. It's official, guys, Kimber chuckled. Video games have been taken over by the mainstream jocks. What's the purpose of a raccoon? Ren asked as the rest of the squad shook their heads at Kowalski. Science, Edison shouted, holding up a fist, receiving a quirked ear and an eyebrow from Ren. Yeah. The rocket's probably packed full of sensors and cameras, Bradford added over his shoulder. The eggheads are probably trying to measure everything all the way up to the edge of space. See how much your world is like ours. When you say space, what do you mean? Ren asked as Bradford ducked under the door flap of their pavilion. Heh, Bradford chuckled as she walked over to her rack and dropped a pack next to it. So, um, space is the empty void above the sky, past the edge of the atmosphere. 
that the earth, the moon, the sun, and all the planets and stars are moving through. Above the sky, Rin said, his ears drooping sideways as they came to a halt next to his own rack, giving her a skeptical stare. Above the firmament of the heavens and the stars are fixed too. Bradford laughed. Dude, this world is anything like ours. There's stuff we've learned and can do that will blow your mind. Told you, man, Edison prodded Rin's pack. We put people on our moon. No, Rin said, unslinging his pack and dropping it next to his cot. I just... No, that's too fantastical. I don't believe you. Dude, we came through a portal from another world. How is walking on the moon not believable? The wise said. Were you freaking nerd? Shut up. I'm freaking hungry. Because we created the portal. I know how that works. Rin snapped back, his ears sweeping up and back, angled like a second set of horns. Wait, what? Edison stepping back in shock. You created the portal. That's where it came from. Yes, I f- I think. His ears drooped to fatal. In, in theory. What do you mean, in theory? Bradford asked. We've theorized about how to create portals for decades, Rin said, tugging on the ear that regained some of his composure. I didn't think it was possible. Not really. He flicked his ears forward and back. It was like a puzzle that was missing several key pieces, and I personally didn't think some of those pieces truly existed. He waved in the direction of the portal. Obviously, that is not the case. He sighed. There must have been some new discovery, something that fit the pieces together. It's too much of a coincidence for it to be some random phenomenon. The pavilion was silent as they stared at Rin, considering the new knowledge bomb. The war was going badly, wasn't it? Bradford asked. Yes, Rin sighed. He waved in the direction of the river and at the battlefield. You saw yesterday. Was it really just yesterday? He tilted his head and thought. Both ears flopped to one side. With a breath, he shook himself clear of the distraction. The Lord Generals tried to downplay how bad it was, but yesterday, the Owls took the bulk of what was left of our army and threw it into total rout. You guys were putting a Hail Mary, Miller said. When Ren gave him a confused look, he elaborated. It's a play from a game called football. Your teams push back almost to the end zone on your side of the field, almost out of time, behind on points, and the other team is about to get the ball. So you throw a long shot pass and pray the Virgin Mary, Mother of God, that the receiver will catch the ball and run it to the enemy's end zone without getting tackled or driven out of bounds to score and win the game. Ren listened, his ears fixed on Miller. He flicked in the air and nodded. I think that's exactly what happened. Frickett, Kowalski said, damn Keebler is in need of a frickload of killing, killing what marines are made for. And if the cats are the ones who made the portal and gave me the opportunity to kill people who deserve to be dead, with extreme prejudice, I'll buy him a freaking beer any day. Amen to that, brother, Miller said. Hoorah, added Kimber. Ooh, freaking raw, said Gomez with a smile. Now, let's quit gabbing about a bunch of freaking nerd crap, and let's go get some freaking chow. All agreed in the hunger, the squad finished stowing their gear and headed for the chow hall. So how does the portal work? Edison asked as they made the short trek to the chow hall. Well, Rin said as his ears flicked back against the head for a moment. I don't know exactly how, how it works, but the basic theory. He considered for a moment and then held his hands together, squeezing fingers in tiny points. 
In layman's term, on the most minuscule levels, the aether, through which all manner flows, the underlying fabric of reality, acts as a discrete point, like a single piece of ether as well as part of a greater fabric. He held up one hand, palm up. It has long been shown that if you can isolate a fine enough point in the ether, you can entwine it with another, finely isolated point of ether. He held up his other hand, also palm up. Mana channeled into one, he held the point in his hand, then resonates with the other one. He held up his other hand, as if reverberating down a narrow tunnel between the two. That's quantum entanglement, Bradford said. Maybe? Rin reached up with the tug of his ear, but caught himself and flicked his ears instead. The translation spell was far from complete, and even the best translations don't give cultural context. About that, Samson said as they filed into the large tent that was a chow hall. How does that whole translation thing work? If there's magic that can screw with our heads like that, don't we have to worry about mind control? Uh, it... He stopped mid-sentence as his nose twitched, his eyes going wide. What's that smell? Holy crap, is that... like... real food, bruh? Stephens asked, pointing at the line of marines shuffling past steam trays loaded with hot food. Define real food, Dubois said. Not an MRE, brah. A rock is not an MRE. That doesn't make it food. Compared to a vomilet, it might be, Kimber said. Uh, fair point. That's actually real food, Bradford said, snagging a tray of cutlery for herself and for Rin as they joined the chow line. Ah, crap, it's freaking surf and turf. Looks like we're getting deployed, boys. Nowalski, we're already deployed, Dubois rolled his eyes. Then we're getting double deployed. I don't think that they can officially say get fricked up on deployment until they've given us a surf and turf cocktease, Miller stated. Pretty sure it's the regs in somewhere. So they shoved it in our rear and then remembered that they were supposed to do a little foreplay. What is this? Ren asked, staring at the trays of food as they approached, practically salivating. Fresh meat, Bradford said, watching as the food service specialist set a dripping steak onto her tray. She managed to control her own salivating enough to ask, Do you want steak or seafood? Rin just stared at the trays, jaw working silently. Give him both, Kimber said from further back in the line. The mess attendant glanced at Bradford. He's been on field rations longer than you've been in the corpse, she said, jerking her head at the steam trays. And he pulled our rears out of the fire today. Give him both. With a shrug, the attendant dropped a steak and a lobster tail onto Rin's tray. Bradford stifled aloft. He looked like his eyes are going to pop out of his skull. They continued down the line, collecting selection of canned vegetables and pre-made rolls, then made their way to an open table. Hey, what if he's got, like, um, allergies, brah? Or, like, uh, what if his food is toxic? I think we're a little past that, Stevens, Dubois said. We've fed him twice already. Well, just keep an eye on him, Bradford said, unable to hold her laughter at Rin's suddenly pained expression. After taking a moment to eye his cutlery and watch the humans tuck into their food, Rin sawed off a piece of steak. Bradford watched as he stabbed it with a fork and slowly brought it to his mouth. He pulled a morsel off the fork and watched him practically melt as he chewed it and savored it. Once he swallowed, Bradford opened her mouth to speak, but he picked up the steak with both hands and tore into it directly. Well... I was going to ask him how long it's been since he had fresh meat, Bradford muttered to Dubois, sitting next to her. He chuckled and shook his head, continuing with his own meal. As Rin wolfed down his meat, Bradford caught flashes of his teeth. He's got canines, but not as pronounced as a wolf or a dog, and his molars look flatter. She tucked into her steak, 
chuckling as the rest of the marines stared at Rin for a moment before shrugging and tearing into their own food. Hey, Jabs, Kimber said as he pulled apart the lobster tail. You said that you went to Raymond Murray High. Yep, I thought you went to a high school in Maryland. I graduated high school in Maryland, she said around a bite of steak. Dad transferred to D.C. in the summer before my senior year. He was stationed in Pendleton by first three years of high school. Your dad was a Marine too, Gomez asked from across the table. Not just that, Dubois said, setting his cup down and waving his fork at Bradford. Jabs here is a pure breed Marine Corps brat. Fourth generation, she grinned, washing down another bite of her own drink. Dad was in Kosovo, Afghanistan, and most of Iraq too. Gramps was in Vietnam and retired after the Iraq one. My great-grandfather served with Chesty Puller himself in the Second World War and Korea. Damn, Sergeant, that's a hell of a pedigree, Gomez said. Um, how do I do? Rin asked, holding up a lobster tail and looking like he wanted to gnaw on it. They never split them like they're supposed to, Samson said, rolling his eyes. Just twist the tail, yeah, that, those bits, yep, just twist them right up, yep, yep, like that. Now just use your fork and push it into the meat, or, or, or just pull it out with your fingers, yep, yeah, that, that works too. The rest of the squad shared a chuckle as Rin scarfed down the lobster. He ignored them. Dude, I haven't seen someone suck down meat that fast since that time Samson talked half the squad into going out bar hopping with him, and he had half the gay bars in downtown San Diego. Kowalski laughed as they filed out of the chow hall. Rin blinked as his tail went rigid behind him and his ears did an erratic twirl. You know, Kowalski, Bradford chimed in, you sure do talk a lot about homosexuality for a straight guy. Didn't you end up dancing with half the guys in that last club we went to? Samson asked. It was a dance floor. I was for dancing. I'm pretty sure that you were doing more than just dancing, Samson chuckled. Let's be fair. Bradford cut in before Kowalski could get worked up. All of you were doing more than just dancing, she laughed. Didn't Ramirez spend half the night riding around on the shoulders of that giant bear? Yeah, what the frick did they call him? Kowalski asked. Pickles? Piccolo, Bradford giggled. It's Italian for small. Ha! Yeah, I remember trying to Google that on my phone. Didn't we get kicked out of that place? Bradford asked, pushing aside the door flap on the pavilion. Frick yeah, we did, Kowalski grinned. Goddamn Coulson stripped down to his goddamn speedo and started pole dancing on the goddamn bar. Then he freaking threw up all over it. We're talking exorcist-level projectile vomiting. And then he kept dancing. <laughs> yeah, I saw it hit the bartender, freaking Coulson. Ola slowly trailed to a chuckle, and then nothing as she remembered what had happened to Coulson the day before. What his face had looked like after being torn open by shrapnel. Frick. Silence fell as they sat down on the racks, fiddling with the equipment. So, the bois cut in, jerking them all back to the painful contemplation. Ayat, we never actually figured out what rank you're equivalent to. He gestured to Bradford. Like, our ranks go from E1 to E9, for the enlisted side. E1's a private, Gomez is an E2 private first class. He gestured at Miller, Edison, and Stevens. Those fricks are all E3s, or Lance Corporals. We're all Corporals at E4, which is the lowest non-commissioned officer, or NCO rank. Jabs is a sergeant now, E5, Kimber added. They lead squads and learn how to yell at people for putting their hands in their pockets. Staff Sergeant runs the platoon with the LT, Dubois continued, rolling his eyes. 
Then you get gunnery sergeant at E7, and first sergeant and master sergeant at E8. Same rank, but they fill different roles. Same with E9. You got sergeant majors like Sergeant Major Baracus, who fills two fives battalion sergeant major billet. And then you've got master gunnery sergeants like Master Guns Cho, who fills more of a senior expert role than an admin and management role. Kimber scratched his head. I guess it can kind of be confusing. Bren shrugged his ears. Not really any more than ours. He paused to consider it for a moment, rubbing the base of his horn. Each line, which is roughly equivalent to a marine company, I think, has one or two first artificers. Second artificers support the first artificers directly, or provide artifice support to individual columns, which are roughly equivalent to your platoons, though column support is often taken up by third artificers. He shifted in his cot, tugging the field modification in his pants for his tail. Every royal host armsman is initially trained as a pikeman. We are all required to retain basic proficiency with a pike, but many other specialized roles exist, such as archers and crossbowmen, artillerymen, artificer, etc. He paused to make sure that the rest of the squad was following and continued when Bradford gave him a nod. After basic training, I was granted the rank of artificer apprentice. Next comes artificer junior, then third artificer, second and first. He ticked them off on his fingers. Artificer adepts command the artificers of a whole contingent, and master artificer is the highest rank an artificer can achieve. So you have seven enlisted ranks. In basic essence, yes, Rin nodded, though there are more distinctions. Rank is earned by a combination of time, performance, and skill. At least, notionally, they are, he frowned. Patronage matters a lot in the higher levels. Yeah, it's all politics at that level for us too, Bradford rolled her eyes. It seems political bullcrap is universal. Rin nodded. A lack of patronage can stunt an artificer's career, even at the middle level. At my level. He glanced at the side for a moment, flicking an ear in annoyance, before continuing. Actual authority varies a little by assigned position and artificing specialty. For example, a combat artificer like myself, or an artillery artificer, will have authority over medical artificer on the battlefield. Yeah? We have position of authority type stuff too. Doesn't prevent some frickheads from trying to pull rank anyway, Kowalski grumbled. The rest of the squad all nodded in agreement. Artificers rarely command anything other than artificers in the field. Authority at all levels usually falls to a regular armsman or lord commanders. Rin looked up, quoting a memorized passage. The job of an artificer is not to lead men into battle, but to support their column or line or contingent. There's not to reason why, there's but to do and die, Bradford quoted. Tennyson, Dubois asked, Bradford nodded. Rin snorted at the line, flicking his ears back and forth. Sounds exactly right. He reached up and rubbed the horn again. As second artificer assigned to support a column, rather than the line's first artificer, my authority would fall somewhere between a corporal and a sergeant. So, you're like a super corporal or a half sergeant, Kimber asked. Heh, <laughs> I'll half your sergeant, Kowalski chuckled. Ren opened his mouth to reply and stopped. He turned to stare at Kowalski. One ear flicked up while the other flicked down. How do you manage to turn everything into some kind of innuendo? Talent, Kowalski said, crossing his arms behind his head as in self-satisfied smile. Ren was still considering a reply when the door flap opened. Fricking found you guys! Ah, oh, crap, Kimber muttered. Corporal Davis walked in, lugging a sea bag in addition to a pack and rifle. 
Been looking all over. Nobody seemed to know where the frick you were at. I thought you were getting out of the medsep, Edison said. Turns out bacillar migraines suddenly aren't medically disqualifying when there's no crap war on. Time to get some, right? Bradford grit her teeth and the rest of the squad rolled their eyes and tried to pretend Davis wasn't there. Davis lugged his gear across the pavilion and dropped it on the rack between Samson and Kimber, pausing to catch his breath. He was already pushing the weight limit before he went to Limdu, Bradford thought. His pants button looks like it's in condition one. Samson lay back and stared at the overhead in silence. Kimber rolled over to face away from Davies. You already missed the chance to get some, Kowalski said. He was still lying on his rack with his hands behind his head, but his previous joviality gone. Twice. Hey, it's not my fault medical took so long to clear my waivers, he protested, putting his helmet off. At least he managed to get a SAT haircut before he deployed. Anyway, where's Gutierrez at so I can check in with the squad leader? He glanced around, stopping when his gaze crossed Rin. And who the frick is this guy? Gutierrez is in recovery ward at UC San Diego, Bradford said, standing up. He got his leg blown off yesterday. I'm squad leader now. She turned to make sure that he could see her new rank pin and locked eyes with him. Try and pull rank on me now, jerk. This, she said, gesturing to Rin, is second artificer Hayat of the Granlin Royal Host. He has been seconded to the Granlin Army to provide us with artificer support and to evaluate our Granlin military capabilities. His rank is roughly equivalent to sergeant. Rin flicked an ear up at her, but remained silent. Not exactly accurate, I know, but I'm doing you a favor. Ayat, this is Corporal Davies. He is a fire team leader of second team. Rin stood up and turned to face Davies, giving him a small nod of acknowledgement. Good evening, Corporal Davies. I look forward to working with you. Davies frowned. What the frick did he just say? He said good evening and that he looks forward to working with you, Edison said. You can't understand him. He was still back in Pendleton when we got here, Bradford thought. You can understand that, Davies asked. All I heard was yips and yells. Oh, crap. You weren't in range, Edison said. You didn't get the translation. In range for what? What translation? Some Kishman artificer, savant type, popped a massive extra effect translation spell right when we showed up here, Edison said, like huge area of effect. I heard it even caught some guys in the defensive line on Earth's side of the portal. He waved at Rin. We can all understand him. Is this going to be a problem? Rin asked. I hope not, Bradford replied. You hope not what? That this will be a problem, Gomez said. Hey, Shields, why don't you just cast a translation spell? It won't got to be super huge or anything, just on Davies. Not my specialty, Rin shook his head. The only artifices I know how to apply to someone's head are destructive. I don't even know where to begin with the translation spells. Now what's he saying? He says he can try doing a translation spell, but it might blow your head off, Kowalski said. That's not what I said, Rin said, snapping his head around to glare at Kowalski. His ears popped up straight. Meh. Close enough, Kowalski replied. I'd like to not have my head blown off. Thank you very much. All right, settle down, Bradford said, intervening before things got carried away. Look, it's been a long day. It's getting late, and we've all had to deal with a lot of crap. Let's just hit the rack tonight, and then we can figure this all out in the morning. I in the morning, she enunciated, cutting Davies off. Stevens, kill the light. Aye, Sergeant, he replied, turning off the light string that they had rigged inside the pavilion. 
Radford sighed, taking off her blouse before sitting down and to pull off her boots and socks. She heard the rest of the squad settling in for the night while Davies grumbled his way back to his chosen rack. Lying down, she closed her eyes and tried to ignore the sound of Davies rummaging through his bag in the dark. Tomorrow is going to be fun. Michaels knocked on the doorframe. You wanted to see me, sir? A helicopter rumbled overhead outside. Come on in, Colonel, said Colonel Anders from behind a desk of his new field office. Have a seat. He waved to the empty chair in front of his desk. Sounds of construction and a bustle of an active military base could be heard through the rapidly constructed walls. Good morning, General, Michael said as he took a seat, nodding at Brigadier General Zorochek, who was occupying the other seat in front of Anders's desk. Something's up. I don't remember ever joining the CEO of 1st Marine Division in Colonel Anders's office. Good morning, Colonel, Zorochek said with a smile and a nod. If General Zorro is smiling, this is either good or really bad. So, uh, what's going on, sir? Michaels asked, steering himself for the unpleasant news. Like any other war, divorce, or Kowalski starting another international incident. Straight to the point, as always, Zorochek grinned. That'll probably get you in trouble some day, but I like it. It's good news for the two five, Anders said. While you boys were out taking a fight to the enemy, three more infantry battalions managed to get footy in theatre. Half of the first tank battalion is rolling through the portal as we speak, and a second CB battalion is in another way from Port Huainimi. They should be on site by noon. Sounds like we're ramping up fast, sir. We are, Zarachek confirmed, but it's still going to take another week to get the rest of the One Marine's combat elements in theater, probably two to sort out our supply and logistics issues, and three for the army to show up, frick everything up, and wag their schlong around while they figure out how to unfrick themselves. This all means that 2-5 is getting reassigned, Anders said. Your battalion is being relocated back here, to Tolkien. Are we being pulled out of the fight, sir? Hardly, Anders scoffed. But your battalion was the first to the thick of it yesterday, for an engagement against a force as much as twice your number. With artillery support that neutralized your air support, your casualties at Backstreet 1 was pretty damn light. But your boys didn't come away unscathed, and they've earned a break. Your orders are to rest, recuperate and re-equip, and most importantly, retrain. Your boys led the charge into this fight, and they led the charge into the first offensive action of the war. Zarachek added. They've kicked rears everywhere they went, and that's not gone unnoticed. General Langston himself wants 2-5 up front leading the way when we make a big push, which means I need them rested and ready to go when that happens, and ready to work with the embedded Ganlin artifices against the new kinds of threats that these elves are throwing at us. I understand, sir, Michael said. I was at Backstreet too, and we didn't see anything beyond the initial engagement but I have full confidence in Major Winters' report on the Artifice's actions and capabilities. It's not something that I want to go into a fight without, even without the Keebler's invisibility tricks. Michaels hid an internal flinch. God damn it, that word catches like a damn plague. That was pretty damned impressive, Zarachek nodded. It could change the whole lot of things and not just here in Gala. That's why 2-5 is being pulled back, Anders said, handing Michaels a thin folder containing a formal orders. We've talked to the Gandlin into assigning us a small detachment of artificers to help develop new combined arms tactics. It's not as many as we'd like, and most of them aren't going to be permanently assigned to your unit. But they're pretty short-handed. 
What with the still trying to round up half their army out of the countryside? When do we start training with them? Four days, Anders said. That's why we want 2-5 moving back here today. I'll give you some time to settle in and get set up, considering you'll have to build up most of your own training facilities. Michaels nodded. That figures. That's not a whole lot of time, but my boys will get it done. We have full confidence that they will, Anders said. Thank you, sir. Is there anything else? Michael raised an eyebrow at his boss and his boss's boss. There is, Zarochek said. It's why I'm here, actually. He sat back in his chair. The Ganon military have been happy enough to provide us with artifice devices that disrupt elven invisibility, and the artifices needed to tend them. But they have been, um, cautious about sharing details on magic in general, and their flavor of it in particular. He nodded with an accepting wave. Understandably so. We rolled in from nowhere, kicked the rears of the guys kicking their rears, so while they're pretty damn happy to have us on their side, they're also pretty damn wary. He shrugged. So are we. We just met, and trust comes slow. Neither us want a frick on the first date, sir. Zerichek laughed. Damn blunt way of putting it, Colonel. Thank you, sir. Anyway, the point I'm getting at is that while we understand why they are being slow to trust, we can't afford to stand around with our schlongs in our hands, either. You got a Geshman artificer ready seconded to your unit, signed by the Supreme Commander before Lord General started whispering caution and suspicion into his ears. Michael shifted in his seat, not sure if he was going to like where this was going. Relax, Colonel, we're not telling you to do anything dastardly, just a little underhanded. Zarachek waved in the direction of the portal. We're shipping a load of those crystals and some of the gear you liberated from the owls up to Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory for study. We want you to send your artificer up there to help them for a day, before he gets told not to. That's the sort of underhandedness I can live with, sir. Michaels, I knew you when you were enlisted, Zarachek said. I remember how underhanded you could be. Michaels allowed himself a smile. I'll have his squad leader bring him up right away, sir. Not so fast, Colonel. The crystals haven't even arrived at Berkeley yet. They're working overtime, but they need to clear out experiments that they had running and set up their equipment. Zarachek waved a hand. They've told us that they'll be ready by Sunday morning, and that works out for us. We want to be subtle about this, and fewer people around makes that easier. Roger that, sir, Michaels nodded. Is there anything else? Yeah. Send him through medical when he gets over here. The docs are still figuring out how their biology, but they are basic chemistry and health stuff is the same, or close enough. Make sure that he's all squared away before you send him through the portal. The last thing we need to have is him keeled over because he picked up a cold, or spread some new plague to the Southern California. Copy all, Michael said, standing up. We'll call you if we need anything else, Colonel. Anders said, nodding his head in dismissal. Aye, sir, Michael said before turning and walking out of the office. Ah, home, sweet home, again, Bradford said, stepping out of the Humvee. Close enough, Edison said, hauling his pack out from the seat behind her. A hummer, Lindgren said, dragging his own pack out the Humvee. Samson climbed down from the turret seat and followed him out. What? Edison asked, turning around. La hummer is a contraction of seen and seen again. He slung his pack onto his shoulders, managing to stagger only a little this time. Ha! Huh. We call that deja vu, Bradford said, 
pulling her pack out and slamming the door. It's French for already seen. What is French you speak of? I heard it mentioned several times now. Rin walked around the human Humvee to join her. The French are a bunch of wussies who surrendered at the first sign of a fight, Kowalski said, stomping over to them as the Humvee pulled away. France is one of the other nations back on Earth, Samson said, pointing a thumb over his shoulder to the portal that loomed over the base. They're one of our allies, and America wouldn't exist if we weren't for them. And we've pulled their rears out of defeat a few times in the last, uh... He rolled his eyes up, thinking for a moment. Sentry and some change? Well, let's not stand here with our schlongs in our hands, Bradford said, turning to walk towards the new home away from home though she didn't miss the alarmed look of Rin's face. Let's go find a decent tent before the rest of the battalion steals all the good ones. Still think we should have brought up a villain, Kowalski grumbled. Eh, we would have had to give it up eventually, anyway, Bradford said. Besides, look on the bright side. What bright side, Kowalski said. We don't have to set up the tent city. She waved at the rows of tents before them. A bunch of POGs already did that for us. About freaking time they did something useful, Kowalski said. Had the rest of the squad fell in behind them, Bradford just barely managed to hear Rin ask Edison, Do human women have schlongs too? Edison burst out laughing, sent into a fit of hysterics so great that he couldn't speak and could barely walk, and leaving the rest of the squad demanding to know what was so funny. Bradford grinned. And this is why you never use a mechanic in a can products, Kimber said, holding up a piece of HVAC tubing, and the gunk covered the rag on a stick that had just run through it. He had grease smeared on his elbows and streaks of grime on his undershirt. Gums up everything inside, and half the time it doesn't fix the leak. He shook his head, shoving the rag through again. At least we don't have to worry about Freon types being mixed up. It all leaked out. What is a Freon and how does that work? Ren asked, sitting across from Kimber and inspecting this disassembled pieces of HVAC unit laid out in a blanket next to where they had been connected to their tent. His ears were perked up and facing forward with keen interest. Freon's a type of a refrigerant. It's a range of different chemicals, actually. Some we don't use anymore. Kimber worked his rag on a stick through the tubing. It's pretty much anything can be refrigerated, depending on what you need to cool down and how you want to cool it down. Water, air, nitrogen, propane actually works pretty good. He pulled the rag out of the tubing with a grunt of effort and dunked it in a bucket. The refrigerant cycles works. Well, one of the best ways my pops explained it is like a rag on a bucket. He said, waving the tube on the bucket. Heat's like water in a bucket, right? So, you take your rag, throw it into the bucket, and it soaks up a bunch of water. Then you take it out of the bucket and squeeze real hard, and you get all the water out. You compress it so that there is no room for water in the rag. Then you throw it back at the bucket, where it expands and soaks up more water. He pulled the rag on the stick out of the bucket and wrung it with excess water before shoving it back in the tube. That's your basic refrigeration cycle. When you compress gas, the atoms don't have much room to move about, so they can't hold much heat, which is just energy. When you expand the gas, they have a lot more room to move around in, so they can hold more heat. So you run expanding gas through a heat sink on your hot thing to soak up the heat. Then you pump it over another heat sink where your compressor squeezes until it condenses into a liquid and the heat sink radiates it away. He tugged the rag back out of the tube, 
just like moving water out of a bucket, only with heat. How do you know all this stuff? Gomez asked, sitting next to Rin and looking over the neatly arranged machinery. Behind him, Bradford and Dubois were sparring, practicing the Marine Corps martial arts. My pops taught me, Kimber said, inspecting the tubing before setting it aside and picking up another piece of gunked up that leaked sealer. I used to help him with the AC repair shop. He taught me most of what we knew, and I was supposed to become a partner when I turned 18, and got my certifications. I was eventually going to take it over as a family business deal. Well, what the hell happened? Gomez asked. You're sure as frick ain't working in no repair shop? My pops died when I was 16, Kimber said, not looking up from the part he was scrubbing. He stopped along the freeway one night to help some kid whose beater of a first car had broken down. Drunk driver swerved around four lanes and hit him, killed them both. Oh crap, man, I'm sorry. Gomez sat back, regret and apology written all over his face. No worries, man, Kimber said, inspecting the joint before scrubbing in another part of it. You didn't know, and it's been five, almost six years. He set the joint down and picked up another component. Hey, Miller, pass me some of the CLP. Miller grunted, setting down the bolt on his rifle to pass him the bottle. Thanks, man, Kimber said, squirting some of the rag before handing it back. Miller nodded. Mom had to sell the business, he continued, using the CLP rag to scrub out the gunk. And she had to take on a second job to make ends meet. So life got pretty rough for a bit. The high school recruiter spun me a good story, and it was hard to pass up the benefits. He shrugged. And, well, here I am. I thought the damn liberals made us get rid of Freon because of the ozone or something, Davies said, wandering into the conversation. Kimber rolled his eyes. Freon's just a brand name that's used in the blanket term for a bunch of manufactured chemicals. We don't use chlorofluorocarbons or hydrochlorofluorocarbons anymore, because they do deplete the ozone layer. That's why CFCs are banned and why HCFCs are being replaced by hydrofluorocarbons, which don't deplete the ozone layer. What's the ozone layer? Ren asked, cocking his ears, ignoring the words he didn't understand. Gomez looked lost. Kimber set his latest piece of his cleaning tool down while he thought. Ozone is an allotrope of oxygen, Bradford said, walking over with the bois. You know that pungent smell right after lightning strikes? Yeah, Rin nodded, looking up at her. He's the split between Bradford and Kimber. That's ozone. It's mostly formed by UV light from the sun hitting a regular oxygen in the air. And when lightning strikes... She stopped and looked over the two arrangements of cleaned and not cleaned AC parts. It mostly collects in a layer of the upper atmosphere, and acts as a shield against UV rays from the sun, which can cause sunburn and skin cancer. She looked at Kimber. You're going to be able to put this back together today? Yeah, that's not going to be a problem. It still won't provide any cooling without any Freon, but I'm pretty sure it only leaked out in the first place because some of those hoses weren't clamped down right. Heater still works just fine, too. How are we going to get Freon? Davies asked. It isn't the stuff toxic can require special hazmat certs and regs. Nah, not really, Kimber shrugged. I mean, the EPA still regulates it because HFCs are still greenhouse gases. The stuff this thing is supposed to use is not really toxic. It's heavier than air, so it deplaces oxygen in your lungs, so you'll suffocate and die if you breathe too much of it in. But it's not toxic unless you get super hot. So we'd be fine if we stood in our heads, Gomez asked. Yeah, Kimber snorted, and then started chuckling. 
My pops got me good with that one once, he grinned, walked into the shop and found him standing on his head, up against the wall. I said, Pops, what are you doing? He said a big AC unit we was working on started leaking refrigerant. I asked him if it was still leaking, and he said, yep. Kimber started tilting his head and his body to the side, so I was like, ah, crap, and I joined him. He giggled. He had us up on the wall for at least 20 minutes before Mom came in and yelled at us both. His laugh slowed to a chuckle. Ah, crap, that was, uh, that was about two weeks before he died. He shook his head. He was always doing crap like that. Potato, incoming, Kowalski said, walking around the corner of the tent. He sidestepped around Davies, giving the other marine a wide berth. Corporal Davies, Katri stamped in round the tent. Yes, first sergeant, Davies turned to face Katri, straightening to attention. Katri stopped in front of him, giving him a disgusted look up and down. I understand that you've been a limited duty in facing medical separation for the last month and a half, but that does not excuse you from fitness standards. Starting now, you are on half rations until you feel so inclined as to bring your weight into compliance with Marine Corps regulations. Aye, first sergeant, Davies replied, not quite keeping a flash of anger out of his eyes. Kimber snickered, looking away as he scrubbed a piece of the compressor. Corporal Kimber, Gatry shouted, immediately stepping around Davies at the noise. Is there something you find funny? Do you happen to share Corporal Davies' lack of respect for the standards and regulations of my beloved corps? No, First Sergeant, Kimber said, emptying his hands and standing at attention. Why the frick is your goddamn shirt tails untucked? Catry whirled on Miller. And you, Lance Corporal Miller, your moustache hairs are growing beyond the corners of your mouth. It's unsightly, unsanitary, and most important, in violation of grooming standards. He turned to Bradford. Sergeant Bradford, your squad is starting to look like a bunch of Alvises. They have until old dark hundred to unfrick themselves. I first sergeant, Bradford said. I'll make sure it's taken care of. See that you do. Catry nodded. In addition, sergeant, you are to personally escort your new diversity hire to medical immediately until he has received a proper medical screening in accordance with regulations. He is a walking health hazard both to himself and to this entire camp. Is that understood, Sergeant Bradford? Yes, First Sergeant. Get your squad squared away, Sergeant. Carry on. Aye, First Sergeant, Bradford said, continuing to brace her attention until Catry had marched off to the next tent to harass First Squad. Breaking cockwad, Dubois muttered, no, he's just doing his job, Dubois, Bradford signed. I know what he's doing. He's being an extra jerk about it, but it's still his job. And how is chewing us out over a stupid bullcrap the day after we saved half the goddamn battalion his job? Kimber asked, picking up the compressor part he was scrubbing. Bradford looked at Kimber, considering. I'm not sure it'll be effective if I tell him what he's doing. First sergeant has his reasons, she paused, glancing around. He is still a freaking dick about it, though. She sighed. Just keep your shirt tucked in, Kimber and Miller. I did tell you that the moustache was stretching regulations. Get it shaved properly. She looked at Davies for a moment. Davies, you could probably stand to do a lap or two around the battalion campsite. Davies grumbled and didn't protest as he turned to step into the tent. Bradford rolled her eyes at him. Come on, Ayat. Let's go get you to medical. Dubois, you're in charge while I'm gone. Is this uh, really necessary? Rin asked, looking at Bradford. It is this really necessary? Bradford repeated, looking at the hospital corpsman who was conducting Rin's physical. Yes, it is, HM2 Ackles replied. 
I understand that it might be awkward and uncomfortable, but this is a first-time physical. A full examination is required. Bradford looked at Rin with a shrug. Sorry, Shields, we all went through this when we first processed in. It's just a basic examination. We have the screen here for privacy, Eccles said, and it is strictly a visual examination, no touching. Rin whined softly, tugging at an ear. Fine, he sighed, stepping behind the screen, and Eccles indicated. I'll be right here, Bradford said, sitting down on a stool facing away from the curtain. Rin's ears flicked through a pattern that she wished she understood as he stopped behind the curtain. Well, this has been a fun trip, Bradford thought as she listened to Eccles direct Rin to take off his blouse and trousers and undershirt. Of course, they sent most of the corpsmen who were in range of the translation spell who was sent over to the FOB Williams to help on with the Kishman injured. That actually makes sense, she snorted. Just our luck that it would only leave four who can understand the Grenlin language here, and all of them female. Bradford glanced at her shoulder at the curtain where she half heard a comment from Eccles about something about being backwards. What could he? Oh, Bradford suppressed a laugh with a snort and turned back to contemplate the large tent that composed of Tolkien's field hospital. Larger, more prominent facilities were already under construction, but those things take time. All right, very good. Now I need you to drop your underwear and bend over, facing away from me. What? Rin yipped as he coughed. I beg your pardon. Getting a little frisky in there, Doc. Bradford couldn't help herself. Sergeant, you're not helping. I'm not. Fine. Rin yipped. It's mostly naked and ready. Bradford heard the sound of a cloth being tugged over fur. Is this what you wanted to see? Rin's voice came near to the ground. That is, yes, that is sufficient, Eccles said, apparently not needing a translation to understand Rin's meaning. You can put your pants back on now, he said a moment later. May I keep them on? Rin asked as Bradford heard the sound of more fabric and a belt buckle. May he keep them on? Bradford asked, dutifully filling her role as a translator. Yes, but leave the shirt off. We still have to do a blood draw. The curtain was shoved aside and a shirtless Rin stomped through, his blouse and undershirt tucked under an arm while he fiddled with his belt buckle. Without thinking, Bradford gave him a wolf whistle. Rin froze and looked over at her. What kind of noise was that? What? A whistle? She whistled a few notes. How are you doing that? Rin cocked his head, one ear twitching and swiveling to lock onto her. Wait, Kishman can't whistle? No, I've never heard or seen anyone do that before. He pursed his lips, trying to mimic the emotions to Bradford's mouth, but achieving nothing more than a blowing sound. I'm sure the second artificer appreciates the distraction, Sergeant, but perhaps next time you could be a bit more professional, Eccles admonished. Rin cocked his head in the other direction, giving her a questioning flick of an ear. Bradford smiled and gave him a wink. No need to tell him the meaning of that particular tune. Eccles rolled his eyes, running a hand over his balding head. If you would have a seat, please. He gestured at the chair next to the table. Another coursman had laid out some vials and an IV needle there earlier. With suspicious glance at Bradford, Rin carefully settled down into the chair, adjusting how his tail fit through the field-modified trousers. What did you say about blood draw? Bradford repeated the question. Eccles put on the nitrile gloves. We have to draw some blood for testing. Normally, we check things like cholesterol levels, blood type, and check for various diseases, but we don't exactly have a baseline to compare you to. He pulled out an elastic band. Set your arm on the table, please. What all can you do with someone's blood? 
Rin asked as he complied. Eccles tied a band around the upper arm and Bradford translated the question. There's a lot we can do, Eccles said, tearing open an alcohol wipe and rubbing the inside corner of Rin's elbow. Rin watched him, ears quirked curiously. We can identify most illnesses and a number of other health factors, including compatibility for blood transfusions. Blood transfusions? Rin looked up at Eccles and then Bradford. If someone bleeds out, they die, right? Bradford asked and Rin nodded. Giving them a blood transfusion from someone who isn't bleeding out can help keep them alive until the wound is patched up. I don't know if that's the same for Kishman, but not all humans can take a blood donation from other humans, Eccles said, picking up a thread of conversation. If the donor blood isn't of compatible blood type, the immune system of the person receiving the blood attacks it, and it can kill them. He picked up the needle. If you don't mind, I'd like to take a double sample. He nodded at the two sets of vials, so that we can run some additional tests. It'll help us establish a Kishman baseline so that we can be more properly diagnosed and treat Kishman patients. It'll help us identify things like Kishman blood types, if you even have any. Rin looked at Bradford and she gave him a nod. He flicked his ear. Very well. Go ahead, Bradford told Eccles. I prick, the corpsman said, and stuck the needle into Rin's arm. Rin only flinched slightly and watched as they removed the elastic band with one hand, still holding the IV needle with the other. Eccles took a vial and plugged it into the needle and began to fill with a dark red blood. Rin quickly looked away, his ears flicked back against his head. Turning, he locked eyes with Bradford. What are the gloves and alcohol for? Sanitation, Bradford said, to minimize the spread of disease. The alcohol kills most germs and bacteria, and the gloves help prevent them from being spread through the contact. Rin tilted his head at Eccles, swapped vials. What are, uh, Bactera? He said, shrugging a bit with the human word. Eccles raised an eyebrow. Do your people have germ theory? Rin flicked an ear in his direction. I don't know what that is. What do you think causes diseases? Bradford asked. Rin frowned. I'm not a medical artificer, but we were all given training in basic medical treatment. Disease can be caused by a number of things, from miasma to infestation of parasites, all of which cause disruption to the balance of the seven humors. Miasma and humors, huh? Bradford raised an eyebrow. Good lord, they're in the freaking dark ages, Eccles said, swapping in the last while. Dark ages? Run yipped, giving the corpsman a glare. We might not know all the secrets that you do, but I assure you... Granlin was a height of knowledge and the discovery before the elves invaded. Calm down, calm down, Eccles said, putting the last vial. I didn't mean to cause offense. He picked up the gauze pad and pressed it on Rin's arm while pulling out the needle with a practice ease. Hold this here, he said, dropping the needle into a biohazard waste bin. Rin complied and a moment later the pad was held by his arm and the band was stretchy, sticky gauze. That's gonna hurt when that comes off later, Bradford thought. Where to next? Bradford asked as Rin stood up and began putting his shirt and blouse back on. Audiology and optometry, he said, glancing over his shoulder. But first, speaking of bacteria, another corpsman was approaching carrying a syringe. I'm going to need you to step behind the curtain again and bend over. I thought we really went through this, Rin said, eyeing the approaching corpsman with a syringe that she was carrying nervously. It's to prevent disease, he said, before Bradford could translate, taking the needle with a thank you and a nod. Fortunate for you, viruses tend to be very species-specific, and since your DNA is probably completely different from ours, no earth virus is likely to be able to do anything to you, and vice versa. 
He held up the syringe. This is a bicillin vaccination. It's a slow-release antibiotic that should take care of any bacterial diseases that you're carrying and might pick up. He waved Rin towards the curtain. Rin didn't move. Look, we can either do this behind the curtain, or we can do this right here. Your choice. I suddenly don't feel comfortable behind the curtain. Bradford chuckled. He doesn't like the curtain anymore. Echol shrugged. Suit yourself, he gestured to the table, tearing open another alcohol wipe. Face the table and pick up cheek. What? Rin's looked confusion was universal. This thing is going in your rear. Pick a cheek and drop your pants. What? Rin's ear shot up in alarm. He glanced at Bradford. I f- I f- I think I want to go behind the curtain. He wants the curtain now, Doc. Nope. Too late. You had your chance. Drop your pants and turn around. Bradford rolled her eyes and turned away as Rin gave her a pleading glance, pointedly looking in the opposite direction. She heard Rin's belt. I don't need them all the way down, just one side. Is that enough? Yeah, that's fine. Lean forward and place your other hand on the table. Bradford peeked around just in time to see Eccles stick the syringe into Rin's exposed furry butt cheek and depress the plunger. Rin yelped, his tail going straight right behind him as he tensed up. Bradford winced in sympathy, remembering her own peanut butter shot. She turned back around as Eccles pulled the needle out, and Rin gave a soft whine. There, Eccles said. Hold on, you can put your pants back up. Bradford waited until she heard Rin's belt again before turning back around. Rin was staring at her with an expression she wasn't sure she knew how to read. Make sure you massage that so that it doesn't have a single lump in the muscle. Walking and exercise help too. Eccles marked a note down on Rin's medical file. Other than that, you're all set for optometry and audiology. They're sharing a tent right now, third tent in that direction. He waved in the general direction of a wall while handing Rin a file. And make sure you bring this back here when you're done. Dr. Jenkins would need to review it. Thanks, Doc, Jab said, setting a hand on Rin's shoulder and giving him a comforting squeeze. Come on, Rin. We'll talk more about bacteria on the way. He nodded and stifled a whine as he hobbled to the next tent. So your eyes aren't quite as good as ours, but you can see the same colors that we do. And your hearing is better, Bradford said as they walked out of the optometry audiology tent. I don't know how you can hear anything with those tiny flaps on the sides of your head, Rin said, waggling his ears at her. Bradford laughed, glancing at his ears. She wanted to rub one and tug on it, but she resisted the urge and gave him a friendly shove instead. I wonder how your night vision compares to ours. We don't normally test for that. Rin shrugged his ears. You humans seem to have a test for everything. Yeah, we do, don't we? Bradford rolled her shoulders. It's just science, I guess. Science, Rin sounded out. What is science? Science is, she scratched her head. Well, you know all the cool stuff we've been able to do. All the stuff that we can do that is more advanced than poking someone into the sharp stick. Rin nodded. That's all based on science. So it's like manner. Science is what powers all of your artifices. Bradford laughed. Oh, no, man. Um, If only we weren't that way, though. She shook her head. No, science is a method, specifically the scientific method. It's a process tool, a methodology for determining how the universe and everything in it works. She waved a hand at the sky above them, encompassing the portal and the skies of the two worlds. The basic process is like this, right? You come up with the question, why is the sky blue? 
Is it the color of the box that Hafreta uses to cover the heavens each day so he might surprise his wife, Kayata, anew each night? Grin waved a hand in an arc over the sky. Bradford gave Grin a sidelong glance. He grinned, giving her a mysterious wiggle of his ears. Or so the legends of the gods say. He shrugged. I wasn't so sure they weren't anything more than a fanciful tales before you arrived. Now, he waved an arm at the camp about them. God, I want to scrunch those ears, but no, that would be too familial. Anyway, she said, you ask your question, then you formulate a hypothesis. This blue sky is a box covering the heavens, she winked at him. Your eyes broken, he asked. What, she asked, looking over her shoulder as she ducked into an examination tent, nearly running into a coursman on his way out. Jesus, watch where you're going. Sorry, Bradford said. He was already stalking off, muttering under his breath. Fricking jarheads. Meh, whatever, jerk. Bradford rolled her eyes and continued into the tent. Anyway, what were you saying? Are your eyes broken? You've only shut one of them twice now. Yeah, that's what we call a wink. Can you wink? She turned back to him, closing one of her eyes and then the other, alternating back and forth in increasing rate. Yeah, Stop that! Ren recoiled, holding up a hand to block a view of her face. Bradford laughed. Hey, we don't have ears to wiggle around like signal flags, so we gotta do use our eyes. She gave him a big, slow wink. You should try it sometime. Maybe some other time, he said, cocking both his ears to the side. Come on, she said. Let's drop off your medical report and see if the doctor has anything else to say. I want to get back before Davies has the opportunity to stir up too much trouble. They walked over to the admin table, where immediately directed to another table-turned desk in the far corner of the tent. Dr. Jenkins is waiting for you. So, the hypothesis? Ren asked as they walked away from the table. Hmm? Right. Radford scratched her head for a moment. So after you formulate your hypothesis... You come up with a prediction based on that hypothesis. If the blue sky is a box, then you would see this thing, or effect, or whatever. She waved a hand before him. It is very important that the prediction be something that is falsifiable, something that can be proved to be false. Otherwise, it's a useless prediction, because you can't test it. And this is where all the testing comes in. Yes, exactly. Once you have your prediction, you test it. If the blue sky is a box, then I wouldn't be able to see anything through it. So I'll look really closely at the blue sky and see if I can see anything that I can see when the sky isn't blue. Teaching science class, Sergeant. Yes, ma'am, Bradford braced her attention before Commander Jenkins's desk, and Rin followed suit. Sergeant Bradford and Second Artificer Ayat reporting as requested, ma'am. As you were, Sergeant, Second Artificer, have a seat. Jenkins waved at the set of chairs in front of her table desk. May I? She asked, indicating Rin's medical file as they sat down. Rin passed it over. Thank you. Jenkins absently frowned as she flipped through the folder and skimmed through it, enhanced her natural, severe look. She looks like a middle-aged Mrs. McGonagall. Is it just resting bitch face, or is she as severe as she looks? Let's see, five foot eight inches, a hundred and twenty-six pounds. Damn. He's thirty pounds lighter than I am. Maybe he's just underfed. Jenkins glanced Rin up and down. Are you large or small for a Kishman, or about average? Slightly taller than average, ma'am. She nodded, making a note in his file. Blood work will probably take a couple weeks. We'll be sure to notify you of anything. Well, normally I'd say out of the ordinary, but, uh, she shrugged. Rin nodded. I understand, ma'am. Hmm, 
She pursed her lips. We don't have an x-ray facilities here, and I'd really like to see an MRI. She paused, setting down the medical file. An MRI scan would be very useful for us in establishing what your baseline is right now. You seem to be healthy, if a bit undernourished, and having that baseline would help us spot problems should we need the MRI in the future. But I must be completely honest with you, second artificer. There is an interest in having x-rays and MRIs of Kishman that go beyond your own personal health, and beyond even the health of other Kishman, she sighed. Damn, I thought she was already frowning. Most of the interest in scientific curiosity and good intention, but it would be lying and against ethical codes that I am bound to to deny that some of the interest is also vested in identifying what kind of threat your people might be, and if you are, how we might deal with that threat. Normally, the laws governing medical privacy would be sufficient if you were not comfortable with sharing those scans, but these are not normal circumstances, and as such, it pains me to say, those rules might not be held sacrosanct. Rin sat back, his ears forward, giving Jenkins his full attention. Damn, was brutally honest. What is an MRI? Magnetic resonance imaging, she waved as some images hanging behind her. It uses magnetic fields and radio waves to conduct detailed scans inside your body. It allows us to see inside someone with remarkable detail, without having to cut into them to cause any harm. Rin's ears flicked up and back mimicking his horns. I am a combat artificer. My training is about as opposite to the medical arts as can be, but even I can understand how powerful such a healing tool would be. There are some healing artificers that can detect injuries without the body, but not to such a detail. He reached up and tugged a horn and thought, Your people have done nothing but help mine. Don't rely on that, Jenkins interjected. Our history with situations like this, she scowled, is not pleasant. I would like to think that we are better than our ancestors, that we have overcome the worst barbarisms, but, uh, she sighed, don't rely on it. Still, you helped us, yet you continue to help us, more than we might be able to repay, he snorted. Besides, I have no doubt that the king and his lords and their noble houses are already scheming and conspiring to connive an advantage out of you as much as you might be for us. He shook his head. Great as the kingdom of Ganlon was before the war, the lords who run it are no saints. He gave his horn one last tug and straightened. I'd like an MRI. It sounds like it might help a lot of my people and... He shrugged. Trust has to start somewhere. Very well, Jenkins nodded. She reached at the prescription pad, scribbled something on it, and handed it to Rin. I'll make some calls, she glanced at Bradford, and inform your battalion commander. I want you at the naval hospital in Pendleton bursting tomorrow for a full set of x-rays and MRIs. She paused, giving Rin another glance up and down, her nose twitching. On second thought, Sergeant, make sure you take him somewhere that he can get properly cleaned up before you take him to the hospital. Be there by ten hundred. Yes, ma'am. Drop this off with HM3 Shelby on your way out, she said, handing Rin his medical file back, and Bradford stood up. He'll make sure it's properly filed. Yes, ma'am, Rin replied. Dismissed, ma'am, Bradford said, racing to attention with Rin before turning about. They walked out of the tent, stopping only to drop off Rin's medical file. They had walked thirty feet out of the tent when Rin stopped and turned to face the portal. That's through there. Yep, Camp Pendleton is the largest Marine Corps base in the country. The Naval Hospital in Pendleton South, about forty, forty-five minutes from the portal. 
minutes. He shook his head. You use time like a distance. How far? Um, twenty miles, give or take, she frowned. Sorry, imperial miles. The U.S. still uses imperial system of measurement, but we use the metric system in the Marines, and it gets confusing sometimes. She rolled her eyes, doing some quick math in her head. About thirty-two kilometers, which is about sixteen royal miles. Rin shook his head, giving her a, I don't believe you, Earflick. You'll travel that far in forty minutes, as if it were nothing. Yeah, Bradford snorted. In fact, it'd be faster if it weren't for traffic. Rin turned, looking through the portal again. What wonders might I see? I'm sure we could show you a few. She threw her arm around his shoulder, steering him back towards the battalion camp, just managing to keep herself from giving his ears a scratch. Come on, let's go find some chow and tell the rest of the squad. I doubt I'll be able to keep them from finding some way to tag along. Above and below, it's past noon already. Renan glanced at the sky as his stomach grumbled. Definitely chow time, Bradford laughed, giving him a shove as he headed home. You sure the first sergeant said that? Dubois asked, standing outside the tent with the rest of the squad, waiting for Kowalski and Gomez to show up with the van. Well, there was a lot more Tennessee twang and anger, of course, Bradford said, squinting into the rising sun above the California mountains, just visible inside the edge of the portal. Galio's stars were just barely obscured. How can the Buddhists be so angry? Gimba asked. Katri is not a Buddhist. He's like Hindu, brah. Meh. Same thing. Not really, Samson rolled his eyes. I thought Hinduism taught peace and calm and karma and all that cool crap, Dubois said. I don't think he's very firmly practicing Hindu, Bradford said. Hinduism and Buddhism are major religions back on earth, though they're not common in our part of the world. She added when Rind opened his mouth. He closed it again with a prick of his ears. I still have a hard time believing the first Sergeant Catry said that we could leave the combat zone and go back to the barracks and pick up our personal items, Dubois said. Maybe he's more of a practicing Hindu than you thought, Davies said. Further conversation was interrupted by a rapid honking of a horn as the government transit van rolled around the corner. Someone call for an Uma? Gomez asked, hanging out the passenger side window. Hey, so I only got room for ten, including me, and First Sergeant gave me a seatbelt lecture, Kowalski said as the side door opened up and the Marines started piling in. You know he's going to be checking when we come back, if he's not at the gate on the way out. With the dock an eye at, that leaves an odd man out, Bradford frowned. You know what? You guys go on without me, Davies said, magnanimously waving them away. I already got my sea bag full of crap. I don't need to go back and get anything. He jerked his thumb back to the tent. I'll stay safe here and hold down the fort. Thanks, Davies, Dubois said, clapping a hand on his shoulder as he piled in after Alunwarawaju. You, like, want anything from MCX, brah? Nah, man, I'm good. I stocked up before I came out here. Righteous, brah, Stephen said, giving him a high five. Later, Davies, Redford said, giving him a nod. She turned to Rin and then the van. Uh-huh. Kimber, get your rear in the back, Kowalski shouted. Jabs and shields ain't gonna cram in with all of you sweaty fricks back there. They get the front branch seat. Fine, Kimber said, rolling his eyes. Make a hole, he shouted, and crawled straight over the back of the seat, shoving himself into until he had displaced enough marines to find a seat. Bradford shook her head and looked at Rin. After you, she said, waving a hand at the van. Rin hopped into the van and slid all the way over to make room for her. 
Shifting around until he found his way to sit without crushing his tail, he slipped into the gap between the seats and the bulkhead of the quan. Immediately, he jerked back out again when Edison said, Ooh, what's this? and ended up curling his tail in his lap. Chuckling, Bradford hopped in after him, slamming the door behind her. Thank freaking God he brought that, Kowalski said as he pulled away from Davies at the tent. I practically had to prostitute myself to get a van with exactly ten seats. He probably thinks he's winning brownie points by showing self-sacrificing leadership by volunteering to stay behind, Dubois said. Yeah, well, either way, now we can actually do crap without having to worry about a freaking knock, Kowalski growled, turning them onto one of the main roads through the base. Frick yeah, Gomez said. Where to first? The barracks, Radford said. We need to get cleaned up before going to medical. And after medical, Gomez asked. After medical, we're taking Rin downtown. Bradford considered whether or not to allow this as the rest of the van exploded in cheers. She was a sergeant now. She needed to exercise more maturity and responsibility. But the first sergeant, Catry, was not an idiot. He knowingly gave the squad of marines a van and an excuse to be gone for a day. Frickett. Kowalski, she shouted over the din. Yes, sergeant. Drive. Aye, sergeant. And they were off to the portal to Earth. End of chapter. Retreat Hall, chapter 7.5, written by Elithy Dragon. Tyrrell awoke well into the next morning, not daring to venture out into the light of day. He sheltered in the trees for a time, regaining his strength. The trees were alien to him. They were of no species known to Gala. They were completely wild. I'm not sure if they can even sense me, he shrugged. In time, they will. When darkness fell, he stepped past the human patrols and moved away from the portal. Lights illuminated the horizon to the south and west, signs of heavy population. He was not ready to venture into human population centers. The great highway bounded him to the east. Carriages rampaged up and down it, even in the dead of night, and the bridge across too open and illuminated, and patrolled by human soldiers. Slipping into the trees and scrubland, he began wandering his way north, seeking a more isolated regions. To conserve mana, he avoided dwelling on clusters of habitation, and blended through the shadows only when he couldn't. As dawn neared, he crossed into a low mountains of the north, the sheltering in another grove of trees. He rested and awaited darkness once more. I must take no chances. He continued the next evening, winding his way through the mountains, skirting past clusters of homes, sometimes following roads, sometimes slipping across country. He stopped periodically as he moved further from the portal, to measure their ambient mana levels. To his relief, he found that the ethereal mana was in much abundance in this world as it had been on Gala. If there is any difference, I lack the artifacts necessary to detect it. As dawn approached, he doubled back south, climbing a ridge to gain an everlasting viewpoint. Cresting a peak, he found what he was looking for. A house. Isolated. Alone. It would be considered a manor by the standards of the Kishman, and was large even for what Tyrrell was used to of our homeland. We are rarely afforded such space. A carriage sat on the paved lot in front of the two-door sized for it, attached to the house like some small stable. Have the stables full, or has the carriage left ready to depart? He crept up to the edge of the open yard that surrounded the house. Two small structures stood in the yard of what was clearly the back of the house. 
One was made of wood with several climbing bars, two swing sets, and a larger platform with a slide. The smaller structure was made from an unfamiliar multicolored material and resembled a miniature horse. As he crept through the scrub and the trees and the border of the yard, something inside barked. Tyrael froze, blending into the trees. The sun was up, but he had seen no sign of activity in the manor until now. Another bark. Whatever creature is making the noise is not small. He heard several more barks moving through the house. The sound carries, but not far enough. Maintaining his blending, he slipped into the yard and crept up to cover behind the miniature house. Lights were coming on inside the manor now, and the barking continued. Perhaps this creature was trained to wake its masters with the dawn. The barking moved to the rear of the house. Curtains moved inside, and the glass door slid open. A pale, gold-colored animal surged out, practically dragging the human man who held it on a leash with it. The man wore loose, bagging pants and a light shirt underneath a soft robe and hung open, its sash left undone. His brown hair was askew, and he looked barely conscious. Warf! The creature barked. Warf, warf, warf! It looked like a stocky, primitive kishman, he mused. It's just missing the horns, and the ears are wrong. Come on, Lila, you're not going off to squirrels today, the man said, tugging the rein in the animal. Settle down and do your business. It's too damn early for this. Warf, warf, warf! The creature strained on its master's leash, looking straight at Tyrael. It knows I'm here. Tyrael stood up. The creature lowered its head and growled heckles up. The man looked at his animal, sleep fading rapidly. What's got? Tyrael released his blend. Oh, crap! The human wan was the last words, with the pulsing shriek discharging manner. Tyrael shot a short burst from his staff into the human's chest, knocking him to the ground in a spray of blood. His leash suddenly released the creature charged forward. Rawr, 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 rawr. Another shard burst cut it short of a yelp. The creature's lifeless body trumbled to the ground. Dad, he heard a voice call from inside. Tyrael slipped into the open door and stepped inside. He came almost face to face with another human, short, lanky, with a mop of sandy hair. A young male. The child only had enough time to give him a confused look before he lowered his staff and put a pulse of raw manner into his chest. Less than a foot from the manor gem on the crest of the staff, the pulse punched clean through the youth's chest, spraying blood, bone, and bits of lungs across the carpeted room. There was an anguished scream from across the room. Tyrael looked up. The mother. She stood at the foot of the staircase, staring in horror at his son's corpse. Mommy! He heard another voice call. Sarah! Run! The woman shrieked, turning and bolting up the stairs. Tyrael drew his sword, the manor gem on the pommel glowing as he sent a pulse of energy into it, igniting the blade in orange manner. He followed. Rounding the corner on the top of the stairs, he was met with a shriek of agonized rage as the woman charged at him, swinging a metal club. He casually deflected it with a shield pulse from his staff, the club bouncing off of the loud ping, then ran her through with his glowing blade. Her momentum carried her to the hilt. The scent of searing flesh filled his nostrils. He met her gaze. Her sky-blue eyes were full of terror, anguish, rage, and despair. Such a powerful mix of emotions, he thought, as he twisted the blade. She choked, her mouth moving wordlessly as she dropped the club. He flicked the blade sideways, cutting her heart in two as his sword sliced up her chest. Her blonde hair fanning out, she fell to the ground, twitching her last as Tyrael stepped over her. 
The elf stalked forward. The door was left ajar. Pushing it open, he saw a large bed, unmade. Chests of drawers lined the picture and oddities. A vanity, the parents' room, he thought. Pulling the door shut, he continued. The next door on his right was open. The room was tiled instead of a carpet that covered the rest of the floors. It contained what was clearly a bathtub built into one wall, and a bowl with a seat on the lid, a bath and a privy on the second floor. They must have at least had basic indoor plumbing. With no places to hide in the privy room, Tyriel left the door open. The next door was the right with a linen closet. The floor creaked beneath his feet as he calmly walked down the hall, the only sound in the house. The last door on the right was also ajar. It had a single bed, also unmade, and a desk and a dresser covered with more oddities. Toys and strange devices were scattered about the room, along with several items of clothing that looked about the right size for a boy. Drawing the door shut, Daryl turned the last door on the left. This one was shut. A sheet of paper was tacked to the door, covered in a multicolored wax drawing. It looked like there were crude words as well but he couldn't read them. Leaning his staff against the wall, Tyriel tried to open the door. It was locked. He placed the point of his sword against the door, next to the frame and even with the handle. He increased the trickle of energy into the blade. He pressed it forward, letting the halo of the charged manor do most of the work. Slowly, the blade slipped into the door, flames spitting and flaring as the wood charred and ignited. Once his sword was plunged halfway through the door, he withdrew it and he picked up his staff. With a flick, he snuffed out the flames and then kicked the door open. He banged against the wall and he stepped into the room. This one contained another bed, also unmade, a dresser, a small vanity chest and an assortment of toys and other childish sundries. He stepped around the bed, quietly scanning the room. It was empty. His ears twitch, a hint of noise. He tilted his head to angle them better, a faint snuffling. He turned to set of white slatted doors. In here, another closet. Stepping over the doors, he extinguished the manner charge of the blade and used the tip to drag the double-hinged doors open. There she is. Huddled against the back of the closet, holding a stuffed animal to her chest, sat a little girl. Her dusty locks were darker than her mother's, but she had the same sky-blue eyes, sniffling. She looked up at him with her sad, fearful eyes, clutching her stuffed animal tiger. Staring into those pale blue orbs, Tyriel was struck by a part of mercy. She's too innocent for pain. He lowered his staff and sent raw manner blast into her head, spraying blood and brains across the closet. Sheathing his sword, he turned away. Tyriel walked back outside and collected the body of the father, dragging him back inside, shutting and locking the sliding doors behind him. Emperor's bones, they're heavy, he thought as he struggled to drag the man's body up the stairs. Do they eat rocks? An exhaustive struggle later, Tyrrell managed to drag all the bodies into the last room at the end of the hall, piling them all into the closet. The slatted doors wouldn't shut anymore. It wasn't that large of a closet, but at least the bodies were all out of sight and out of his way. He shut the broken door on his way out. Downstairs, the first room he entered, there was a set of couches and chairs arranged around a strange black panel, obviously of some importance. Tyriel spent twenty minutes investigating it before he found the rectangular artifact covered in butters and sitting next to a large reclining chair. There are symbols on the artifact that match the large panel device. 
examined it more closely. Mm, one end has a smooth, dark-colored material embedded in it, and it's curved to fit the end of pointing away from you. He shrugged and began methodically pressing buttons. The second button caused the device to flare to life. Light and noise filled the room as moving pictures appeared on the panel. A few more experiments with the controlling artifact, and he discovered the device could be tuned to pick up different streams. This is perfect, he thought. Far better than I could have hoped. He flicked from stream to stream and began to learn. End of chapter Retreat Hell, Declaration of War Written by a Lizzie Dragon Senators and Representatives, I have a distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. The chamber, full of bleary-eyed congressmen and women, aides, reporters, and observers, stood and applauded as President Richards walked into the room. The applause was less enthusiastic than it might otherwise have been. The retired Navy officer had managed to navigate the rising tide of partisan hostility by ignoring it entirely, and had the distinction of being the only candidate in his election year to not be despised by any particular group. As such, while he held no camp of feverish support, he had largely been deemed, with some reluctance, as acceptable, even by his opposition. The lack of enthusiasm was not due to any distaste or displeasure for the Republican president, but rather due to the hour. The special joint session of the 116th Congress had been called just past eleven at night, with most of the senators and representatives arriving and the session formally starting a little over an hour later. They would continue to wait for another hour, though that did allow time for most of the remaining senators and representatives to arrive. Only those few who had not been near the Capitol when the session had been called were not in attendance. President Richards ascended to the podium of the House floor, motioning for the Speaker to cut their listless applause short. She banged her gavel once she had turned to face the podium, and the applause fell silent. Two more members of Congress slipped inside the chamber and quietly found seats in the back. He placed a notepad on the podium before him and with a frown. He closed his eyes for a moment with a heavy sigh, but when he opened them, his shoulders were square, his spine was straight and steel rod, and his expression was firm. Mr. Vice President, Madam Speaker, members of the Senate, and the House of Representatives, he glanced down at his notes and set them aside. It is with great reluctance that I come before you this evening, but I am afraid that I must share with you some grave news. Not twelve hours ago, we sent a delegation through the San Diego portal to meet with the so-called Asimni Empire to discuss peace and neutrality between our two nations. They were directed to ensure the leaders of the empire that we had no interest in becoming involved in their conflict with the kingdom of Ganlin, that we bore no ill will to the elven people, and that we sought only peaceful relations with both of our new neighbors. The president glanced at his watch. He looked around the chamber at the elected officials before him. It is with my deepest regret that I must inform you that four hours ago our delegation was returned to us. His grey eyes hardened, his expression turning to steel. The twelve men and women that we sent to the emissaries of peace were returned to us cut into tidy pieces and packed inside five elaborately decorated boxes. He paused as a wave of shock rippled through the assembly. The speaker banged her gavel once more, and he continued with the commotion had died down. But those boxes were delivered a message. He placed a note on pad in front of him again, reading from it. It translates as follows. 
We do not hold relations with animals. The inferior will be expunged to their proper place, or expunged from existence. President Richard set the note aside again, and silence reigned over the chamber. Senators and representatives, I must further inform you that less than an hour ago, I was given a report from a reconnaissance assets that we have sent through the portal. Not only have they confirmed the size and numbers of both armies that we were given by the Gandan delegation, they have also observed signs of a large Alvin force moving to reinforce their existing army, which has begun to mobilize towards the Gandan army at the portal. He looked at the chamber. At this time, an army that numbers upwards of 40,000 troops is marching in the direction of San Diego, with tens of thousands more moving to reinforce them. From the Gandan accounts of the respective capabilities, the nearly 50,000 Gandan troops that stand between the elves and the portal will not be able to hold back without reinforced Alvin army. Senators and representatives, we are faced with an implicatable enemy, unlike any that we have faced in recent memory. An enemy who has made their desires and intentions unequivocally clear. We have not faced such an assemblage against since the Korean War. We have not faced such a malevolent enemy since the Second World War. We have not faced such a direct threat to the American soil from a foreign adversary since the War of 1812. As the Commander-in-Chief of the American military, I have directed every measure to be taken to ensure our defenses. As we speak, the men and women of our armed forces are moving to defend our soil, to protect our citizens, and to stand against this threat. I have full faith in the confidence in the courage, determination, and capability of our armed forces to confront this evil, and to carry us through to victory. He paused as a wave of applause rippled through the chamber. Make no mistake, he said as when the applause quietened down, it is evil that we face, an evil that threatens not our treasure, not our livestock, but that will we see as reduced to animals or wiped from existence. He looked around the silence that was once more reigned. There are few who are alive today who remember, but we have faced such an evil before. Those who were called to defend in the world against an evil are considered our greatest generation. Today, we are called again. A new evil has arisen, and it is now our generation's turn to stand against it, and to show the unyielding and righteous character of the American people. Another wave of applause erupted across the chamber. There was nothing tepid or lackluster about it this time. He waited until it subsided. I ask Congress to declare that, in light of this unmistakable acts of hostility and aggression, the state of war now exists between the United States and the Elbert Empire. Applause thundered around the chamber as he yielded the floor and allowed Congress to carry out the proceedings. The matter was quickly brought to a vote. It passed the Senate 84 to 0. When the roll call was complete, it passed the House 392 to 2, one abstination. And at 0133 on the 9th of June in the year 2020, the United States of America declared war on the Isumnai Empire. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. 
Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.